Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nazara. Infinite blessings to one and all as we approach the full moon that is considered the holiest time of the year. This is the celebration of the Wisak, and I will be talking about that further. It is the second of the three spring festivals. The first one we celebrated around Easter, the full moon of the Christ. This is the full moon of the Buddha, the third under the full moon of Gemini Sagittarius is the full moon of humanity or the full moon of goodwill. So again, we will come back to this topic, but let us go into our heart center and begin with our meditation. Take a nice deep breath as you go within. Call forth the emergence of your soul, higher self, your monad, your mighty I am presence. Experience the integration of your mighty I am as we welcome every aspect of your multidimensional being. See yourself in a pillar of white light, the white ray of Shambhala, the white ray of the Buddhic plane. Expand your pillar, the maximum that you can experience in front of you and behind you, above you and below you. And see, sense, and feel it anchored directly to the heart of Mother Gaia and directly to God Goddess and the heart of our Mother Father God. Feel these frequencies calm you and nourish you and nurture you as you recommit to being the bridge between heaven and earth to being the anchor of the new golden age and being the open door that no one can shut. At our I Am Presence, we are one with the I Am Presence of all humanity. We invoke them to join us in unity consciousness now. Please say after me. I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. 
as one we invoke the following for all. We invoke all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to be a part of this work. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots, as we ask for everyone to receive this work. We invoke all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We invoke the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We invoke at this time all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. All of our friends from the ascended master realms especially those that work so closely with us and those associated with the most sacred festival of Wisak, especially Lord Buddha and Lord Maitreya. We call for the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, our Divine Mother Emissaries and Divine Father Emissaries and all of their healing teams. We invoke the assistance of our sacred friends from the Galactic Federation, especially those healing teams that we work with most closely, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service to assist each I am presence as they require it. To assist every man, woman, and child at this holy time of enlightenment. We, assist, we call for the assistance of the entire company of heaven, of our Mother, Father, God, Asking Creator Source to magnify, magnify, magnify all that we do. Ten billion times, ten billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law and the highest and best. For both the personal and planetary ascension of everyone on the planet, on both the planetary and cosmic level. So at this time, as we celebrate the festival of the Buddha, we call in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, 
every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation. We ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensional. And we ask that Gaia receive the same through her chakras and meridians and layers of her auric field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line. Through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every portal and vortex, every monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue this amazing journey with Gaia to full enlightenment. And we call forth the rays of enlightenment, the rays of divine wisdom, the rays of illumination to fill this planet and everyone upon her the maximum that we can receive individually and collectively. And we give thanks for this opportunity as we give thanks for this opportunity to serve. Take a nice deep breath. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Wesak and what's going on. We're going to do some prayers with Buddha here today to prepare us. We won't do the ceremony here today. We will do it on the Ascension call on Sunday. And then on Monday, we are going to tune in to a live broadcast from Australia with the mystery school that I attended, the Divine University. That broadcast will be at the exact time, not coincidentally. It's based on the timing of the full moon, but there's definitely a reason that we are doing it in simultaneous time, in the exact time that our call on Monday would normally reside. So the full moon is exact at 11.31 p.m. Eastern Time. So that's 8.31 p.m. Pacific Time. And that Monday, we will be only in meditation. There won't be any greetings for the Ascension Call. There won't be any closing. You can write me your comments. You can email me or text me. But we won't have any closing that night. We will be on from 8.45 till midnight Eastern Time. That'll be 5.45 p.m. to 9 o'clock at the Pacific Time. So I'll go back through that in a bit, but focused on the full moon. This is the most important of the three Ascended Master Festivals. 
Vulcan is under the sun sign of Taurus, which makes it a Scorpio full moon. And this is a time when humanity receives the highest frequencies of light. The Wisak Festival is a festival of the Buddha commemorating the anniversary of his birth, the attainment of his Buddhahood and his ascension. We honor Buddha, the perfect expression of the wisdom aspect of God, who is the enlightenment of light and divine purpose. So the term Wisak refers to the Wisak Valley in the Himalayas, where every year the Ascended Masters gather on both the inner and outer planes to share in a sacred ceremony. And at the precise rising of the full moon, the Manu Alagobi, Lord Maitreya, the Cosmic Christ, St. Germain, the Mahakohan, stand in a triangular formation around a bowl of water that sits on a crystal. It is here that Buddha appears hovering above the bowl of water, transmitting cosmic energies into the water and through Lord Maitreya to be disseminated to the spiritual hierarchy and all of the initiates, disciples, and new group of world servers. At the end of the ceremony, the water is shared by all those in attendance. Wisak is also the time when initiations are given to the disciples on earth by Lord Maitreya, Lord Buddha, and also Lord Melchizedek, the Universal Logos. So this full moon, the Wisak full moon, is a time of great renewal and celebration. The quality of the energy is a force of enlightenment. And this energy emanates from the heart of God-Goddess, related to divine understanding and the love-wisdom aspect of God. At a planetary level, this initiates the new world education. So we're going to put this in our circle of support and put this in our intentions, that this full moon of enlightenment, of illumination, of divine wisdom and divine understanding affect all education, all of our values, all literature, all publishing, all television, radio, newspaper, magazines, writers, teachers, and speakers on the entire planet. This force of enlightenment so prevalent at Wiesach is why such large groups come together each and every year. I know a lot of it may be broadcasted like they're not meeting in person. Originally, they intended to meet in in Australia in person, um, but everything's over the broadcast instead. But Wiesach is where the greatest window for mass enlightenment can occur on a planetary level. And so we call this forth. 
Now, during the ceremony, Buddha sounds forth a great mantra and becomes an absorbing agent of the first ray forest, the sapphire ray of power and protection. He then uses the magnetic power of the second ray, the ray of love, to attract this force to himself. It's often considered the ray of love, wisdom, combined. And that's part of what Buddha holds, is that love, wisdom frequency. He holds it steady and then directs it to Lord Maitreya, who is the receiving agent of this energy. It is disseminated then to the seven kohans and their ashrams for a sevenfold expression and direction in the world. So both Sunday and Monday, we'll do a preview on Sunday. And we'll take everybody to the Wisat Valley in our spiritual bodies. Because we're all welcome to attend. We're all invited to the Wisat Valley to attend the sacred ceremony and join in the festivities. This is also a time to come and stand before Lord Maitreya, Lord Buddha, and Sanat Kamara to give your vows of service and receive special blessings. So it is a time of amazing, amazing blessings. And the Wiesach Festival has also been regarded by the Interplane Ascended Masters to be of important, um, paramount importance in world affairs. And so we call forth for the worlds of our spiritual reality and human affairs to be brought closer and closer together, to be fully integrated, bringing heaven to earth, everyone integrating the fifth dimensional frequencies. So we're going to proceed with our prayers. And please plan on joining us for the actual ceremonies, both Sunday and Monday. Because the purpose of the Wiesach Festival includes the releasing of certain transmissions of energies to humanity that will stimulate the spirit of love, brotherhood, and goodwill. The second purpose is the fusion of all humanity, all men and women of goodwill, into a responsive, integrative whole. And the third is for the invocation response from certain cosmic beings as these prior goals are achieved. So we call forth now Lord Buddha to be with us to prepare us for this most sacred and holy time. And we call forth Buddha to bring forth the wisdom of God Goddess to be poured through us over this entire weekend and through to Tuesday in the other parts of the world. 
So we call forth Lord Maitreya to join us here too. And know that, again, the time of Wesak includes at least two days prior to the full moon, the day of the festival itself, and two days after the Wesak ceremony. The two days of preparation that we are celebrating right now are called the days of renunciation and detachment. The day of the festival is called the day of safeguarding, and the two succeeding days are the days of distribution. Please commit yourself to intentional service during this time as we begin our service now. As we begin, and we welcome Lord Buddha, we ask for several dispensations here today. Lord Buddha, celestial guardian of the Buddhic realm, at one point planetary logos for the earth, we call forth your divine dispensations individually and collectively. As we receive this individually now, we ask for the dispensation of the throne of compassion for all to rest upon. See yourself seated in a beautiful throne that holds the compassionate love for all that is. And see, as Lord Buddha offers you the dispensation of his white robe of Buddha, breathe and receive as he extends this to you, places it around your being, bringing you into stillness. As we receive this, We breathe and receive and ask for all that is unresolved and harmonized and and not in harmony to be harmonized and return to love. We ask within for all parts of our unconsciousness and consciousness to forgive all that has occurred in all lifetimes, through all time, space, and dimension. Multidimensionally, we ask for forgiveness to take place, for everything to be resolved and return to love. Breathe and receive this healing and this activation. Ask that it assist your Buddhic nature to activate through your energy, body, and consciousness now. And we give thanks for this sacred gift. Can breathe and receive. 
if we call forth as well the divine frequencies of illumination, of divine wisdom. of divine enlightenment. We call forth for the fiery ray of divine love from Buddha, calling forth the Buddha of the ruby ray. In the name I am that I am, my beloved Holy Christ Buddha Self and Holy Christ Buddha Selves of all light bearers throughout the cosmos, Beloved Alpha and Omega, Helios and Vesta, Sanat Kamara and Lady Master Venus, Gautama Buddha, Lord Maitreya, Master Jesus, Sananda, Lord Kachimi, Padma Sahava, the Great Divine Director, Saint Germain, Lady Nada, Lady Portia, Lady Christine, Lanto, Hilarion, Eros and Amora, Chemuel and Charity, Paul the Venetian, Buddha of the Ruby Ray, the Mahakohan, Padre Pio, Rose of Light, Surya and Cusco, Lanello, Claire de Lise, K-17, Kali and Ultra Messengers of God Goddess. All ascended the cosmic beings, legions of angels and archangels, Elohim, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas of heaven, the gnomes, undying sylphs, and salamanders, I pray. O Buddha of the Ruby Ray, in Tira's white fire sun, now radiate infinity the power of the one. O crystal light of Ruby Ray, our victory is here to stay. Intensify your fiery love, Maha Kohan, O holy dove. Sanat Kamara, impart now the sacred fire within your heart. O Buddha of the Ruby Ray, effuse your secret love. O Padre Pio, blessed one, we seal your flame above. O crystal light of Ruby Ray, our victory is here to stay. Intensify your love, Maha Kohan, a holy dove. Sanat Kamara, now impart the sacred fire within your heart. O Buddha, the Ruby Ray, intone the sacred song. In harmony with cosmic spheres, let all now sing along. O crystal light of Ruby Ray, our victory is here to stay. Intensify your fiery love, Maha Kohan, O Holy Death. Sanat Kamara, now impart the sacred fire within your heart. O Buddha of the Ruby Ray, your flaming aura is felt. Increase compassion for all life, samsara, maya melt. O crystal light of Ruby Ray, our victory is here to stay. Intensify your fiery love, Maha Kohan, O Holy Dove. Sanat Kamara, now impart the sacred fire within your heart. O Buddha of the Ruby Ray, let love expand within the sacred chamber of our hearts. 
expand within the sacred chamber of our hearts, we meditate and win. So we call this forth, this sacred flame of love, the ruby rays of compassionate love we call you forth to flood the planet now, to fill every cell, every meridian, every layer of our field, to fill every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, to fill the earth and all upon her with the energy of compassion for one and all. And in the fullness of your cosmic joy, we accept this prayer manifest here and now with full love, wisdom, and power anchored in the earth, air, fire, water, and ether and tangibly manifest in our lives and in the lives of all evolutions of light throughout the cosmos. So be it, and so it is. Please join me in toning. Beloved Lord Buddha, as we ask for the perfect preparation for this Wesak festival, we call forth the following dispensation. We call forth to receive at this most holy time in divine order for our being, in divine order for every man, woman, and child, the rod of initiation, in divine order through each person's I am presence. Let this be a time of spiritual initiation for all. Let us all receive individually and collectively the Shambhalic ray, the pure white ray from Shambhala. We call forth in divine order your dispensations of enlightenment, the healing grace of the Shambhala masters, and the grace and ease for passing all major initiations. We humbly request this as we say. Please feel free to repeat after me. Or join with me as the one heart that we are, that I may speak for us as one voice. Mighty I am present. I call forth to Lord Buddha for the enlightenment of my entire energy matrix, thereby allowing a full open radiance of my divine self in the service of all that is now. So be it. We state this three times. Mighty I am present. I call forth to Lord Buddha 
for the enlightenment of my entire energy matrix, thereby allowing a full open radiance of my divine self and the service of all that is now. So be it. Mighty I am presence. I call forward to Lord Buddha for the enlightenment of my entire energy matrix, thereby allowing a full open radiance of my divine self in the service of all that is now. So be it. Take a nice deep breath and let that integrate. We request the second dispensation. I call forth now to Lord Buddha for the divine dispensation of grace and ease in achieving my full ascension in the light. So be it. I now call forth to Lord Buddha for the divine dispensation of grace and ease in achieving my full ascension in the light. So be it. I call forth now to Lord Buddha for the divine dispensation of grace and ease in achieving my full ascension in the light. So be it. And thirdly, repeating after me, I call forth Lord Buddha for the divine grace of the Shambhalic Ray for my total upliftment and around-the-clock protection. So be it. I call forth Lord Buddha for the divine grace of the Shambhalic Ray for my total upliftment and around-the-clock protection. So be it. I call forth Lord Buddha for the divine grace of the Shambhalic Ray for my total upliftment and around-the-clock protection. So be it. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. Lord Buddha taught us how all happiness and suffering depend upon the mind. 
we ask him to lift up our minds. We ask us, ask him to raise us to our higher mind, helping us to cultivate the states of mind that create happiness. These are some prayers to Lord Buddha. Praise to Buddha, Shakyamuni, a blessed one, Shakyamuni Buddha, precious treasury of compassion, bestower of supreme inner peace. You who love all beings without exception are the source of happiness and goodness, and you guide us to the liberating path. Your body is a wish-fulfilling jewel. Your speech is supreme, purifying nectar, and your mind is refuge for all living beings. With folded hands, I turn to you, supreme, unchanging friend. I request from the depths of my heart, please give me the light of your wisdom to dispel the darkness of my mind and to heal my mental continuum. Please nourish me with your goodness that I may in turn nourish all beings with an unceasing banquet of delight for your compassionate intention, your blessings and virtuous deeds. And my strong wish to rely upon you, may all suffering quickly cease, and all happiness and joy be fulfilled. And may holy dharma flourish for everyone. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. Lord Buddha, Namo Buddhaya. May I realize that relative truth is my single present thinking only. To feel the waves of illumination, the waves of divine wisdom, the waves of enlightenment coming in through and around you and through this planet. We call this forth as we say these prayers. May I realize that absolute truth is the nature of my single present thinking only. Namo Buddhaya. Ego clinging is samsara. Pride is an obstacle. Doubt is weakness. Fear is delusion. Anger is hell. Jealousy is pure evil. Greed is disease. Miserliness is hunger. Selfishness is violence. Laziness is poison. Worry is useless. Guilt is self-immolation. Negative thinking is suffering. Slay is a violent thing. 
all the beings of the violet fire are working with us here as well, including St. Germain. See, sense and feel the transformation of anything less than love within yourself and within all humanity and the planet herself. Namo Buddhaya. Faith is precious. Devotion is blessing. Renunciation is victory. Mindfulness is protection. Pure perception is samaya. Compassion is the essence of dharma. Love is the root of beneficial activity. Generosity is wealth. Discipline is power. Patience is composure. Learning is luminosity. Namo Buddhaya. Contemplation is purification. Diligence is joyful practice. Meditation is realization. Prayer is the force of peace. Virtuous rejoicing is miraculous. Pure dedication is the wellspring of merit. Noble aspiration is the guide to fulfillment. Awareness is Zogen. Wisdom is enlightenment. I trust in Buddha. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from disease and the causes of disease. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from hunger and the causes of hunger. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from violence and the causes of violence. I am devoted to Buddha. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from fear and the causes of fear. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from worry and the causes of worry. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from sadness and the causes of sadness. I take refuge in Buddha. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from negative thinking and the causes of negative thinking. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from pride and the causes of pride. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from anger and the causes of anger. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from jealousy and the causes of jealousy. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings be free from ignorance and the causes of ignorance. I have faith in Buddha. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings have positive thinking and the causes of positive thinking. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. I rest in vast awakening. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings have peace and the causes of peace. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings have joy and the causes of joy. Namo Buddhaya. 
May all beings have faith in the causes of faith. Namo Buddhayam. May all beings have merit in the causes of merit. I realize vast awakening. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings realize compassion and the causes of compassion. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings realize loving kindness and the causes of loving kindness. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings realize awareness and the causes of awareness. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings realize wisdom and the causes of wisdom. Namo Buddhaya. May all realize the nature of mind and divine mind. I dissolve in vast awakening. Namo Buddhaya. May all beings swiftly attain the enlightenment of the Buddha. Namo Buddhaya. Namo Buddhaya. Namo Buddhaya. Ah, 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 ah. May I accomplish the virtuous path of accumulation. May I accomplish the virtuous path of application. May I may I accomplish the enlightened path of realization. May I accomplish the enlightened path of meditation. May I attain the enlightened path of accomplishment. So be it, and so it is. And these are our invocations and our intentions. For the blessings of Buddha at this most sacred and holy time where we honor him and we receive the greatest blessings of the entire year. So once again, let us recommit ourselves to our divine service. Take this time before, during, and after the Wesak Festival to listen, to listen for further instructions, to listen to the next step in your divine plan, and be blessed by the amazing frequencies of peace, enlightenment, illumination, divine wisdom and compassionate love for all life. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every member of humanity. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We ask for all of his work to be sealed, maintained, and sustained in divine order individually and collectively for all. And I thank you for joining me in this divine service. I hope you enjoyed what we've done here today. And I hope you'll plan on joining us 
for the divine blessings of the two nights of the Wesak that we are celebrating. They are going to be amazing, amazing meditations and energies, activations, dispensations as we celebrate Lord Buddha and as we take those journeys to the Wesak Valley to participate in the ceremony each night. So again, I'm going to invite you every Sunday and Monday, but especially this amazing, amazing weekend to join us for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. Let me give you the basic information first, and then we'll go through again what's going on for Monday night. So we meet every Sunday and Monday. This is a teleconference call. So the calls begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. Tomorrow, Sunday, we will have our normal routine. So that means we'll have about 25 minutes of greetings. Tarn Rama will give us a 20-minute update. And then we'll start our meditation and activation work at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Now, we've got so much to do tomorrow, okay? So we have some full moon audios. We have a special meditation. And we have our trip to the Wesock Valley. We'll do the ceremony tomorrow. So it's it's just fun to lead it, and we'll go ahead and go forth 24 hours in time to go ahead and experience it. And then on Monday night, we will go ahead and partake in the broadcast. And this is from the mystery school that I attended, the Divine University out of Australia the second mystery school I attended, but anyway. Um, And I knew when I met the creator of the school that we had worked together before. She absolutely confirmed that. In any case, we're going to listen to that broadcast because it starts my time in Eastern Time at 845 Again, how auspicious is that, that they are starting at 8.45 and ending at midnight Eastern Time. They're going to be 14 hours ahead in Australia, but we're going to tap into that broadcast. So I want you to come on a few minutes early. There will not be any greetings. There will not be any update. We will be begin just with that program. So I know this week is going to bring enormous, enormous blessings to each of us. It's going to bring amazing blessings to humanity. It has such a high divine potential to truly create transformation. And we call that in. We set that as our WESOC intention. Make sure you set your own individual attentions for the Wesak full moon. Again, Scorpio is about transformation. What is it that you want to transform in your own life? 
How do you want to transform your consciousness and the consciousness of the planet? Set out those intentions. Write them out. Have them in front of you. And please plan on joining us. Let me make sure you have the phone number. So the conference call main line is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. And if you're already on my email list, you have all the rest of the numbers. We have, and if you need them, please contact me. Just email me as soon as you can at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. We've got not only additional lines, but we have international numbers. We have a way to access the program through the Internet. Just set your timer. You can sleep through the whole thing and receive all of the blessings and dispensations of each evening if you need to. But plan on joining us at this most sacred and holy time of the year. So infinite blessings from the Buddha and from the entire hierarchy of light to each of you. I thank you for your divine service and the upcoming service the rest of this week. We thank Tor and Mama for their service, and I want to thank Rainbird for her service as well. So with that, again, I extend the infinite and amazing blessings of enlightenment, illumination, divine wisdom, and divine love and compassion to all. As I pass this talking stick, The white is that shambolic ray, that pure white light of the Buddha containing every frequency we could possibly fire. So with that, I pass the talking stick. It just contains peace, such harmony, such love. I pass it to my sister, Rainbow. Love to all of you. Thank you. Here, I'll take that talking stick. And thank you for your divine service as well. We're so grateful for this journey uh, this weekend with the Wesock full moon and that journey to the Wesock Valley. Lots of gratitude for that. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. So lots of gratitude for all of you and for joining us. And being a part of what we do here that way. And so each week we need $300 for the services from BBS Radio, and that's what we need this week. So here's how we make a contribution to the radio uh, program and our, our account there. Um, first, go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And click on Radio Station 2 or scroll down. You'll see the menu for Radio Station 2. Look at the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday for a night at the roundtable with the panel. And you'll see the icon there. You can click on that. That'll take you to our account. And likewise, for the Friday program, the 
the six o'clock hour, you can see the hard news program with Tara and Rama on Friday night. That icon there, as you click on it, will take you to the same place. In this one, this program, the true history history of Becerra at the 1.30 hour Pacific time. All of these are Pacific time. Um, yeah, with, and our galactic origins. So you click on that one, um, and that will take you to our account as well. Any one of those three options work great. And uh, thank you for your generosity, and thank you for taking that action and assisting with this. And then also, we are contributing to Tara and Rama's needs, and this is Rent Week, so it's major. It's just, And also, at the end of the month, where bills are got to be paid, and that we haven't made it to yet this month. So that's $480 for those bills. And the rent is 1150 so we're looking for a lot of generosity. <laughs> And also on Friday of next week, Rama has a um, an appointment, which is um, sacral cranial practitioner, and that's one hundred and eighty dollars for that for working with his shoulder. So those that's all happening, and so it's it's like it's a, requires all of us to reach deep and and. Uh, Again, see what we have to give, and then we can go to link to Rama's PayPal account and make that donation. So the the way to link to the PayPal account is through the website. That website address is www.rainbowroundtable.com. I mean .net, rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you can click on that men, menu bar and see the donate link is situated near the bottom of that list. So you click on that. That'll link you, link you directly to Rama's PayPal account. And uh, so there's you can make your donation that way. And if you have your own PayPal account, you can link to the friends option. And the way to do that is through uh, listing Rama's email on from your, from your site at PayPal. So that email at PayPal for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And then as you put in the amount you're gifting, there will be a window drop down. has the word change. Click on that. That links you to the friends option. So either way is perfect. However you want to do that, we're grateful for your, your donations and your contributions and all the ways you show up in your life. So lots of gratitude for you. Um, and let's see, yes, as you're sending something, we need to let Rama know. And that email address for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. So let them know when you sent it and how much you sent. And um, and then as you need it, the, the physical address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box, 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567. So again, Post Office Box, 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. 
Well, lots of gratitude for your participation. So, um, what else do you need? Yes, um, let's just give you the Shop Free Mart site as well. So that is, as you wish to join Shop Free Mart, if you want to go there to this site and look around, you can join from there and then order from your own account. As you set it up, it costs nothing to set up an account or to maintain an account. So there's not any obligations that way. Pretty simple to participate in. That address, https colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. So that's the link for going there and visiting and looking around and joining from there. That's how you do that. So it's, it's account number 7000, which is definitely amazing. <laughs> so you know you're at the right place. You're there. And it is listed as 2013 RB, Rainbow Round, or RT, Rainbow Round Table. So there you go. And again, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, log life, no evil. And um, I'm passing this talking stick to you. Tara and Rama, greetings. This talking stick it just has that amazing white light and, and then all the rays and is and it's full of transformation and peace and blessings of Wisak. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. Happy Wiesak, happy full moon. Yes, and uh, there's a few nameless ones that Rama received a message from living in the Wiesak Valley for getting ready for all how this. How many years now? Uh, I can't remember. Seven, eight. A long time. <laughs> I mean, I can't keep track. Anyway, with about 20,000 refugees from all over the world. This time it's 30,000. 30,000? Yeah. That's many more that came. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Rama, go ahead and tell your story. How past this talking stick? Wow. And they're praying and spinning the, um, prayer wheels and calling in the Galactics and Lord Maitreya and the Ascended Masters uh, that come and gather at this time in the Wiesak Valley with their ships and their um, delegations from the galaxies and kind of uh, custom discuss how we're going to figure this story out here with the Energies of the Violet Flame and uh, the Ascended Frequencies. And um, they just shared right at this time with all the focus on what has happened with George Floyd, Mr. Brown. I don't know how many names to go into at this time. And... It is about the larger story that Dr. Greer talks about, that when we have the consciousness, we can connect with 
beings all across this local universe and some of the beings swim in the ocean, some fly, some walk on land, some crawl, and we're all related. <laughs> sure this, are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this story is so huge. And on another note, how this ties in, I got to talk with Senator Peter Wirth, who is um, a state senator of New Mexico, a good guy Democrat, knows Tom Udall. Only Peter Wirth goes one step further. He knows about the chemtrails and the geoengineering. And he's been kind of quietly gathering folks around him and talking about this and what these things are doing. He knows our friend Clifford Carnicom and Ilana Freeland, and she has a book out there. She's on YouTube. Um, it's called The Space Fence. Total dominance and, you know, geoengineering and how they're spraying us like bugs with stuff that I don't even know the names of. And Peter Wirth knows about how they want to try and detect the warp signatures of starships that are in our skies, in our atmospheres that are cloaked. And then they can target them with their F-16s and supposedly knock them out of the sky, yet I don't think so. What's her name, Rom? Alana Freeland. Okay, wow, that's a good name. Yeah, she's up in the northwest, like Clifford. And um, it's... Somewhere up there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yet... More and more is coming out about this stuff. And I saw a story today that there are more spherical-shaped ships around the sun, not just one. And this has to do with what's going on with our sun. In the last few days, there's been solar flares and I saw something on the Soho website or space, uh, space weather. They called it a solar tsunami. And it's like this in the picture or the animation. It looks like this giant solar flare that comes out and sends plasma out across space heading towards Earth. And that gets pulled into our atmosphere by our electromagnetic field. And let's say if it's strong enough, it can short out the electrical grid. Yet the galactics are protecting us with their force fields and stuff. And it, it is quite a cosmic dance that's going on right now. As all of this comes out, I mean, this is as big a, an adventure story like Avengers and Star Wars and then some. And it's about us. It's so huge. And Peter Worth is kind of getting into these realms 
because we're talking about sci-fi stuff. How do you describe to simple farmers that there's a war going on in the atmosphere and in space, kind of, and at this time, this is why I got to say, Lord Maitreya is showing up with all the folks. So, war, no more troubles. I passed the talking stick. Well, you got to talk a little more while I'm taking a few notes, Commander. Tell the people other things that are going on, honey. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Um, this story about, uh, oh, um, Joe Biden today denounced the genocide in Armenia and Mr. Erdogan kind of promptly trashed the Americans and said, you know, the pot calling the kettle black. Mr. Erdogan is just as much a genocidist as Uncle Joe blazed by the fire. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know how to describe or, you know, the PTSD that comes up when I think about that. It's just Thanos, Avengers, Endgame, half the universe wiped out. We're not going to go there. It's over. And... um well, we're having some symptoms of the ones that don't want to accept that it's over for them. That's right. This is what all this police shooting and killing of black people is about. Yeah, the pot has been stirred as Gaia Vaiwama's mother, all that is, is saying, spring is here. Demeter, Cerise, Astarte, I don't know all the names, but I could just say it, it is time for the return of the goddess. These guys that have problems with headlight, taillights, and I'm trying to be polite, I won't <laughs> go in there with Bill Maher, but it is about sex, and sex is never sex, money is never money. It's always something else. As you learn how to bring it up and make love, it's not about rape. Rape is a tool of war. It's over. I got to put it that way. Yeah, except as we're saying, the ones that are promoting this more and more, including that hologram or something that's called Joe Biden. <laughs> yes. Continuing. To it is in that way where what we just must say is as we the people represent true government. You know, the corporation is not we the people. Peter Work today, I'm just gonna say this and blaze the violet fire. He's kind of putting himself out there as Someone who is just saying, you know, it's time. The truth comes out. And, you know, like Dr. Greer has said, so many folks have died in the name of bringing the truth forward concerning our galactic friends. And it shouldn't be that way. And shoulda, woulda, coulda, 
It's about raising it higher in the context where this is happening whether the dark side likes it or not, and they're going to have to comply. Uh, yes, but it's happening with love and gentleness and acceptance yeah. and all the qualities of kindness and generosity and understanding, overstanding, understanding, so that we don't take it on. Correct. And language is really, really important, the language yes. we use. And it's really good to honor each other. We can have fun, but let's not separate ourselves and you know the us and them thing which is always what the TV does yeah and that's you know in a context because the the men in black sort of infiltrated Hollywood and all the stories things are a little muddied in the waters and um Place by the fire, I passed the talking stick. Well, I was going to say, though, that the kinds of movies that are coming out now, we're going to, the Oscars tomorrow, everybody. Yes. Uh, there's nine uh, people of color nominated. That's the most diversity, you know, from white male. Awards, Oscar awards primarily. It's like there's a fairly dramatic increase in diversity in the nominations. So this should be really worth watching. And despite the noses on the faces of the C blank A, there are so many bringers of light that have come into the Hollywood team with so many gifts that it's working. It's just working. So what else? This is the divine feminine, the ability to receive love. And we're so Pavlov's dog trained to believe that something we think we don't in the sense that the programming of polarity has been very embedded. So we stay with that power of the positive thought, and you can get very funny, too, without getting down in the gutter, please. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. And that's really a critical time that we're in for that to be happening. Ah, So what else? Um, There's some serious situations going on. I mean, today, um, a ceremony for DMX. Yes. And all kinds of people came to stand, you know, as the, uh, as the hearse went by and the funeral protection. The only family went to the inside, but I'm just saying that's another one that we want to Remember here, who else, Rama, what else? Oh, Andrew Brown Jr., 40 years, 
what's being noticed is that they're refusing to take the camera video and make it public. And, uh, and also this was under the watch of the sheriff. And so, and, and the regular police are trying to separate themselves from the sheriff which it's all one thing, but they don't want to be identified with it. And the implication is that something was very wrong with the situation. Um, I did comprehend that Mr. Brown, he, uh, he has a record of, fleeing from the police officers. Mm. He's got quite a long record of that. Yet I don't blame him in the sense of the fact that um oh my god. No, no blame. No, no blame. It. Uh it's just that the nature of what's the setup for people of color. Uh it's so unequal is the good word to put together with. And again, um, there's no comprehension. There's little comprehension in terms of people who don't have that situation of the color, different color of the skin. It's not easy to comprehend. I just wanted to say, though, that uh, he was unarmed. And... One of the police officers, I heard a little something, was telling him to put the gun down. And it was very obvious that he didn't have a gun. So, again, it's a setup. In other words, what's going on is these uh, characters in the sheriff's county, their office, planned this. Literally planned it. And so, um, not only did he not have a gun, uh, they shot him in the back. And I mean they, multiple police officers, simultaneously shot him in the back. And I think they said there were ten bullets in his back. So it's a slam dunk in the sense that this was 100% homicide is what they said. It has nothing to do with, there's no debate. You understand uh, how, yeah, so the body cam footage is scheduled to be very telling. I'm just going to say it send a whole lot of unconditional love to that situation. And mother keeps on saying no more violence. And of course, (laughs) Yes, and and that means the accountability process is not going to have any violence involved in it at all. And the stripping away of the veil is huge. Going underground today, the former ambassador to the UN from England, during the time of Tony Blair, was the first guest, and it was horrendous. Uh, we're far enough along here, you know, we're far enough along here that uh, we can absolutely tell 
how many lies are going on in the conversation. And I'll just say Ashin Ratansi has been a very skillful, uh, very British, uh, you might say Arab, uh, that has uh, made himself very well known for being fair and balanced and clear and Every time there was this huge lie that went on, he was he just said this and this and this denied these things, and he didn't get into a, a tiff or anything. And the other character with the British accent was pretty clever in covering himself up. But I will just say, the people shall be representing themselves here every day. And may the energies of higher light, you know, that we who know and understand and have been promoting <clears throat> with our own lives, this change with working with these higher frequencies. May that example that we set, each one of us, really make a difference in the world. And I think maybe we should do our... Cry on for day, don't you, today, don't you, Rama? Okay, yeah. Um, this is called, watch, watch this video before it's deleted. <laughs> well, is it Sandy Dial? No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, let's just say, uh, you know, the, Forces of light are here. Expect us. Here we go. Uh, Got to turn it up. Hello, everybody. My name is Lee Carroll. Welcome to the first installment of The Journey Home. Now, this is a story... Softening your body in the chair. Just let it support you. Let the feeling of breath and body become one. Let the softness of the love in the room surround you and fold you and bring you deeper into that space of you that beautiful angelic soul that came here to this planet this garden of Eden to reawaken the light to reawaken the hearts of humanity to give and receive love to know the depth of your spiritual lineage reaching backwards and forwards in time to the other side of the veil to be enveloped by the honoring and the timeless love of Christ.
This revolutionary dental device is giving peace of mind for less than $100. It helps get rid of plaque. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. This morning, I said I know who's here. I also said I know where I am. I would like to speak to those in the chairs once again. It's going to be two subjects tonight. Neither one of them will be that long. But first, I want to talk to you who live here. We find ourselves in what you would call Eastern Canada. And the attribute of this place is well known. And that is it gets cold here. <laughs> If you have followed my channeling, I have told you about the cycles of the planet and the fact that you are beginning one now. The climate change that you see is absolutely normal. It is not something that this planet has brought upon itself through things that it has put in the air. I'll say it again. The things you put in the air are liable to kill you. Not the plan. The cycles that you see that you haven't been part of because you haven't lived long enough are here again. This is provable. The climatology people, especially those not invested in any kind of mythology or politics, will see it in the ice cores, in the tree rings planet goes through a natural cycle and the cycle is cold we have called it a mini ice age to alert you to the fact that it's not a big one it's happened before and when it does there are attributes that you should know about it gets cold and stays cold It gets colder than normal. Yeah. It gets so cold that ice storms might occur constantly. Now I've given you this prediction and it's not an esoteric prediction. It's telling you what the scientists are seeing. Skip the dentist? Not today. He's my miracle child. And yet there's very little action. We've given you some advice because we know it's coming here. Now you can wait 15 to 20 years to say crying was right, we should do something. Or you can start now looking at this. It's an irony. That hydro, the way you make your electricity itself, is going to be the thing that's going to make your grids fail. 
Freezing ice will stop the grid. Failures that cannot be resolved in a day or two or three. Power lines that go down and cannot be restored because an ice storm lasts for a month. Is it possible? Yes. This will not be the end of this city. It's simply a cold time. If you prepare for it, dear ones, you'll be fine. Already, you have so many things in place. Tunnels that take you between buildings. Trains that will take you safely from one place to another, no matter what the weather. But what are you going to do about the fact that your grids will fail? There's a number of you who are locals here that have seen this very profoundly. When you'll have specifically an ice storm, you can't go anywhere. Freezing rain will not let you walk on the sidewalk. You have only one option, stay put. What if that sustained itself over a week or so? And the electricity went out. Do I have to paint a picture? You must change the way you make electricity. Dear ones, it's here. It's already here. It's on the planet. It's been invented. I challenge those listening to this who live in this area or the provinces that are around you. Listen to this. There are ways of making electricity, not hydro, that are only for city blocks or neighborhoods. Not long ago, Rita Levy Montalcini celebrated her 103rd birthday. And then during the... So that if one fails, you can simply get your way next door. You won't have to wait for the utilities to bring hydro back because they can't and they won't be able to. It will be beyond the technology to restore this during an ice storm, during freezing rain. But you always get next door. We've also said this, although it may be against your laws to use a wood-burning stone stove, there is no law against using one during the emergency. So you can own one and not use it and still be lawful. I would encourage you to own a wood-burning stove. You understand what I'm saying? It's coming. And what is coming is so beautiful for Gaia. Gaia goes through these cycles on a regular ongoing basis in order to restore certain kinds of natural life on this planet. You may think the reefs are dying and that you're responsible. Until you look at a cycle before humans were here and the reefs died before the cycle. It is part of the way the oceans work. It's always accompanied by a warming cycle before it. Glaciers will then recede like they have in the past and they will come back 
like they have in the past. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. Knowing this is coming, you can prepare this province and those around you so that you will sail right through it. You know it's coming. It's just going to be cold. Here we are in April, and it's snowing. What a coincidence! You understand what I'm saying? That's the first subject I wanted to give you because I sit among you, dear ones. Don't let this surprise you. Don't let this surprise you. And if you doubt me, wait a while. Listen to what some of the scientists are going to say. It will be here. At its height, the cycle: fifteen years, maybe seventeen. That's how long you have. You will have some of the coldest and warmest winters in the next few years, but in general, what you're going to see more cold, lasting longer than ever before. It's not bad news. You have time. The greatest news is that, dear ones, you decided as a human race to stay. Evolve with a consciousness that's going to need a planet that thrives with the life you need, for your food, for all the other things you need. The cycle will provide that. It always has. The oceans revitalize themselves. Here is the subject I promised to talk about. How old are you? <laughs> I'm going to give you some basic truths. If I could title this, it would be. Do you like eating meat sticks, like jerky and Slim Jims? If so, then you should know. Chances are, using consciousness to extend life. If I ask you how old you were. You would do something extremely linear. You wouldn't ask your body. Who knows? You would count years from your birth. That will tell you your age in years. But it doesn't really tell you your lifespan. Interesting, isn't it? That in history there were times. When the average lifespan was not above 40, today you're measuring it at about 80 or so. Does your body know that? How old are you? Meaning this: Where are you in the expectancy of how long you're going to live? And then I ask the question: Who is doing the expecting? All of this to give you some information. Your lifespan is not determined by a scientist or by data collected anywhere. What you have done most of your life is to simply exist, exist, and be told about your life expectancy. This then gives you an idea of where you are. In the scheme of how long you may live. Now turn the page, as my partner said. The human body itself 
is designed to live hundreds of years. The design is to live hundreds of years. And the reason it doesn't today is because consciousness is not raising to that level that believes that it will be past 80 years. The design is hundreds of years. Now, if you ask the body how old you are, it will know. And it won't count years. Forensically, there are tests in the levels you have, perhaps even of homocysteine and others, where your body will say, here is how old I am. Interestingly enough, those levels, when tested, might even go backwards. Because remember, it's chemical. It's measuring the health of you. And somehow, the body knows from birth to that place where you won't function anymore, it can then tell where you are. How old are you? You have no idea. You have to ask the body. Now, if the body can do that, what is it measuring? Is it possible that you could influence it? What if you determine how old you are and your life expectancy completely and totally apart from any scientific research or number of years you've been here? What drops blood sugar faster? Prescriptions such as metformin or eating health? Many of you already know what I speak of. There are those old souls sitting in front of me who know about what I'm talking. And they will say, my body tells me that I'm far younger than the years that I've been on the planet, which is simply a measure from statistics. I want you to get this very clear. If this is the case, how could you then be younger than your years? What if somehow you reset the body clock by what you think, by how you act? Then comes this statement. Dear ones, what you think controls when you're going to die. Did you like that? No one likes to talk about that time of death. Inevitable. You've gone through it over and over and over. Inevitable. Why not extend it? Why do you have to then go through what some chart says? I'm going to give you right now some truths. Profound truths. Don't be surprised if science comes again later and says, well, we've made some wonderful discoveries you won't believe. And I want you to turn to this channel and listen to it again, because I'm giving it to you today. Life expectancy is completely and totally controlled by consciousness. Period. Life expectancy 
is completely and totally controlled by consciousness. There will be the the ones who would argue this. And they say, why is it that you think, cried I, that you can think your way past disease? What you think has nothing to do with what a human might catch along the way. A disease that might attach themselves to you. In a place where there are certain diseases that are everywhere. (laughs) You're not getting it. If you are one of the intellectuals who will give me that argument. What if I told you this? I'm going to give you four things to think about. That can change your life expectancy. What if I told you this? That a higher consciousness human being will not catch the disease because the cellular structure will see it coming will know what to do about it it will not attach itself (laughs) is that too much so you see consciousness has everything to do with disease when you speak of healing how do you explain some things that you see all over the planet How do you explain the spontaneousness of healing? The remissions that happen so fast where disease just goes away. Could it be that the consciousness of the human being in a moment of sacredness says, I don't want this to be this way. I want to stay. And the whole body obeys it. (laughs) And the disease goes away. Did you ever think that those miracles were self-created by a human being. What power you have in the way you think. Number one, who are you? You are a product, often, of what your parents said you were. Who they said you could be or not. So many of you came from wonderful upbringing, and many of you did not. What did they tell you? Before you had any choice, what did you see? What did you experience that would give you an idea of who you are? Were you told you could do anything? Were you told you could do nothing? This may become controversial. I will add it in anyway. When you got old enough to make your own decisions, did you? When you went to that sacred place in the building where you would worship every weekend, what was your reaction when they told you you were born dirty? Who are you? Do you believe you came here to suffer? Do you believe that suffering is what God wants you to do? No. If you do, that's what you were told. Many of you awakened into self-awareness and started figuring it out yourselves. Well, it's not exactly as I was told at all. My, My parents didn't tell me that I could do this. Wow. Wow. And here I am doing it. 
Some of you have healed your own bodies. Wow, who told you you could do that? Your body will react. Listen, listen, your body. Oh, there's somebody who needs to hear this right now, right in this room. Your body will react to who you think you are. If you're nothing, you won't be with us that long. If you're here to suffer, your body hears that and says, "Well, it's time to suffer." Mm. Who are you, really? Who are you? What if you could sit up and say, "I am magnificent. I'm a creature of the central source." I have a soul in me that's going to last forever. That's who I am, and I'm going to be here as long as appropriate. Body, are you listening? Then the body starts to have more energy. The body listens to you. You might actually hear a meeting in your cells going. Did you hear that? <laughs> We can we can live a lot longer. Did you hear that? That fear, the disease, that's crazy. It's not coming. Did you hear that? We can chase away what is bothering us because the human is in charge. The sacredness of you is in charge of you. That's the basic truth. That's number one. Who are you? If you're anything but magnificent, dear ones, why? Who told you? Think about it. Who told you that you were not magnificent? And you will say, "Well, it's somebody I trusted. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they still don't." I want you to sit there and listen and understand. This is real. Number two. Think about your past. I gave a channeling recently where we challenged you to forgive everything that's ever happened to you in the past that would give you anxiety or hurt or heartbreak. That was that channel. This one's different. Oh, but they're related. Tell me about your past. And if I sat next to you. And you began to tell me what would it sound like? Oh, Kryon! Oh, I'm glad I'm here today, but oh, woe is me! I've had a past that was just awful. I've had things happen to me you don't want to know about. I've had people trick me. I've had my heart hurt. I've gone through horrible things to get to this place. So why don't you just add? And I'm gonna die soon, because <laughs> you will sooner than you should. That's the point. If I say, "Tell me about your past," you say, 
There's been some challenges along the way and my magnificence got me through all of them. Because I know where I'm from. I know who I am. Yes, there were some disappointments, maybe even a betrayal or two. That is their problem, not mine. I have recovered so completely. I didn't suffer. Because I know who I am. I've walked through this planet with old energy to get to this place because I know what I'm doing. I'm magnificent. Is that your past? And if it isn't, can it be? Can you rethink the way you talk to others about things that have happened to you? And frame them in a positive way so your body can listen to the fact you didn't come here to suffer. You didn't. You may think you suffered in the past. That is a word you're using. Reframe it. You got through it because you're magnificent. Because of the magnificence, you're not going to have to go through it again in any lifetime. Did you know that? An awakening Akash will tell you those things to watch out for. That is your magnificence evolving to something even greater. That was number two. Think about this. How do you think about your past? Number three, how do you think about your future? You knew that was coming. In the Romo household, we take things to the max. Oh, yeah. Honey, you still in bed? Yep. Bye. That's why we love Skechers Max Cushioning Football. They've maxed out the cushion for extreme comfort. It's like walking on cloud. Big comfy ones. Well, there are some who have said, well, if it's anything like the past, it's not going to be very pleasant. <laughs> we'll say goodbye to you soon. You'll be right. Yep. And there are so many who are so afraid of the future, they're not going to go there. They are targeting with consciousness every cell of their body and saying, well, we probably shouldn't be here. And your body is listening to everything you say. Do you know the future? Of course not. But can you send light in front of you on that railroad track you see of every day, every day? Can you put light there so that all you see is light? Tomorrow, what are you going to have? I have light. And the next day, I'm not there yet. But tomorrow, I have light. When I get up the next day, I'm going to have light. Because I am a light worker and I'm magnificent. And I, I spread light wherever I walk. That's who I am. And my future will reflect that. And the body's going to go, wow, with that, you're going to live a long time. Let's all cooperate. Your DNA is programmed to listen to consciousness. Did you hear that? The genes that the DNA makes are programmed to listen to you. What are you telling them about your future? Is it fearful? Are there ways that you can frame that which you say about even the things that come at you which are perhaps the most challenging? That you could reframe them in a way that says, and I'm going to walk right into it with my light and come out the other side just fine. I'm going to be here a long time. 
Let me tell you what happens internally. With a cellular structure that's advanced enough to be listening to a higher consciousness. Let me just tell you. Inside, there is a system, a process. It even involves the immune system. That is going to start changing and hardening. That's where the disease will not attach to you. Because it knows you're going to be here and you have work to do. It knows you're working in the light. And it knows that's why you're here. An entire cellular structure that knows what you're thinking and saying. And will extend your life years past what any doctor says. Number four. I've changed them. I've changed the order. I was going to put this first, and now I'm putting it last before we close. And it's hard to describe. I sat in Hawaii some months ago. I told you of the grandness and the beauty of the teachings of the Pleiadian. I told you of a teaching wheel they had, just a template they used to, to teach the basics of humanism, of life. And one of the five spokes of the teaching wheel had to do with life extension. And it hides because you don't expect it. I told you that the children we didn't spend a whole lot of time on that. But as it got older, it did. How do I tell you this? I once channeled that of the things that pass through the veil untouched, one of them is laughter. <laughs> If you get to the other side of the veil, do you laugh? <laughs> Constantly. In your own way. You might say that the name you have in light shimmers with joy and laughter. Constantly. That's what compassion does. It frees you and makes you so peaceful that you just want to burst out in song and laughter and joy just like you did when you were a child and didn't know any better. When you were a child and had no worries of the earth. You didn't have to worry about anything except how long you could play. And you giggled at everything. You'd walk along the street and see an insect and you'd laugh at how cute and funny it was. You'd gaze at the sky in so much innocence and smile and wonder why it was always blue, but it was so beautiful. Even when it snowed, <laughs> the first snow was magical. Can you remember the first time you saw the diamonds on the leaves in that morning sun? It was so mystical and magical. 
and you just wanted to burst out in laughter. Dear ones, how do I say this? If you don't still have that, your body knows it. You're not going to live as long as you like. That child within is not something subtle. It's either there or it isn't, and if it isn't, you've got to find it through your magnificence so you can have joy and laughter, and it should be the first thing that happens, not the last thing. When you walk into a situation you've never been, is there a smile on your face or is there a frown of fear because you don't know where you are, you don't know how things work? You go into a, a government building where you're going to have to fill out a lot of forms. Where is the inner child? What if it was right there? Look at all the forms. <laughs> Next, Rama. Oh, okay. I use the uh, commercials to contemplate that little five-minute piece that he said before the commercial, everybody. You'll just ignore the commercials and use it that way. But this is a big deal. The body's been designed to live hundreds of years. Thousands of years. That's right. We know a dear sister who's 20,000 years in that body. Here we go. Hi, everybody. Thanks for watching this. I wanted to tell you this is a little time sensitive. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. I want you to feel everything that's possible in three dimensions to feel. These particular channels on these workshop days are different. I speak to seekers, those who would stay and ask the questions that you ask. If you take a look around you, you'll see all ages. The awakening process is not for young people, it's not for seniors, it's for humans, and it's happening. If I could take you on a journey to show you who you were, I would. But many of you are starting to discover it. It's an expansive journey when you really truly understand what has happened and who you are. My partner is wondering what I'm going to say. He often gets a snapshot because while he is tethered in another place, he is one with me. He feels the message come in as it does. He remembers what has been said. Many don't. But right now, he's not seeing the message. And the reason is this particular message is not one that's been giving totally verbally. 
I want you to see who you are. I want you to feel it. Right now. Dear human being, you have been through so much. I would like to address you right now. I'm addressing the higher self of every single one of you. The one who knows me from where I am coming from because the higher self is part of the same central source as I am, as you are. The oneness of God right now is in your lap. I address the higher self because I want to address the akash of every single one of you. The humanism that you have been is not this lifetime. All of you in the room have been both genders, and you know it. All of you in the room have had the experiences of going through dark, dark energy, slogging through that which is so amazingly dark. Coming through the ages, that's who you are. And trying to figure out your relationship to a higher source. I want you to look at this for a moment. This is who you are. Forget who you are in the mirror. Forget it. That's not who I see. That's not who God sees. The peace of God that is in you is all part of everything. The human that you are is separated from this temporarily. But not right this second. I want you to feel this. I want you to feel the magnificence that you are. I want you to feel the sacredness that you are. And maybe this is the time for an overwhelming truth and beauty to settle in you so much that you'll never forget this feeling of who you are. So that no matter what happens in your life, there won't be frustration because you know who you are. You'll understand how small your fears are and your anxieties are compared to what you've been. I want you to stay in this place. I know that your intellect cannot possibly understand and see all the lifetimes, but you can feel it. Emotionally, you're free to feel this. Your intellect cannot identify what you're feeling. But you can still feel it. I want you to feel free. I want you to feel free of the petty worries that you have or the the realizations that you've gone through, the issues that you deal with, just for a moment. Because if you can feel this with me, as this entourage gathers around, around you right now, and presses upon you truth. You can feel it with me. You're going to be able to carry this for the rest of your life. We do not blame humanity for what it has done with God. We cannot. 
You seek your own level. Your consciousness as a human race has decided where it would go. We cannot be in judgment of free choice. But where it has gone has been to view everything by only what it has experienced. Therefore, God is far beyond anything it has experienced. And we say yet again that all of your models of divinity are as high as you can think based upon a human paradigm. Everything you have, which is the highest of the high, is only as high as you can think a human can go. <laughs> you really don't know God. Mm -hmm. When you can feel us, do you understand the difference? Mm -hmm. If you can't figure us out, and you can't really figure out divinity in you, you still can feel it. Let me ask you, human, have you figured out love yet? Mm. Have you itemized it and categorized it and boxed it yet? Can you take love and, and, and apply physics to it? No, no. You can't because you can't. It is not figure outable mm. with 3D. It's the same with God. It's the same with the seed of creation in you. I want to suspend a moment in time right now where you become expanded and larger than you are. Everything you've been told about God in your life is probably only a small portion who you really are. This is changing. You look at who God is to the earth and it's still in a box, is it not? An energy in a box. And you still wonder, how long can humanity sequester the divine to a box? You report to the box and they tell you all kinds of things and rules. And you leave the box. <laughs> and you say, well, God is there. I'm not, I'm not worthy. You're born dirty. All of the things that are so much human thinking. An evolved idea is starting to occur to the earth about divine things. You're going to start seeing it in the young people because they're going to refuse to report to the box, any box, anywhere. No matter what the culture is, even the one in Israel, <laughs> yeah. they're going to start questioning the box. They're going to question the rules and they're going to start asking to feel who God is. Mm -hmm. And old soul, you got the upper hand right now. Because you can feel it. Mm -hmm. In the feeling is the teaching. Don't use your intellect to figure out this message right now. Just be with me. Be with me. The feeling is the teaching. 
Because as you feel God inside and you know you are so expanded and who you really are on this planet and what your soul has been through, you are master shamanic teachers to all around you. The compassion you can have from this is of the masters. Stay with me. Don't think about anything else right now. Just stay with me. Is it possible that you're really that big? And the answer is yes. What is this all about if not? If not that, then what? What do you feel? If not that, then what? Stay with me. Don't use your intellect. (laughs) The emotions of compassion and the feelings that you are able to feel right now of a love that is for you. It tells you you're not broken. You're just right. You're ready to go. This is perfect. If you can feel that right now with me, when you leave this room, it's still there. Do you understand this? This is the implant. (laughs) You're implanting yourself with the truth of who you are. It's different now than it was even 20 years ago. For in this energy, you are going to receive so much more truth about the the expanded soul that you are. That your life is so much bigger than you think. Your life is the payoff of all the lives that you've been before. And that which used to be and who you used to be is starting to, I would say, infuse itself into you. It's the wisdom of all the past lives. I've talked to those who are from many cultures. I know who you are. I know your name and light. I know why you're here. This piece of God that speaks to you now is allied to the one inside you. Every problem you think you have and that you do have, I've been part of. I've been there when it took place. I've been there since you were born. We all have. The entourage has. God has. Because there's a love for you. It is beyond measure. That's what I want you to feel. You are one of us. Family, one of us. I want you to start understanding there's no separation between the Almighty God and you. And how can I put this even more clear than it is? That's what I want you to feel. There is an expansion going on, and some of you are fighting it. Some of you are fighting it. Some of you are accepting it. <laughs> You're actually saying, bring it on. <laughs> and others of you are so surprised by it, you think something's wrong with you. I'm going to tell you, it is time to wake up. And you're doing it. You wouldn't be in this group otherwise. I am in front of seekers. 
And I want to tell you that what you are seeking is here in you. You are far larger than you think. There's nothing casual about this moment. It's just profound. If you can allow the feeling in you and the emotion to swell up in whatever way, in maturity, in purpose, in peace, when you leave this place, I want you to have something you didn't expect. <laughs> I want you to feel good about everything. <laughs> and you'll say, well, how can I, how can I feel good about everything? You can if you understand the big picture. Why not? It's inside you. You have reached a point, old soul. That is the payoff. You got past the big one. That place in history that was the marker that said if you pass this, you're on your way. Your life is much bigger than you think. Now, I don't want to push the envelope of perception. But some of you, I want you to think even beyond today. Your Akashic record goes into the future. A record to you can only be passed. A record to us is a record of everything, including the future. All of you have lifetimes in front of you, and if I could show them to you, there would be such joy in this room, a release in this room, an overwhelming cry and peace in this room, because you'd see what's coming. You'd see a development in you. You would see the things you have always asked for in all the lifetimes you've ever had embodied in where you're going. That's the potential of the old soul. We see that. And everything you're going through right now is so small compared to that. This planet is headed for places you cannot even fathom. Immaturity. I said it before, peace on earth is a given. This is where you're headed. This is what humanity is wanting, if you notice. For the first time in history, in recorded history, overwhelmingly, you don't want war. Overwhelming. You don't want to separate and fight. Overwhelmingly. You want to find answers. Young people will rise up and demand it. If you don't give it to them. There's a phrase by a very wise person that said, what if you gave a war and nobody came? Right. That is what you are going to be faced with. Old versus new energy is already erupting on this planet. You've got a war of attitude, dark and light. Mm-hmm. Evolvement in thinking and consciousness against old energy. 
That's what you got. You're in the forefront of that. And in this room, you seekers, I will tell you, the seeking has paid off because it brings you here to hear truth. Now, what you do with it next is still free choice. I want you to feel it. Don't listen to me. Validate it right now. Number one, is it a mistake you're here? No. (laughs) Number two, are you really as big as we're saying yes? I want you to feel it. I want your answers. I'm giving you mine. Number three, is there a plan? Yes. Number four, are you part of it? Yes. Number five, is the overwhelming plan filled with benevolence, love, and purpose, and joy? Yes. You are building a new planet. Can't you feel it? Intuitively, I want you to feel your next life, young person. It's coming. You'll have plenty of time on the planet. But it's not over. And you'll be back, and you'll be back, and you'll be back. Because you're building a future that no one ever thought. No anthropologist is going to believe this. No sociologist will ever believe it. And those listening to this channel who are invested in the dark side and doom are going to be so critical of what I'm saying. So I have a message for them. When the doom doesn't happen, what are you going to do? Invent new doom? Hmm. Or maybe I'm right. Yeah. You're the forerunners of an ascended planet. And when that happens, in the far future, far, far future, I want to come back and ask you how you liked it. <laughs> As you seed another planet. Because you will be the ones who carry the seeds. (laughs) You're bigger than you think. I want you to take this with you. And don't let anybody beat it up. Don't let one human being point at you and say you got it wrong. I want you to feel it. And in the feeling, you'll know. I am crying in love with humanity. And so it is. Oh, my. Yeah, we're going to play a little music here. Just let this all sink in, everybody. You'll recognize it. It's coming. Just a moment. Do you got the sound up everywhere? Yeah. Hmm. 
Something's weird. Oh, 
Thank you, everyone. A body was designed to live hundreds of years. And we know that that's just for starters. Um, so let's see what Nassim Haramin has to say to us today. Yes, oh my goodness, everyone. The one thing he said is that, you know, relating to the vax, I mean to the virus, which is not a virus, although uh, Mr. X said they are playing around with biological and technological energies. And they're not calling it a virus anymore, they're just saying plain English that they have figured out how to play around with biological and technological energies. So what Kryon says is even more critical that you can um, remain healthy and vibrant without any situation with what those energies are with consciousness. Right, Rama? Hi. Okay, so tell us what this says. Or um, I should read it right here. This is Doncia Patrick with uh no, Nassim Don- Harmin and her her name is her name is Danika. Oh Danika. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. She went to Egypt and she got a wake up call. How big this story is, I cry on said. This is huge (laughs) and we are a part of it and as we use the force and loving presence 
everything is showing up in divine order. Let me read a little bit of this, okay, honey. Here it says, um, um, the galactical, the galactically charged Nasim Haramin. Uh, my guest today is a world leader in physics. I have been looking forward to this interview for a long time. And I made it the most, I made the most of it. So much so, we have had to break it down into two episodes. So this is just the first one, about 59 minutes or something. Is that right, Mama? An hour and five minutes. Oh, an hour and five minutes. Okay. Uh, because I recently fulfilled my dream of visiting Egypt, part one of this captivating interview is about Egypt. Nassim has spent many years researching and analyzing the secrets of Egypt. As an expert in the field of proton energy, Nassim's equations suggest untapped, boundless energy available to us. His theories can even be used to explain how it was ever possible for the Egyptian, Mayan, and Incan pyramids to exist. Could they have come from a civilization far more advanced than our own? A civilization so advanced they could control gravity and have a boundless energy source necessary for building such massive structures. I hope you enjoy this cosmic view of Egypt. Click here to watch. Here we go. I was going to do it. What do you think the story of Egypt is? Well, I think that that there was a pre-cataclysmic civilization on our planet, right? That uh, existed prior to Maya, Egypt, and Inca, and so on. Timeline-wise, where would that put it? Uh, it would be like twelve thousand years ago, prior to the last uh, the meltdown of the last ice age, with might have been this reporting all around the world of these, these ancient civilization about the great flood, right, yeah. where the the water rose. Prior to these events, there may have been a civilization on our planet that left monuments all around the world that was maybe quite advanced and advanced in a different way that we're advanced today with technology that might have surpassed what we're capable of doing today. Seems like it. I believe that each and every one of us has the power within ourselves to create the life that we really want. And I want to help give you the tools to make that happen. I'm Damka Patrick, and I'm Pretty Intense. Today on the show is Nassim Haramine. To start off our two-part series, uh, we're going to dive into Egypt. Since I just got back from Egypt, and he has so much knowledge about Egypt and ancient civilizations, where it all came from, what really happened in the science, we talked about the temples, about the pyramids, just what the heck was going on in ancient Egypt. Enjoy. I think, like, I'd like to be able to snowboard and ski. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great to If there was, snowboard. like, steep and deep, yeah. it would be fine right, right. for snowboarding, yeah. but the rest of the time... Yeah. Socially, yeah. skiing is so much more functional. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, okay, so I just went to Egypt and got back um, last week, and uh, in listening to 
more of your talks and information, I was like, oh my gosh, you know all about Egypt. This would be the perfect time to ask what the hell is Egypt all about? Because in my like recent uh, exposure, I'm like, I literally just said to myself, when people asked me how it was, I think they were expecting me to come back with some sort of like giant epiphany or some Mm -hmm. magical experience or Mm -hmm. something. And maybe I was too on some level, like maybe that'll happen, but I wasn't looking for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But all I could say when I came back is I was like, we just don't get it. Mm. Like we don't, we're not asking the right questions. Right. I'm not even sure we have the right, we know the right question to ask. Exactly. It's so gigantic. It's so, it's such a big enigma that it's actually hard to figure out like what exactly happened there and uh, how did it actually get done? Because I mean, everybody knows about the pyramids and all this. And a lot of people know about the stats of the pyramids and how they're, incredibly precise and all these things, but there's so much more, you know, you go to Saqqara, you go to the Serapium, you go to so many places, you know, uh, along the Nile and so on. And you see things that are just remarkable that Mm -hmm. are not easily explained uh, in terms of ancient civilization with copper tools and, Vine ropes with like a few hundred thousand slaves. Pulling. Yeah, right. Let's just pull that giant monolithic size stone up here and wait. That's just one of a bajillion of them that we're going to get right, up here. Exactly. And it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't. And why would you want to build like that? You know, civilizations built with the means of their technology at the time. You know, you, you know, even today we use bricks. That are easily carried, you know, from one place to the other. Wait, the giant people. Do you think it was giant people? Well, there's stories about giants from all around the world. Right. Uh, It could be that there were very large people at one point on the planet. They're, They're in the cultural myth all around the world from societies that didn't know each other. Uh, and, uh, that should not have the same ideas, you know, and then as well, you see, uh, same type of uh, architecture Mm -hmm. all around the world as well. Like why were they all building pyramids? And we're finding more and more. It's not like there's a few. There's thousands. And how many are covered right now? Exactly. How many are covered by trees and bushes and you know, you look out and you're like, that mountain looks perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, they're just uh, using new technology, LADAR technology. They're starting to map out in uh, southern uh, Mexico and Guatemala and so on, uh, the jungle. And they're finding thousands and thousands of pyramids that they didn't know was there. And they're saying, oh, my God, they must have been the population of millions of people in this region. And, um, you know, it like the conventional archaeologic explanation of, you know, these uh, kind of like um, very, you know, low technological, technologically advanced civilization um, and and low cultural, you know, advanced um knowledge is not consistent with Mm. what is being found all Mm. around the world. So, yeah, and so you got the same stories all around the world. You get the same type of architecture around the world. And when 
you look at the stories, the stories are very consistent. Uh, they talk about giants, but they as well talk about, you know, these giants, come, you know, coming from the stars. They talk about them as sun gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they talk about them coming in vessels or boats that floated in the air and so on. And so, you know, I know this is controversial, but well, when much? you look at the evidence, it's overwhelming. Are vegans healthy? Are vegetarians healthy? French fries and beer are vegan, so you tell me. But seriously, the easy part for most of my clients who go vegan or vegetarian is cutting out the meat. What they forgot. There wasn't commercials. Before we get into more specific questions. There seems to be bridges connecting science and mythology and spirituality. So how much, how much of the mythological stories do uh drive the science like where's the where's the intersection there that makes you look at something and do you even believe in it at all because being a scientist you know that's if they're stories right right but where do they come from exactly well you know if they were really scarce and they were very different across the world from each other and they didn't have any consistency and so on. You'd say, well, maybe they had a really good, in those regions, they had a really good imagination. They come up with this, all this stuff, right? But there is this thing about the consistency. And then for me, and this is certainly not the typical path for scientists, especially not in physics. Uh, for me, uh, I was very interested in archaeology. I felt there was a great mystery. Uh, and, um, I was very much interested in, in the anomalies in archaeology and, um, I could see relationship between the physics I was writing and the symbolism that was found in all these different cultures around the world, uh, left by the sun gods, you know? Um, and for me, it was like, wait, maybe there's something to learn here about the foundation of reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a tendency to live in um, what I call, like, um, uh, uh, you know, linear view of reality, right? We, we tend to be um, uh, horizontal in our view, right? We do our work every day, we go home, we do the laundry, take care of the kids, do the cooking, go to bed, start over again, right? And so we, and so it's like we have a cap and we're just looking on the surface, right? Like on, on like a linear way. And I, what I call, I call this going vertical. So like to like blow the cap mm-hmm. and then take a, like a, maybe a galactic view of Earth, right? Well, from the galaxy, Earth doesn't even show up. It's too small. <laughs> even the sun is too right. small. But like, imagine that you could like take a view from like the galactic perspective. How much possibility of life is there in the galaxy? You know, a lot. I think that it's one of the most um, egotistical things to think that we're the only existence in the universe. Right. And, and 
And then you got to ask as well deeper questions like, well, how did they all get there? Right? How did they get all there? Like, and how is it getting organized so that in some miracle, you know, a hundred trillion cells would continue to do the same thing, like duplicating exactly the right way so I can keep living, right? It's not just like, oh, it happened millions of years ago and we got like biology going. It's continuing to happen yeah. every second, right? You're dividing about a million cells a second. There's billions of chemical change that are occurring in your body continuously. There's, you know, there's this incredible dynamic of creation occurring for you to be able to sit here and look back at ancient civilization or look at physics and so on and, and wonder yeah. about the nature of reality. And so when you go vertical and you look at it from that perspective, and then you look at these ancient civilization and the symbolisms they left and the philosophy they left and all this, and you look at advanced physics, all of a sudden you start to see they converge. Huh. And that was my first gut feeling intuition early on, mm -hmm. like 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I started developing physics based on, on this understanding. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something really profound in, you know, when you go to these temples, for instance, in Egypt or in Maya country or in, in Peru and yeah. so on, there's something profound and it's not necessarily some spiritual awakening that's going to happen it's just a realization that something probably remarkable happened in what our history. What do you think that was? How were these temples built? How were the walls clad with information and the, like, there's no way somebody had a little hammer and chisel. Like, they're perfect. <laughs> I was like, do they have a stamp? Do they have a casting? <laughs> Yet the pictures are different all over. So, right? what, what is it in a, in a bigger overview? Like, what do you think Egypt, where, what do you think the story of Egypt is? Well, I think that, and we're discovering this more and more. Many, many researchers are, are working on this, but that there was a pre-cataclysmic civilization on our planet right that uh, existed prior to Maya Egypt and Inca and so on timeline wise where would that put uh, it it would be like 12,000 years ago prior to the last um, the meltdown of the last ice age which might have been this reporting all around the world of these, these ancient civilization about the great flood right yeah. where the the water rose uh, dramatically all around the world. And, and, you know, so prior to these events, there may have been a civilization on our planet that left monuments all around the world that was maybe quite advanced and advanced in a different way that we're advanced today um, with technology that might have surpassed what we're capable of doing today. Seems like it. Yes, because many of those pieces we see around the world are not something we could reproduce with mm. all of our cranes and all of our advanced CNC technology and so on. We can't take, uh, you know, like the, the statues that are a thousand ton, right? We can't take a thousand ton uh, granite or jurite statue, which is almost as hard as diamond, 
and put it in the CNC and carve the face of a pharaoh. So it's perfectly symmetric and so on. Like, we can't do that. <laughs> There's a lot of evidence that's piling up about this earlier civilization that may have left us very important pieces of information about the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness, um, and the nature of, like, advanced technology that could free humanity from... Um, from the bondage of being mm. stuck on the surface of a planet, for mm-hmm. instance, with limited resources. And we're arriving at a very important time in our evolution where we have to do something dramatic to, uh, to learn to uh, produce energy in yeah. a sustainable way, to learn to, you know, motivate, you know, move ourselves in a sustainable way mm-hmm. and so on and so on. And I think maybe some of these ancient uh, sets of knowledge are present to help us with this moment. One baseline thing that I came away with was that in exploring these temples, and we went to a ton, I mean, it was two weeks of touring. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like the Hathor temple, like there's a sort of, canal like they would call it like a birthing canal that goes down and splits right it was daytime when we were there mm-hmm. and it's dark mm-hmm. but of course they've now had to run power down there and it you know running it on the floor with lights but there's nothing on the walls about fire electricity that's right there's nothing in there to tell you like how did they see exactly. and the walls are covered with information so it's like i was in there during the day so i'm like what did they what did they do for light right that, that's a big question actually i you know it's hard to answer that question there's no you know some thoughts was that they were using mirrors of the time but mirrors of the time what does that mean? Well, well, you know, mirrors in the right angle to reflect the sun into where they were going. But, um, you know, mirrors at the time were not reflecting light very well. And they would, you know, um. it wouldn't have worked um, in some of those areas. I mean, when you go into some of the pyramids, yeah. you're hundreds of feet below the ground, yeah. you know, like the Serapium. I mean, there's all kinds of places. Under Saqqara, there's a chamber that's almost like, maybe eight story high with a with a durite box in the middle that's enormous, almost two story high durite box that um made out of sixty four, sixty two pieces, each one weighing over a hundred ton uh, over five hundred ton and so on. I mean it's just it's not conceivable that you could do it that way. And then you know I the Altar temples, uh, recently they were doing repairs on the floor and they found that there's, you know, these huge, um, uh, pillars. Yes, they're right? huge. They're huge. Gigantic. Right. Like, I mean, never mind the walls covered and everything. The pillars in all the temples are grandiose. They're yeah. gigantic. They're on the outside. They're on the inside. Yeah. And you're like that small beside it. Yeah. And it's like, wait, why did they make the ceiling so high? Right. Why are the pillars so big? Yeah. Um, Cause that'd be hard to do. Um, well, now they found uh, that it seems like there is the same pillars underneath, uh, meaning that the, the temple we see today is built on top 
of another one. That's what the guys were saying is that like they were all, all of these are built on top of old, old temples. Right. That are even older. Yes. Right. So then that would be the temples I'm talking about Mm -hmm. from the earlier Mm pre-cataclysmic. And Uh you, you see, this is where there's been some confusion in archaeology. Uh, you see that in Peru very clearly. Um, you know, we assign certain buildings and certain monuments to the Egyptian or to the Incas or the Mayas and so on. But when you actually look at these monuments, you can see what was repaired and what was original. Mm-hmm. And you can see the repairs. You are, you know, of a quality much lower than the original. And so we've assigned the same dates from the repairs to the original. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and I, when I was in Egypt and in Peru and so on, I was pointing that out to the guys. Uh, some of them being, you know, archaeologists that are well seasoned and so on. Yeah. And they were, they were noticing, you know, especially in Peru, they're, oh, now I get it. You know, Anka, pre-Anka, you know, Anka, pre-Anka. Yeah. And so, you know, um, some of the technologies that are, when, like, for instance, these walls in Anka country in Peru, which, where the stones seem to have been melted onto each other so that they're perfect, mm-hmm. very complex puzzle. Mm. Not one stone is the same. I have a picture literally like in, at Machu Picchu in the ruins and it's like a perfect like notch and it's all just like, and it's like slightly beveled edge and everything meets up perfectly. Right. And you're just like, how'd they do that? Exactly. Why? Why would it just be flat? Like if they're stacking stones, right? why do you, why you got a notch here? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And then there's, Theories that they had moles and they were like in Egypt that they were they were using limestone powder and making the blocks. Right. Um, but then you look at the pyramids and not one block is the same size. So you would have to make two million three hundred thousand moles. <laughs> you know, so that doesn't make sense, right? If you got a mold, you make them all the same and then you... And it was smooth, too. The outsides of the pyramids were smooth, right? Yeah, they were. They, they look were. like they're stacked right now as blocks and there's edges, but originally it was smooth. Yeah, that was the inner rough layer that right. we see. Uh, on, on top was a layer of uh, limestone that was perfectly smooth and perfectly... The the few box blocks that are left, you can see that yeah. the joints are perfect and yeah. so on. And that was mined to build, you know, early Cairo. You know, it was mined off the pyramid. So there's not so many blocks that remains. But yeah. The big question that I have, and let's separate them because I feel like they're different, is the purpose of the temples. And the purpose of the pyramids. Yeah. Because of course the temples were, you know, mostly all of obviously like, you know, open and there's rooms and, but they're very open. And of course there's some places you can go underneath a little bit, but, um, and there's probably even more connecting things here and there, especially when you get into Luxor and connecting certain things underground. And, and of course they, you know, the thought of the pyramids and the Sphinx and everything be connected underground. But the temples seemed to serve a different purpose. They were also 
clad with all of the stories and the rituals and the offerings and the, you know, accomplishments and everything that it's all over the place. But then you go to the pyramids and the pyramids are just the pyramid. There's nothing. There's not a thing on the wall. So the difference between the temples and the pyramids, but let's go with the temples since that's what we're talking about. What were they for? Well, I think that um, the two were connected, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. You know, they found they found underground tunnels, you know, that connect everything. I mean, and it's pervasive, meaning there's more and more tunnels being found every day, and you know, and not everything is published. You know, I was I was fortunate to be in. The presence of various, let's just say, you know, official agents. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. when I was mm-hmm. in those regions, that showed me maps of what the what's under there. That's remarkable. But this, uh, so so they seem to have been connected like a big. It just looked like a big circuit board. You know, when you look at the map, it just looked like a you. I, I, I make circuit boards in my laboratory, you know, electronic boards just look just like that with components, you know, and then connections and all this, the traces and all this. So like it, it looked like a huge resonant, you know, yeah, uh, electronic circuit yeah. that connected. And so I think the pyramids might have been a power source, mm-hmm. you see, yeah. and the temple would have been the place where the, you know, the consciousness and the spiritual awareness and all this, or the, the higher, you know, path of initiation was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, because you see science, and this is finally occurring in physics. Um, you can't really divorce consciousness from reality. Um, we are made out of atoms and protons and electrons and neutrons and, and cells and all this. And we have this thing that we call self-awareness and consciousness is kind of a weird word because it's really not well defined. You know, it's like, what is that? Right. But That's why everybody keeps writing about it. Yeah. What is it? What is it? Right. Exactly. Um, so I like to use self-awareness. It gives more of an understanding like, some kind of feedback. Mm. Um, but, uh, but so this, you know, let's say you have an, uh, an evolution in which a civilization maybe even bypasses, uh, the mechanical, like, uh, industrial revolution that we went through. Okay. And goes right to quantum entanglement. Right. And, 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 and uses it. Yeah. And uses it. Right. And, and gravity control and, you know, all this. Right. And, and that's conceivable. Right. It is. Um, it, it's not that we don't see that that's a possibility. It's just we went a very specific trajectory and it might have been a little bit of a detour. So let's say there's another civilization. That did something a little different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you see, they would arrive at a place of understanding of the physics of the universe that would include the evolution of consciousness, mm. right? That would include what we might call spirituality today, 
but that is just like physics we haven't understood yet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The nature of awareness, mm -hmm. the nature of consciousness, the nature of being able to like transcend your, you know, linear experience to like going vertical and maybe, you know, having a deeper uh, integration with the universe, right? Yep. So that you're not thinking, oh, I'm just a little thing that's kind of like separate from everything to, oh, you know, my physics, my technology and everything is showing me I'm actually part of this amazing will works of nature. And, um, you know, I'm an intricate part of it. I, I'm, I'm the universe learning about myself. Right. And that leads to a very different kind of technology. Right. It leads to a very different kind of interaction, human interaction with each other and so on. And so if you look at these ancient civilization and, and you think technology and advanced consciousness, right? You would see something like pyramids that could be power plants, right? right? So there's no writing in it because it's a power plant, right? That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. I mean, when going into the Great Pyramid and going into the king's chamber, like, it was super, there's a lot of people on this trip that were able to sort of sense different things, and there's clear everything, right? Like, uh -huh. so, but I feel frequency pretty easily. So you go into the king's chamber, and, or is it called king's chamber or tomb? Mm -hmm. King's chamber. And um, cause no, he's not living, the, the, the tombs are in the, you know, Valley of the Kings. Yeah, they never found any mummies no, in the pyramids. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so, but you go in. And the frequency is so high. Mm -hmm. And I thought these were like energy centers. Right. That's what they felt like to me mm -hmm. too, because yeah. the frequency was high. There's nothing adorning the walls. There's no mm -hmm. comfort. There's no beauty even mm -hmm. on some, I mean, it's cool. It's interesting. Right. But it's not aesthetically like somewhere you'd be like, Oh, do you want to have tea in the queen's chamber today? <laughs> yes. like, no, no. No. It's not one of those. No. no. Um, Maybe in the temple over there. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it felt like that to me too. And, you know, I had a lot of thoughts about the tops of the pyramid and like the mm -hmm. top of Kofu, the Great Pyramid, isn't even there. Mm -hmm. Do we know where it is? No. Okay. Don't. So what do you think it is? Because mm -hmm. I had plenty of thoughts about that. Oh, wow. Well, I, mean, I just had random thoughts about like, why don't we know where it is? Right. And what purpose did it serve? Why wouldn't it still be there? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, um, there is multiple depiction of, mm -hmm. there's not that many depiction, first of all, of the pyramids and all these walls that are adorned with all this aeroglyphs and all everything telling us everything about the Egyptian. There's actually nowhere where it says, Oh, and by the way, on our spare time, we build the pyramids, right? I don't even the, think there's pyramids on the wall. Like they don't even have like, no, I mean, right. That's right. So there's only a few places where they were found. And in, in those cases, which made the archaeologists think that the, 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 the cap of the pyramid was made out of gold, it shows the cap radiating light. Mm -hmm. Okay. To, of course, to an archaeologist in the 1800s, the first thought might be, oh, it must be reflective surface, could be gold, right? Right. 
I don't quite come to the same conclusion. Um, now you're a scientist, but what's your opinion? Because it's well, hard to prove these things, right? Right, yes. Um, my opinion is that the power source that, so I was privileged to be able in the, to be in the pyramid by myself for, you know, for hours in the middle of the night and I, I, I was just tuning and humming. Just, yep, yep. Toning. Yeah, toning. Yeah. Just like really too. light. Beautiful. Yeah. Just to see like how does it resonate this yeah. chamber, right? How does this cavity resonate? Mm-hmm. And it was just remarkable. Yeah. Uh, because I got goosebumps thinking about it. You did the same thing. Yeah. Because I have groups coming in and out, you know, for um, two hours at a time. But in between the groups I had these moments alone. And as soon as the group, the last people would exit the pyramid, when I was toning, all of a sudden the resonance would change. And it was just remarkable. I could feel the whole, the whole pyramid. You were talking a lot of tonnage of material. Yeah. Yeah. Resonating. And people outside said, I could hear you toning. And I'm, I'm always toning like really quietly, you know, and so it was just so. So think of the pyramid maybe as a resonating cavity, right? And think of the technology that would be very advanced, right? That would be a technology that has gravitational effects, a technology that's extracting energy from space-time, you know, very advanced technology like a warp drive or something like that. Well, that technology would be a resonance link to the structure of space-time. And I just, okay. I'm so excited today because I just finished solving these equations literally yesterday. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just blown away. We're right on time. I'm just blown away. Like yesterday, I literally, I didn't, but I felt like jumping. Oh, and, I know that's not, <laughs> oh, I mean, we can share some of whatever you want, but all we've got is coffee and tea right yeah. now. That's fascinating. I mean, yeah. share whatever you're, would like to share. Yeah, share. Well, we can talk about that. But imagine this technology being so advanced because it's tapping into the structure of reality. Yeah. Tapping into the well, that is a resonance match. It's like a radio being mm. tuned to the right frequency, mm. so that all of a sudden it's like, and then the whole pyramid is like an antenna. Right? Yep. The whole thing is just, and then those pyramids are on huge, um, uh, limestone slabs, the biggest in the world, right? Really? Yeah. I if, didn't know that. Yeah, one of the biggest. And if they weren't, they would have sunk, right? Because they're so heavy, right? So like, ah. The White House sunk like six inches, and it's much younger, right? He has the ab. What are they, aren't they called uh, abelos? What is the? What are the spear? The spire spears? The oh, at the front of the temple. Yeah. What are the? No, the in Karnak. In Karnak. What are those called? The the, the uh, they're like the spire. Obelix. Obel- Obelix. Yeah. Obelix. Yeah. Uh, the one in DC is from Egypt. Right. Well, no. well, okay, sorry. I just had to mention that because I thought that was fascinating. I'm there's like, one in the London. Oh, there's God. one in England. Uh, yeah, in London. There's one in France, in Paris, right? And then there's a replica in DC, right? Did they make some kind of grid? <laughs> yes. Well, 
I think at the time they were definitely antennas at the entrance of the temple. Yeah. So that because these things are highly tuned. You know the one in Karnak that's still standing? Yeah, yeah. It's that thing right is there, huge, it? yeah, right? It's huge. So it's like five hundred ton made out of granite. It's perfectly straight. Yeah. Right? They didn't miss like a beat. There's right? things designed into that too. And it's clad with information. Exactly. All the way up. And when you look closely, it's perfect, right? It's perfect. And there's many that are fallen, mostly because the Europeans tried to take some to bring back to London and, and, and France. And they tried to take the big ones at first and they realized they couldn't take those <laughs> because they were too big. But when they fell them, they broke and stuff. But basically, you can go to the nose of one of those and hit it. And the whole thing resonates like a, like a tuning, tuning fork. fork. Yeah, exactly. So now think of what I was telling you about the pyramids, this power wow. source that's resonating the whole thing. It's on a huge, you know, it's on the earth crust ringing, right? And then all the obelisks at the temple are capting the signal, right? And Free you energy. Know, yeah. This is their, like, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you look at, like, the onk, right? I had to wear my flower of life because I want to talk about, because I had this made because I've always resonated with the flower of life. Um, but the onk being, like, mm-hmm. looking like the Nikola Tesla, right. you know, coil. Coils, and it's yeah. like, they are, pic- like, pictures of them holding an onk all the time. And I get it's right. the original cross is the sort of, you know, whatever possibility, of course. And, but then what is, is it also energy? Was this also part of their energy? System? Yeah. I mean, the, the original cross thing is, I think, inaccurate because, you know, right. like they hadn't used, they hadn't transformed it into a torturing device yet. <laughs> okay. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I just, yeah, but, but you can uh, think of a... So what was it then? Okay, it's not, it's not the original cross. Then what was it? Why are people holding that in every picture? Right. Why is, why is, why am I wearing this? Exactly. They might have been technology specific. Like I was saying, you know, you have to think of the technology in a different way than yeah. when you think of technology mechanics today and stuff like that. It's, it's probably a different level of technology that we don't well understand. But for instance, the pyramids are made of mostly silica, right? Like this is, it's a huge crystal, right? And we, we use crystals in our technology today because they oscillate, oscillate well, right? So they're in our computers, in our phones and everything else. Like all microchips are running off these little crystal waivers. The amount of information, it's, from what I understand, you can. There's a lot of information that can be held in a crystal, right? Well, yeah, Is that that, true. Well, it depends how you define information. Uh-huh. Yes, but it, we definitely use oscillating crystals uh-huh. in all of our electronics. Okay. Right. So, so imagine a civilization that's using an oscillating crystal, crystal, but it's the size of a pyramid, right? So then the power source, source that's oscillating that thing is a different level of energy than our little batteries in our computers and, or, you know, so. Also in your pineal gland, it's crystals in the pineal gland, right? That's right. right. Yes. There's, there's liquid crystal in the, yes. Uh, We're like our own obelisk. Yeah. Obelisk. Obelisk. Yeah. Obelisk. I don't know why I can't remember that. Yeah. You can, uh, you can imagine 
the body as being a bio crystal oscillator. And certainly all your bones are piezoelectric like crystals. When you walk, they, you know, they produce electric fields and, you know, there's, uh, this is why if you go in space, you start deteriorating if you don't have gravity because you need that piezoelectric effect, you know, to uh, keep all your tendons and your muscles activated and so on. And so it's really, you know, like I said, all of a sudden, if you reach the vertical level of technology, if you think about right. it, what it could be, then it starts to all kind of come together, right? Right? Maybe they weren't just thinking of energy as electric fields to light up something, which they might have been able to do in a way that didn't require wire. Right. Um, like my which Nikola Tesla invented. did as well. Yes, yes. Wireless transfer of energy is absolutely possible. Has been reproduced, but. Um, but you can think as well as uh, maybe they were energizing the human crystal, you know, right. as well, that they were bringing, you know, high level of coherency and so on. Maybe they could extend life, you know, maybe uh, maybe they could regenerate, regenerate uh, cells and so on. And, and that might explain as well their huge uh, uh, later in the dynasty intent on trying to preserve the crystal of the body, mm. right? Because when you look at how they embone, which we don't understand in right. modern uh, uh, chemistry today, how they embone the body so that they would preserve so well and so on. Um, you know, we the, can't replicate that? Uh, no. We have, you know, there is, there is secrets that we can't figure out how they did it, you know, uh, in terms of preservation of the tissues and so on, it's remarkable. Um, and so there is, you know, so maybe they were wanting to preserve the crystalline nature of the body for, you know, certain purposes in the future and so on. It's hard to tell. It's hard to say. And this might sound really very esoteric, but I assure you I'm talking to you about this coming from a perspective of physics and, you know, and uh, um, a standard physicist may not even understand what I mean by a perspective of physics there because it's beyond the standard model. However, we're starting to discover this place beyond the standard model. And much of it has to do with what I've been talking to you about, meaning that the there's information in space-time, there's energy in space-time, there's a source of reality that is a field that connects everything, that everything is entangled, you know, that black holes are not these huge monsters that just appear in the middle of the galaxy, but that they are part of the evolution of creation and so on. So there's very, very deep level of physics that are emerging from those thoughts I was talking to you. Mm. So I guess at the end of the day, because there's this is all fascinating and it's fun and we talk about it, but it's like I always think to myself, okay, what does this what does this mean? You know, what do we learn from like going to Egypt and seeing? You know, I love the the joke in my head. I've been thinking since I was there. Is it's like you know 
the writings on the wall. It's like, it literally is. <laughs> yeah. What are we missing? So what, what is it that inspires you the most and leads you down a rabbit hole from ancient Egypt? Well, I think the awe of being there and seeing these things and that, I think if you study them for many years, as I did, and you, and you never actually go there and see it. Yeah. Um, you, you're missing. You, you have to go and see it. It's just. You just have to see it. Yeah. It's all inspiring. Yeah. And, and you, you really get the, the sense of the enormous, you know, the enormous task, um, that it would take to put these things together. But, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, I think the key is that First of all, to realize, and you know, more and more archaeologists in Egypt and you know South America are starting to are agreeing that they must have been a pre-cataclysmic civilization. This is becoming almost a standard in archaeology, you know, in Egyptology over there. Um, you know, now this, um, I think. It's telling us, I mean, what can we get out of this? I think what we can get out of this is that there's something way beyond, um, oh, we were microbes and then the microbes got together and then they made a monkey and then, <laughs> you know, the monkey started walking on two feet and, you know, like it became some kind of, you know, homo sapiens sapiens and somehow the homo sapiens sapiens started to become self-aware and, you know, that there is something deeper. I mean, that story might be true, but the fact that it happened was not some kind of random event, but that there is a deeper, you know, evolutionary pulse in, in, in reality, in, in our world, in the, in the physicality of our world, like, like in the, I'm talking not some spiritual thing, but actually in the atoms that you're made of, right? That like these things are carrying information and that evolutions are cyclical, you know? Totally. And that The we... stories in Egypt are cyclical. Like you mm-hmm. look at the story of Isis and Osiris and the, you know, immaculate conception of Horus. And mm-hmm. then you look at Mary and the immaculate conception mm-hmm. of Jesus. Like the cycle, like you, you start to hear the backstory further and further in front. You're like, wow, I've heard that story before. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, like just as an example that I, yeah. that I heard there. You find it in the Vedic tradition. You huh. find everywhere, you know, mm. Maya, Anka, so on. You, you find the same stories. So you see these. Um, the cyclical dynamics uh, of evolution and you start to think, okay, you know, where could we go from here? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we need to go, it's like literally like back to the future. It's like maybe we need to like understand what happened then so that we can move forward now, right? Mm-hmm. So that we can, and that was really my thought 30 years huh. ago. Um, and that's why I was not able to study inside the institution so well because I was too interested on in subjects that were very, you know, considered unrelated 
and um, and I wanted to have that flexibility to study whatever I wanted. So, and so I think at the deeper level, uh, it will lead us to understanding the nature of our existence and the nature of reality. And that might sound like an unconceivable notion. That, this is my dream. Uh huh. To understand that. Right. Well, you know, and, and why not? Right? Like we, we came out of this reality. Why would we not have the knowledge on how it actually made us? How, you know, how we got here, what it is, how it works and to become harmonic with it. Like the idea, you know, that there is not enough energy for everybody and that we have to fight for it. You know, that we have to go to war and so on for territorial disputes or for energy or for resources. Um, you know, it's not congruent with what you observe in the universe. Right. You know, the universe is very energetic. Yeah. You know, you look at a star, it's, it's outputting some serious juice. You know, it's like. So are you and I. Right. Heart, your heart produces I don't know the numbers, but it's a, a tremendous amount of energy. Correct. Um, you burn at almost a hundred Fahrenheit all day long, every yeah. day for like 80 years yeah. to a hundred years. Hopefully. Uh, maybe a hundred and fifty <laughs> years. Maybe a thousand. Yeah. Who knows? Well, who knows, right? But it's like. There you go, it's everybody. A, it's a very dynamic, energetic universe. Mm. Every atom, every proton has been spinning since the beginning of time. Mm. You know, and it doesn't slow down. It doesn't go, oh, you know, I'm running out of energy. I didn't pay my bill, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. It keeps going. Yeah. Going and going. It's like way better than the Energizer yeah. Bunny. And it, it, you know, and you look at the universe, not only is it continuing to expand, it's not slowing down as it's expanding, which you'd expect right. if it was entropic and so on. It's actually accelerating. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we live in an extremely energetic system. Uh-huh. We tend to think that, um, we have to scrounge to get energy, but it might be that if we understand actually the nature of the source of this energy that produce all this. Yeah reality, uh, then we would have uh, infinite amount of energy. So then the, 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 the capping question on it is, is there something suppressing that? Is there somebody suppressing that? Are there, is there more of a sort of evil, selfish, egotistical group or entity or that is like withholding this information I was thinking to myself when we were talking about the cap to the pyramid and I was thinking like you look on the back of the dollar right and it has the cap with yes. an eye with an and, eye uh, what's and in the middle like, of the what's eye what's in there and where is the cap do they have the cap right. hidden underground what are they doing with it like <laughs> I am playful I know you're a scientist but I I look at these like from a layman's perspective I look at these like little signs and you're like why would what does this all mean? You know, because it seems crazy that we don't know where we came from. We don't understand so much about whether it be ancient Egypt or the origins and the nature of reality. Like, why don't we know this? Why are we using fossil fuels? Like, 
-hmm. There's so much that's like, why? Um, so is there a resistance beyond just our knowledge or is it really just Egypt is inspiring and now we're at, we're starting to ask the right questions? Um, I think, you know, you're yes and yes. You're, you're right that, um, there's been resistance and there's been straight up, you know, cover up. <laughs> um, and people have lost their lives. Over right. It, um, you know, and, um, and there's been a lot of, um, uh, different behaviors that are, have slowed down the evolution of humanity. Right. However, I like to think of it in the context of an evolution, right? We're a young species. We just started on our little path as a more advanced technological community. You know, like 150 years ago, the idea that you could get into a metal object and fly across the country and end up, you know, a few hours later in New York, which like, unthinkable, right? Uh, now we do it every day. We don't think twice about mm-hmm. it. Um, so, so we're really young. And, um, so of course there is interest that were built on certain infrastructure that could be very disruptive. Mm-hmm. If all of a sudden we could extract energy out of the structure of space anywhere you are and massive amount of it. Or never mind that you would have a gravitational drive and you can go and orbit Jupiter for the weekend, right? So, yeah, could be fun. (laughs) You know, resistance is always going to be there, although resistance is futile, (laughs) right? I mean, we're going to go along with the program or we're going to get recycled by nature, right? Uh, So, yeah, and and so we're at that point where um, we have this opportunity. And that's why I'm so excited about the equations I solved yesterday, which is the result of, you know, many years of, of working on this specific part. Sure. Yeah. But basically, you know, this is, we have this opportunity to transcend this level of technology. And that's uncomfortable for people. Mm. It's normal. It's uncomfortable. Like, it's uncomfortable for people that have been taught or have been teaching all these years a certain set of doctrines, a certain right. set of understanding, a certain set of ways of looking at the universe to so all of a sudden get uprooted and, oh, you know, maybe it wasn't quite the Egyptian that built this stuff or maybe you know, the laws of thermodynamics or the laws of uh, conservation of energy are correct, but we don't live in a closed system. So there's an open system, so that means there's information that can right. flow through the system and we have access to it, right? right? So it's just it that change, that transformation in our mentality can produce some resistance and, and some difficulty in society, but... And I think we're right there. I, there's a new generation of scientists and archaeologists and all this that are coming up that are, you know, they are wanting the truth and they're looking for it and they're well, pure in their research. This is leading into now like the nature of reality, which is absolutely like my fascination. I wake up every day and I think to myself, what am I? What 
are we? What is this? What is this cup? Mm -hmm. What's happening? Am I literally create, am I creating my reality in a way that is be like, I, everything like I have is saying that I've like, my life's my fault. All the good and the bad, right? Uh uh So am I just perpetuating my reality, are we zeros and ones? Like my head like spins on this. The micro macro, are we, you know, things seem to make sense when you look at it from, uh, you know, that perspective, uh, or at least look at it like it's just, con- I'm just so confused and perplexed by it. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is why I love what you have to say. Um, so maybe starting with the simple question of like, what are we as right. a human? Oh, that's a simple question. Great. Oh my God. Like, what are we? Because okay. at the end of the day, the answering these questions yes. helps you know how to live your life. Sure. When you know what you are, because yes. like that would be the question, like a lot of people would wonder why does it matter? Well, it matters because it's how you're going to live your life. Yeah. Like if you know that you could, if you know you can create your future, well, wouldn't you do something about it? Uh-huh. Like instead of letting life happen to you, it's going to, you're going to control it. Right. So, Anyway, that's why my fascination is, is because it's going to help me live my life. So yeah. what are we? Okay. Um, I wouldn't call that a simple question, but I'm, I'm just going to go for it. Um, you said it was simple. Uh, yeah. I didn't say it was simple. Okay. I think it's super confusing. I wake up every day wondering right. what the nature of reality is it's all true. about. But let's start at least with the body. So, yeah, we'll think of it as uh, well, the, ten- the tendencies, first of all, to think that because we've been told this. The universe is random, right? Like, <laughs> there is no self-organizing system. This would be like chaos theory? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Chaos theory is something else. But generally, the idea is that, you see, this comes from a really big intent in earlier times of science to separate science from religion. So religion said there's a God that's organizing everything. And science needed to separate from that. So so science went in the other direction and said, there's nothing organizing. It's all just random. Ah. And things collide with each other. And eventually, if we're lucky, right? And if we're lucky is a big statement there, right? Um, they are going to agglomerate together and somehow natural system will emerge from it. And... You know, it's a good thought, but mathematically, it's inconsistent. Meaning, mathematically, the probability of even just one monocellular system would come to exist after 13.7 billion years since the beginning of the universe. And, you know, we could discuss that deeper. Yeah, that's next. Next is the Big Bang, or, or what might be the Big Bang. Right, right. And so, basically, but let's say we assume the Big Bang, you know, it doesn't add up. You need trillions and trillions of years prior to the Big Bang for the probabilities to work out that somehow the complexity of one cell would come to exist, right? So th- that's already a big problem, right? And then if if it all of a sudden popped out and, oops, there was like a rock that fell on it, then it would take another, you know. So, uh, yeah. So the probability that it came, but the problem is that if you say that to a physicist, right away they're going to assume you're religious and that you're going to tell them it's God that's organizing everything, right? (laughs) 
And what I'm saying is that there's something in between. Okay? There's something different, like altogether different than these two options. One, it's completely random. There's no organization. And the other one, there's God with binoculars making sure everything is good. Right? <laughs> the, the other option is that there's feedback. Hmm. Meaning that there's a flow of information. This is literally how I solve these equations I was talking about. That there's a flow of information and the, the flow of information that's emanating from a system is called electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. And the flow of information that is collapsing into the system, right, is called gravitational fields. And the relationship between the two is a feedback that mm-hmm. makes the system self-organized it knows about its environment and it you know modifies itself it's the theory of evolution of the quantum world if you'd like that eventually leads to the evolution of biological system mm. because you're made out of 100 trillion cells approximately actually mm-hmm. in your case most little less maybe I'm shorter you're a small person uh, so maybe 30 minutes you know but let's say around there and each one of these cells is made of 100 trillion atoms right yeah. so it's very complex system yeah. and so all of a sudden but if you have feedback you can get self-organizing system to happen very very quickly in the evolution of a system. So you can start with a very simple set and get to a really complex set of, of, of interaction in very short amount of time. Um, a good example is if I give a Rubik's Cube to a blind person and ask them to order it, which is not a really nice thing to do. Um, if, they, if, if they're moving a move every second. Sounds like a joke. <laughs> yes. But if they're moving a move every second, it will take Billions, trillions of years for them to randomly find a solution. Okay. 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 The probabilities are very, very low. Okay. Almost yeah. zero. Yeah. The Rubik's cube is way simpler than a human being. Okay. But <laughs> if I <laughs> said to the blind person, yes, meaning you're getting closer and no, just binary set of information. Yes, you're getting closer. No, you're not getting further from the solution. Uh-huh. It would take two and a half minutes. What? And they would order the... the Come ruling. on. Yes. So you, Come on. No, as, absolutely. So Maybe you can help me then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you go from billions of years, randomly, to um, or trillions of years, to, you know, a uh, few minutes if you have feedback. Wow. Uh, and so feedback systems, so think of yourself to answer your question because it was a deep question think of yourself as a feedback of information of the universe but i mean it literally meaning you're radiating thermodynamically right so that's like information radiating from you into the field okay but you can think of the field you know atoms are made of mostly space and so on so you can think of the field is not just outside of you but it's inside of you you're made out of 99.99999% space right so think of all the the little amount like of we think things. we're firm we think what well, we're not yeah. we're like just little mini tornadoes right exactly. like the body of tornadoes like the cells are just right yeah exactly we're not actually matter no yeah. Sense. When you look at the atoms, you could say you're just a 
electrostatic field of space, right? So, right. so you're space densified into a thing. Right. Like everything you touch, everything, you know, it's mostly space. Right. <laughs> and, the, and the thing we call not space is just an electrostatic field that bumps against each other. So it's like a little field in space, mm-hmm. right? And think of this little field like a little sphere exchanging the information between the space inside of it and the space outside of it. And as it does that, it produces a little thermodynamic effect that we call our reality. Okay. So that's completely different view of reality and a completely different view of you because you're basically a set of information exchanging. So you're reading thermodynamically and you're gathering information through your senses, right? So like the system learned to make you more and more complex so you could have more and more awareness of your environment so it could gather more and more information and learn more and more. Feedback more and more. It's like a, a continuous positive feedback of complexity. And so like you have little black, that's why I was saying, remember the top of the pyramid has got the eye. When you said that, I said, well, you, what's in the middle of an eye, right? It's a little black dot oh. that's absorbing light, right? Right. And sending those photons into your, into your cortex, into your brain, right? And then, so, you're gathering information as you're dispensing energy. So think of yourself mm. as a conduit for creation, right? Mm. And, and, and so how you interpret the information that comes in is going to dictate what you're going to do with the energy when you dispense it. Like how you're going to move your arm, how you're going to, how, who you're going to talk to, what you're going to say, all this stuff, right? And in that sense, you are creating your reality, right? Because you're part of this feedback loop. The thing that people forget is that everybody's part of that field. Everybody's part of that loop. So it's a collective creation of our reality, of our environment, right? So it's not just you. So although you intend to like do something really cool that you want to do, it might not happen because there's other people involved, right? Mm. There's all the other things in, not just people, like the chairs, the wall, all, all the other feedback loops that you're going to have to, like, conjure. You know, you're going to have it, it, yeah, you're gonna have to get them to come along okay. with your plan. Right. Yeah, so that you can do the thing you wanted to do. So, so it, it's a dance. It's a dance of relationship. And it really, if I could show you these equations, which I will soon, you know, because uh, we'll publish them soon, it really shows that all there is is relationships. Right? All, so that is just an analogy for life. Yes. All there is is, the, is information exchange at different scales and in different ways. And that produces all the forces, all the constants of physics, everything we see is just this exchange of information, all the bond angles that makes the molecule, that makes the cells and so on. So, so you're so much more vast than, oh, just a collection of cells that somehow randomly got together and became self-aware, you know, by some epiphenomena of your brain. 
So this says as well something profound about you. It says that you're not the biocrystal oscillator only. You're the information, right? It's not happening all in your body, meaning you're exchanging information with a field, a quantum field of information that goes way beyond your your awareness mm-hmm. or your current capability. Mm-hmm. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button. Oh, boy, Rama. Mm. What do you say? Uh, I mean, you you go up in the beam, and there's no terra firma under you, so something about what he said has to do with that, right? It's merging with the quantum field where I just let go and allow the energy field to support me, you could say, where I trust the energy field enough that I don't tense my body. I know I'm not going to fall. It's just letting go and feeling that oneness of the quantum field, the silence of the, you could call it the Big Bang, or that it's like what Teek Not Khan talks about. I mangled his name, but the sounding of the great bell, when you hear just that silence. You go up in the beam, I don't really experience a sound, per se. It's... Can you see the color of that lime green around you? No? Yes? Yeah. And all I see around me is just um, intense psychedelic colors, mostly the yellow the green, the gold, and just... So you don't just see lime green? No. Even though that's what you keep telling everybody, that the beam is lime green. Mostly it's just lime green. But, yeah, from the outside, an observer would see, like, that colored marker there. Mm-hmm. They would see that lime green. When you're inside the beam looking out... I'm looking at a multicolor of yellow, green, lime, the gold energy, and they're like these constant strands of, I could say, mm. like the tinsel you put on your tree at Christmas time. You mean silver? Uh, kind of like that. Yeah, but they're sparkly and they just are in the beam, and I don't know the consistency of how to describe it. I know it's the technology of transporter beams. That's the only way I can describe it, like in Star Trek. But Mm -hmm. it's just letting go and feeling that great oneness. So you feel completely safe. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're... You're, you're moving your crystals to go up. You still got those crystals in your hand? Somehow the crystals 
have gone from my hands and they're lying on the ground when I come back. And I didn't take them out of my hands. They just kind of oh my God. <laughs> move out of my hands or <laughs> uh-huh. don't know what to say. Well, enough said. We we got a dose. Yeah. And what's interesting is in Cryon's own way, he said, we're designed to live hundreds of years. Yeah. Yet we believe maybe we can live 80 years or more, but, you know, we're Our designed bones. to live hundreds of years. And then that's for starters, you know. Our bones are like crystal, crystalline energy. We are becoming crystalline life forms instead of carbon-based life forms. That's the key because what are crystals but energy? Mm-hmm. We're energy. Um, well, we got to take a little break here, everybody. Pass the talking stick. <laughs> so, BBS Radio, yay! And... uh We'll be back with our brother Richard and a look at the stars and some music. Music of the spheres, hey, Rama? Yeah. All right. So see you in a little short while. Namaste, everybody. Pass the talking tick to you, Richard. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Okay, here we are on the 24th. And the Full moon is on the 26th sometime that day. So that means we are, we're in the tight energies of the full moon situation, however that's going to turn out to be, right? So we, and it's in full moon in Taurus, Sun, Scorpio moon. Alright, so that's a very interesting axis. We've talked with that polarity axis, you know, Taurus being values and how one holds values and chooses values and adjusts their values. And then Scorpio says, your values may stink or they may be false or untrue, right? Scorpio's is like, it, it has a lot of things to do with other people's values, right? And, of course, money is one of those value things. You know, what's the cash value of an idea, right? So we're using our astrology to, or as a framework in which to talk about these difficult problems, right? So we're in this new reality here called COVID-19 and this other new reality called the uh, Biden-Harris administration and these other ideas, I, you know, there was a, there was a world leader that, uh, that died this week, you know. There's still conflict everywhere, but with all the crap going on, there are still good people doing good things. So we'll we'll hold good energies for good people doing good things. And we'll go and listen to Kaipacha next. Tara informs me, or Rama, that uh, Bo 
both of our astrologers are long-winded to, today, this week. So we'll we'll get right to it, and I'll talk to you later. Okay, okay Richard, thank you. Here we go. with the weekly Pele report. Uh, this one is uh, the astrological forecast for April 21st of the great year 2021. And by golly, if it's not one river, it's another, or one ocean, it's another, or one mountain, it's another, but wow. Oh, this planet is so beautiful. Uh, I, I do want to show you, I was out at the coast there for a while, and uh, the natural bridges... At the end of this, you got to check out the natural bridges. <laughs> oh, whoa. Nothing like the Oregon coast. Anyway, let's look at some of the uh, bigger, wider, broader, cosmic natural energies for these days. We know that the sun moved into the sign of Taurus on Monday, and uh, he's going to stay there for you know, a month, and Venus, and Mercury, so we've got a big shift from fire to Earth, and this week Mars moves from air, Gemini, into Cancer water, that is happening uh, on uh, Friday, so we've got this big shift in astrology, fire and air are masculine, Earth and water are feminine. Uh, the yang energy has been very strong. It's moving into the yin kind of focus going on. So uh, it's going to be a, a big shift. But it's interesting because, and this is what's going on this week, the sun, Mercury, and Venus are all in conjunction with Uranus, the planet of Sudden, unpredictable change in the fixed, dependable sign of Taurus. So we have to be talking about that. And then what? Right now, the moon is in Leo. Uh, by tomorrow, uh, Thursday, uh, she moves into Virgo and, uh, you know, opposes Neptune and does, you know, does her whole thing in Virgo, moves into Libra on Saturday. But then, by Monday, she moves into Scorpio, and we have the full moon in Scorpio. Seven degrees, six minutes. I'm going to read you the Sabian symbol that has to do with that one. And, um, yeah, so it's it's not... And then, uh, one more thing that is... I mean, there's so much to talk about today. Um, that... It's not just that the Sun, Venus, and Mercury come into this conjunction with Uranus, which is dramatic in and of itself, but they also come into a square to Saturn. Mercury square Saturn on Sunday. Venus square Saturn on Saturday. Yeah, you know, it's just like, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> you know. Um, it's really highlighting that. I'm going to talk a lot about that. 
square. Just let me come up to the edge here and get a little shot of the... That's a lot of water. There's a little sign up there that said, you know, stay out of the water, stay alive. It is very cold. We've got some melting snow going on here. All right. Anyway, let me find a spot to talk at you. Okay. <laughs> Let's give this one a shot. Boy, oh boy, I hope it's uh, the wind is not too much. Sound is good because there's a lot to go through. I want to give you some dates. We've got to really look at this, you know, uh, before, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or something. I talked about how you can, you can kind of look at the moon like the minute hand. Boom, boom, boom. Goes around once a month. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's fast moving. And then we've got this, you know, sun, Mercury, Venus kind of really traveling close together. They can be like the minute hand. Bop, 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 right? And then we can kind of look at Saturn. Saturn up there hanging out in Aquarius two and a half years, you know, it's like, oh man, it's kind of like the hour hand, Kronos, keeping, you know, boom, bringing it in, third dimension, time. So, you know, what we have then is you can just go back three months and you got kind of, you know, roughly Sun, Mercury, Venus. You know, conjuncting Saturn and Pluto at that time and things were, you know, getting Jupiter was there. So that was kind of like, you know, the start. So like around January and, and things have been, like I said, going forward, forward, forward. You know, and, and the other, that first kind of quarter of the, you know, them breaking away from the Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto of 2020 and, you know, we're going to, you know, break into some new realities. And then it comes into that first quarter square. Sun, Mercury, Venus squaring Saturn. But they are not alone. Uranus is there. Boom. And before I forget, there was one thing I already did forget, and that is Pluto is stationary, going retrograde. It is an optical illusion. The planets never are stationary. They're always moving. But from our place on Earth, it appears that Pluto has stopped. Maybe he's scratching his head a little bit. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, I think I forgot something. I got to go back. <laughs> so we've had all the planets direct for a while. Okay, you know, it's, it's been January, February, March into April. Okay, we got to, you know, it's Aries, you know, this last month of Aries energy, and it's like, charge! Now, Pluto goes retrograde. Uh, another month from now, Saturn is going retrograde. And a month after that, Jupiter is going to go retrograde. So it's time, you know, at the, the beginning of this year was time to, you know, really get the download. Get the intuition. Get the impulse. Feel your energy. Feel your excitement. Where do I want to go? What do I want to create this year? Now, with these retrogrades and, of course, you know, this Taurus energy, 
wants to build, sustain, maintain, put your money where your mouth is. Okay, get your resources together. Let's see, really see how real versus fantasy your desires are. So now is the time of coming down, coming in, getting real. And of course, Taurus is about a lot of different things. I'm going to be talking a lot about Taurus, a lot about Scorpio. In fact, I'm going to be doing all about Scorpio uh, this uh, Sunday with the New Paradigm community. Be going into it, oh, you know, hours, whatever, hour long, you know, more. Um, and uh, I do that every month with the community. Go deeply into a sign and all the planets in that sign. And that sign ruling all the different houses and what, what the essence of that is. Because we've got this full moon. In Scorpio. It is a beautiful Sabian symbol. I'm going to pull that up right now. And it's just amazing that we have this Taurus Gaia, feminine, ruled by Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, sensuousness, physical beauty, and, and really coming into this survival this self-sufficiency, my own physical body. Venus, in your chart, symbolizes how your soul connects to your body. So it's a very physical, it's the material girl, you know. It's like, yet yeah, let's come in. And our relationship with ourself is mirrored in our relationships with other people. That's what the mantra is a little bit about today. We can project, you know, uh, authority outside ourselves, criticism outside ourselves, appreciation outside ourselves, and be looking, wanting, waiting, hoping for the external world to fulfill us. This is more of a Scorpio Libra kind of energy. Or we can be Taurus, the bull. The Buddha that goes within and discovers my gold. What is my gold? What, what makes me valuable? What makes me awesome? What is my passion? What is my excitement? What am I really going to, you know, make and do and be? So a lot of this is going inward. You know, Venus, receptive inner energy. Taurus, Earth, inner energy. It's really, you know, it's, it's a very beautiful time for, you know, contemplating and sitting still. And so it's really something to have this full moon, which I said is happening on Monday, but, you know, you want to see it coming. A calm lake bathed in moonlight. <laughs> a quiet openness to higher inspiration. One could stress the romantic suggestions such an image evokes. But even at the level of a love relationship, what is implied is a surrender of two personal egos to the inspiration of transcendent feelings. 
which are essentially impersonal. Love expresses itself through the lovers. For real love is a cosmic, undifferentiated principle or power which simply focuses itself within the souls of human beings who reflect its light. Aside, Venus is the lower octave of Neptune. Neptune is that cosmic universal love that then gets reflected through our souls when we tap into and surrender to that beautiful cosmic love. Yeah? The same is true of the mystic's love for God. Humanity strives hard to achieve great things through daring adventures. But a moment comes when all that really matters is to present a calm mind upon which a supernal light may be reflected. The key word is quiescence. Quiescence. So here we have this image of this full moon happening for this month, and it goes very well with that image of Taurus, the bull, the sitting bull. It reminds me of the kid's story, um, Ferdinand, the bull. It's a great kid's book, man. Ferdinand is totally awesome. Anyway, this notion of going within, and then, of course, Pluto. Pluto is stationary, turning retrograde. I want to give you some dates for that because I'm going to read you another Sabian symbol. This is for the 27th degree of Capricorn, where Pluto is, it entered 26 degrees, um, what? February 28th. It's come all the way up, stations. Now it's turning retrograde, and it's going to go back out of 26 degrees into 25 degrees, June 28th. Four months, Pluto is at the same degree. Then it comes up, and in January, like January 1st to February 1st, it, it goes through that 26 degrees again. In 2022, it goes retrograde, and it comes back to this degree for another four months. In 2022, from August to December, of 2022. So this is Pluto going back and forth and back and forth over this very, what I consider to be profound. It is the 27th degree of Capricorn. And we talked about this full moon being inspiration, right? Check this out. The image that Elsie Wheeler was the, the, the psychic that got these images, 360 of them, that made this book, one for each degree of the zodiac. The image that she got for this particular place where Pluto 
root chakra, Shiva, transformation, the God of transformation, death and resurrection. Pilgrims climbing the steep steps leading to a mountain shrine. The keynote is the ascent of the individualized consciousness to the highest realizations reached by the spiritual leaders of its culture. I think this is awesome. Yeah? It's how it's amazing how everything so ties together this week, this month. We hear a great deal about peak experiences, but this symbol tells us that they depend to a very great extent upon following a path which may have been trod before under the inspiration of the great teachers and sages of our race. The shrine is built by the unceasing dedication of perhaps generations of men. The pilgrimage is hallowed by the devotion of many, even though each person finds on his own mountaintop what to him seems a unique and transcendent revelation. So here's what, you know, you see how this all so relates so very powerfully. Inspiration, revelation, through doing our own inner work. And like I say in the, you know, our mantra for today is this sense that I take responsibility. I become my own authority. And I, and I climb up this steep path that has maybe been trod, you know, before, but out of my own power, my own excitement, my own truth, my own devotion, I am creating my life my wealth, my health, my truth, my destiny. This is a very empowering, rebellious time. It is time for each of us to not be followers, but to be our own leaders. And it requires sitting in the calm you know, and going inward and feeling the reflection of the moonlight on the water. Ow! Because <laughs> now I want to talk a little bit more at you about the Saturn-Uranus square that is going on for all of 2021. Saturn is structure, form, Time and space, duty, responsibility to self and other and planet and, you know, it's like our ability to respond to what is needed. It is the elder, the wisdom keeper, and it goes around every 28, 29 years. And Uranus, the sky god, Actually, the father of Saturn 
goes around every 85 years and really represents this primal, powerful revelation, liberation, freedom that existed before Saturn, before time, before space. So Uranus is beyond. Uranus is the unconscious, not limited by time and space, associated with the upper celestial world of shamanism. So Uranus's brilliant illumination beyond the conscious ego. In fact, it disturbs the conscious ego. Because Saturn, our conscious ego, and, you know, our daily reality, we like to keep things straight. But our unconscious need to evolve, to individualize, is always erupting and very often disturbing our, you know, set ways. So these two come around. And the last time they were in conjunction was in 1988. Some of you may have been around. My youngest daughter was born, you know, uh, you know, right? At, so from September, what, what is it? January of 88 to November of 88. Conjunction. Then. And that was at zero degrees of Capricorn. In the middle, and this is interesting because from June of 99 to May of 2000, okay, they came into square. Uranus was in Aquarius and Saturn was in Taurus. Now for the second square, they're switched. Saturn's in Aquarius and Uranus is in Taurus. Think about what you were doing back then in the year 2000. Then they came around to the opposition. Okay? That opposition was from September of 2009 to July of 2010. These are all major milestones in my life. I had my, you know, my young, my third daughter, my youngest daughter, uh, when they conjuncted, I got divorced when they squared. I moved to Hawaii and started doing the Pele report when they came into opposition. And now they're coming for their third quarter square for this whole year of 2021. And then they're going to come back around and finish. And they finish that cycle. It's a 42-year cycle that they, they're going to finish that from June of 32 to March of 33. So this is a Saturn-Uranus cycle. I am going to be going into great depth regarding this cycle in my upcoming uh, workshop in Costa Rica. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, there's still some room. Uh, I want to thank everybody who did sign up and said, you know what, I'm coming. <laughs> I'm doing this. <laughs> it's, I am my own authority. Boom. Thank you. And there's enough of us together. We are, it's, it's happening. And, uh, and this Saturn Uranus, you know, the erupting, the evolving, the bringing in, the inventing 
new structures, new institutions, new authorities, new ways, new societies. So now we are in the third quarter square of this. Saturn is up there in Aquarius. And Saturn is that conservative, let's hold back, hold down, social distance, stay home, lockdown, separate. Saturn is the force of separation. And Aquarius is the sign of associations and friends and groups that come together. So now this is a time period where we, so many of us, we need to decide. Do we follow or do we lead? Do we bow down or do we stand up? Do we, uh, you know, take on other people's values, other people's beliefs, other people's fears, other people's limitations, whether it's family, father, mother, society, boss, government, whoever, religion, are we going to take on other people's stuff or are we coming into Taurus? My truth, my values, myself, and I am going to build and gather my wealth, my health, my resources. I always liken Taurus to the squirrel gathering nuts. <laughs> you know, this is just like, I will learn how to receive through self-love. I deserve. I am ready. I will receive. And I, I, I believe in myself, my truth. So that leads me right, you know, kind of into, you know, the mantra for this week where I can project and live outside myself or take responsibility to build more health and wealth. When we project and we make other people our boss, or we make other people, you know, uh, our slave, or we make other people, you know, uh, have, has got the the strength, the health, the money, the power, the truth, the whatever. When we project that outside ourselves, we lose ourselves. <laughs> this is a time to come home to self. Mars moving into Cancer wants to cut right down into the, you know, right down into the roots and open up Okay, our own personal truth. Super powerful time, super beautiful time, but it's not so much about being so nice and going along so much as self-sufficiency. So the song for this week is Jim Croce, I've Got a Song. I love it. It's great. I mean, I know it's kind of old and there's, you know, but whatever, you know. I just listened to it on the way down here to the river, you know. I've got a name. I've got my own song. And I've got a dream. And, you know, th these are important key factors 
to a meaningful, powerful, beautiful life. Oh! <laughs> yeah, baby. One more time. I can project and live outside myself. Or take responsibility to build more health and wealth. May you be the Taurus builder and take care of your own body, your own health, your own truth, and gather together all of the resources necessary for you to express your Uranian genius to the world. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Talking stick to you, Richard. All right, real quick here. You wanna you wanna question yourself about which houses these planets are falling in, right? So there's a natural division, right? The first half of the zodiac. Aries through Virgo is the personal side of things. And the other half, uh, Libra through Pisces, is the public or community zone. Alright? So you got the, uh, different things going on, right? Now the conditions today are different from the conditions when you were born. And the older you are, the more different they were, right? So, example, me, Uranus, or, yeah, Uranus is in my eighth house, and Saturn, Aquarius, is in my fifth house. So I've got, I've got opportunities to work with my Fifth house creative aspects working through Aquarius and the um, 
Uranus effect is uh, one I haven't exactly figured out yet, except to uh, bring me unexpected changes, right? I was I was well on my way to getting back on the Internet when the phone company decided to replace the cable from the bottom of the hill up to the top of the hill where you turn onto my road. And when they left Thursday, my phone wasn't working. <laughs> so they killed my, yeah, they, they they replaced the cable, but they killed my phone line. Therefore, without a phone line, without a phone line, I can't get on the internet. So I have to wait till Monday for them to get a tech back out here and hook my phone back up. So there was a there was an unexpected delay. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Here we go. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astronomologist. Welcome to Star Codes, where we look at the important events, the celestial events in the stars and numbers that are about to unfold. And in this podcast, we're going to look at an incredible stellium. A stellium is three or more planets that are in the same location, and we have four in this stellium in Taurus. Uranus which has been in Taurus for two to three years, the sun, which just moved into Taurus, Mercury and Venus, the ruler of Taurus, those four are coming together in the same location in Taurus. And it's just so exciting when this happens because it really intensifies energy. In this case, the energy of Taurus, which is very much about acceptance, security, love, peace. And so the whole coming together of these four begins on April 18th, the Sun conjunct Mercury. Then it really heats up as Venus conjuncts Uranus on the 22nd. Mercury conjuncts Uranus on the 24th. Mercury conjuncts Venus on the 25th. And then on the 30th, we have the Sun conjunct Uranus. And the midpoint of all these conjunctions between these four happens on April 23rd. But really, it's this whole period that truly is a remarkable opportunity. So what is also happening is that on April 26th, 27th, we have the Scorpio full moon. And during the Scorpio full moon, these four planets will be munched together and they will be opposite the moon. So have a look at that podcast as well. I believe it's episode 104 because it's a really dynamic uh, situation here when we have such an intensity in one sign and it's opposite the moon and then also it forms a T-square to Saturn. But let's look at the topic for today. So first of all, April in 2021 is a nine universal month. And 2021, the year is a five universal year. The numbers five and nine represent a pivot point, change. It represents basically moving from one era to another or one period in your life to a new period. So there's a lot of new beginnings energy. Now the themes of freedom and love are very strong with the stellium 
because of Uranus, the planet of setting us free. And of course, Taurus, which represents your values and the love of life, the pleasure of life. So Uranus is, is has been in Taurus since 2018. And when it gets activated, we feel more breakthrough energy. We feel more opportunities where we have the confidence to take risks and to embrace change and innovation and new inventive ways to move forward. And we embrace the future. Uranus is a planet associated with Aquarius and they have, they govern the realms of being excited about what is to come and also revolutionary adjustments. (laughs) So that is pretty obvious as well. So the calming impact of Taurus, the liberating influence of Uranus, the beauty and love of Venus, ruler of Taurus, and the ability to really think things through in a practical, uplifting way through Mercury joining these planets and understanding as a result how love is what the universe is made from and everything in the universe comes from this place of love. So Uranus likes us to go beyond our comfort zone. So something is telling you around this time to really, really follow those hunches right, to have faith in the hunches. So this is not the same as having blind faith, which is more based on a belief. Like if you say, oh, I'm sure so-and-so is going to be well, or this is going to turn out. This is, one. it's positive affirmation, but it's not the same as true faith. True faith is very much a spiritual heart-centered feeling. It's very subtle. So, and it differs from, like I said, the blind faith. So I would, I would really take this time to trust those hunches, those, those, those nudges that appear in your life that are really directing you, that are surprising you in many ways, but that are always, they always end up in an uplifting result, right? There is a sense of a joyful uh, trust in the universe. And since Taurus is ruled by Venus, which is part of the stellium in Taurus, your values about everything that is beautiful and artistic and joyful and loving is going to really be enhanced. So notice what you're attracted to, right? And pay attention to beauty in your life, to art, to pleasure, because it will often direct you exactly where you need to go. So Uranus in Taurus helps with productivity in terms of your your exciting, inventive ideas, leading you way to help you create financial flow and help you to use your talents and your gifts and help you feel secure in your unique expression and to use your voice as a resource especially when it comes from a place of loving attention. So your sensuality is heightened in this stellium and Taurus. Your focus on the the unique things that, that you would call your possessions, the material comforts that help you feel 
just really grounded and to feel the pleasure of life and to feel the connection with nature and earth, those things that bring you peace, all of this is coming into it into the forefront. What do you value, right? Setting appropriate boundaries is also a Taurian quality. So now Taurus is not a sign, unlike Uranus, the planet, that is about change. Taurus likes things to stay the same. So there's a resistance to change. There can be a stubbornness. There can be a, an attachment uh, to things or a possessiveness. So just be aware that if there is anything in your life that you don't want to let go of, that you're attached to, that actually needs to be extricated, it will come up for you and just allow it to. So you're here to explore new options now. You're here to look at financial windfalls that are very much enhanced. This is all Taurus and Venus. Remember, Taurus rules the second house in astrology, which is the house of the flow, the energy exchange of money, what you value deep down, your what makes you feel uh, worthy and what makes you feel grounded. So the security of having a home, the security of trusting that, again, that faith, that what, if you value the, the faith in the universal divine flow, then you actually feel secure. And this is really the message here of, of Taurus. So Mercury's part of the stellium. Mercury and Uranus govern the lower and higher mind so that it really helps you to explore your creativity with a lot of clarity and intuition because you have a lot of incisive insights and you can explore angles and just just embrace new ways of seeing things. Now, it can create a little bit of a nervous energy when these two planets come together, so you definitely want to do your meditation, get out in nature, walk, whatever it is that grounds you. And then the communication factor, the loving communication is also enhanced Mercury conjunct Venus, Venus being the expressive planet. So expressing love, using words to touch others and in turn allow yourself to be touched by the expressions of others, paying attention to the sound of your voice and the sounds around you, right? What are you inviting into your life? Uh, your sensitivity to the meaning behind sound is going to be stronger. It also is very wonderful for showing and giving gratitude. So giving in general. And of course, Uranus conduct the sun brings tremendous excitement, unexpected energies, new unconventional directions that you wouldn't have foreseen before now. And that's the whole point of living in the moment. So you'll have a, an urge to break away from limiting situations. So limiting relationships, limiting career situations, limiting health regimens, um, limiting environments that you are in so just be very open to welcome those thrilling new opportunities and be sure to take time for that grounding meditative energy because you will feel a tremendous sense of calmness as you set yourself free and embrace the natural flow so venus and taurus create a major impact of peace 
and love and contentment. And your natural state is actually very much about being loving, being accepting, uh, being peaceful, wanting quietude in your life, wanting a, a sense of serenity and feeling content. That is actually everyone's natural state. And you can tell that love is your natural state because love is what you experience when you are in this place of tremendous serenity. You feel such love, such appreciation and gratitude. So the, the spiritual heart naturally is open and expresses itself in a loving way. But this is not the same as romantic love. So Venus rules two signs, Taurus and Libra. Libra is the sign of romantic love, of two coming together. Uh, This spiritual love is more like gratitude and acceptance. It's more like joy and just being so content with your life. It's, It's soft. It's gentle. It's sweet. It's subtle. And it's not... It's a lot less personal than romantic love, which has more of a passionate excitement to it. So this is more like the love that you feel when you know yourself as the world, not expecting anything from anyone else or seeing yourself as the other, but seeing yourself as part of the whole. And so with Taurus, this serenity that you get allows you to sink into that security, that acceptance, that inner peace, that contentment, to drop into that divine source energy, the essence energy, and no longer identify with the separation, which is the egoic mind. So our natural state, our natural consciousness is love, and we are all here, all of us, to discover that. That is the reason we incarnated. And of course, we have programming, and the programming gives us the impression that we are actually our mind, that we are the ego, and it conceals the truth that we are love, and that programming is being dismantled. The programming is actually represented by that big stellium we had last year, beginning of 2020, that started the decade, the stellium in Capricorn, so that old programming is now in... It's in the state of um, total dismantlement, if that's a word. (laughs) So what we're discovering is that love is truly the energy that holds the universe together. But the mind, can it understand something like that, that love holds the universe together? Well, you talk to somebody who is very much in their mind, you know, somebody who is, an academician or a scientist or just analyzes life um, more than anything. If you say that love holds the universe together, is the energy that holds the universe together, they're going to say no, right? The mind can't comprehend that. And this is why it's so lovely to have Mercury, the planet that governs how we think, And Venus merged together in the stellium, Venus planet of love merged together with the sun and Uranus to set us free to embrace that far greater experience beyond the mind. Because when you hear that love is the energy that holds, that literally holds, glues everything together, right? 
it underlies everything. You have to suspend your disbelief and trust. And you have to take this as faith. This truth has to be taken as faith. And again, not blind faith. That's a belief that comes from the mind. Beliefs are created in the mind. They're based on programming, right? But true faith comes from the spiritual heart. It's subtle. It's, you can't really define it. It's almost like, you know, describing a piece of music. It's, it's very difficult, right? So faith is the ability to just let go, surrender, and begin seeing love everywhere. And just know that what you believe has a huge impact on how you perceive life. So if you believe that love is everywhere, if you start just putting that out there, because love is everywhere, then you'll experience that. However, if you still believe that darkness and evil are everywhere, then that's what you'll see. No matter how much love is in front of you, that's what you'll see. So it's really important to acknowledge, first of all, that love is everywhere, because doing that counteracts your ego's assumption that it is not, and that life isn't safe, it isn't secure, and it isn't supportive. So unless you counteract that, that negative belief about life, you're likely going to keep identifying with your ego, your mind. Mm -hmm. So this is where faith is very, very important. So to wake up to who you are, your divine nature, and live in alignment with your divine nature instead of the ego, you have to train yourself, which Taurus is very good at, step-by-step secure Taurus. Uh, Every earth sign is good for this kind of training. You have to train yourself to see life as God, as source, as love sees it, instead of as the ego sees it. So the more you do this, the more the divine will begin to live through you. And you will express the divine with what you do, with what you say, instead of the ego. And you will be rewarded by happiness. You will be rewarded by peace and the capacity to bring others as well into a state of happiness and peace. So how do you put this into practice? Well, one way is to see every act as an act of love, both within you and others. So this would start with just the simple gestures that happen with every person everywhere. Allowing love to listen, allowing love to greet, allowing love to make dinner, allowing love to shop for food, allowing love to play with a child, allowing love to drive safely, to touch, to smile, to kiss, to laugh, to sing, to play, to create. So one exercise might be to notice all the ways that you express love in your life and also to notice how others express love in their life because love is everywhere. So it's expressed all the time, but it's often unnoticed because it is quiet, it is subtle, and it's behind the scenes often, but it's being expressed nonetheless. Versus the ego, which is absent of love. The ego is where you only see problems and lack and Right? So if you can see love in every action, there would be no reason to judge. 
which causes separation and hatred and suffering. And, and you wouldn't then be contributing to that separation and hatred that actually feed that sense the ego has that it must oppose others to keep itself safe. So this stallium is freeing you up through Uranus, because Uranus is in the group, right? To always act from a place of love. And when egos actually receive love and receive compassion, they resonate with it and they then express love. Maybe not right away, because there's a great deal of you know, wounding that may still need to heal, but eventually the ego will melt away. So love heals and it helps you evolve out of that fear into the peace, the peace that is represented by God, by source, by spirit. The other choice to live is judgment, judgment and retribution, which only can, they only confirm to serve the ego's suspicion that it needs to do everything in its power to protect itself and to get what it wants from the world. So the way to help turn this around is to see love in every act and remember that every human being is inherently good. And that can sometimes be difficult, right? We see an act and we say, that's that's not a good thing. But underlying the act is an urge to set yourself free and to be joined with love. So just affirming someone else's natural goodness allows you to feel that compassion for them and that the person is creating the challenges for himself or herself and everyone else involved in their life out of ignorance of the truth that love is everywhere and everyone. And as a result of this affirmation of everyone's natural goodness, right, their inherent goodness, you then become more interested in dispelling that ignorance, that love, ignoring that love is what makes up the universe, what makes up everyone to the core is love. You you become more interested in dispelling that ignorance and then healing those involved as opposed to judging them, punishing them, Casting them aside, separating yourself from them. So finding love in people is the key here with Estellium. It really is an activation to, to see love in people being helpful when they're receptive, when they're considerate, when they're polite, when they're giving attention, when they're smiling. Those are ways that people show their love, and their goodwill. And in fact, speaking of giving attention, giving attention is one of the quickest ways to act in a loving way because what you give your attention to is what you love. And whom you give you your attention to is whom you love. So if you're giving your attention to the egoic mind, you're loving the egoic mind. But if you're giving your attention to others, you're loving them and you're joining in unity with them. So ask yourself, what are you giving your attention to? Since the mind is only interested in itself, giving attention to someone else will override the ego's tendency to only focus on itself. So giving your attention to others is a wonderful way to channel love 
the energy of love energy is immediately channeled when you do that, regardless of how you might feel about them um, in a personal way. Giving your attention to them is a loving act, right? And it connects you to them. It connects you all in the energy of love, which is their true nature and your true nature. And it's very subtle, but it is felt. So giving others attention is a way to acknowledge your oneness with them and facilitating the experience of oneness with them. And it causes them and you to feel love, and that feels good. So it's much more rewarding than giving attention to the mind, ultimately. And then giving attention is just as rewarding when you give it to whatever you are doing, you are creating, you are focusing on a project, whatever the case may be. It can be very simple, a practical endeavor, or it can be something in your career that you're excited about or that you need to move through, whatever it is. Giving attention on that is just as rewarding. Whereas your ego will draw you into the unreal world of thought and it, the ego always entices you to pay attention to the past or fantasies about the future. It's never in the present moment. Notice that with the ego. Or the ego focuses on things that help you stand out and be special, right? To put you above others in some way or to put others down. Giving your attention instead on whatever is going on in the moment, whatever you're doing, is an act of loving life. So lavishing your attention on what's going on in the present moment, which is the only thing really that matters, right? It rewards you then with the experience of love and peace and contentment and all those indicators that you are in the flow. So only when you're fully present in the moment can you actually experience real love. That's when you're in a place of acceptance and joy and peace and contentment. And so all you have to do is put your attention on what is happening now versus on what happened in the past or what's going to happen in the future, fantasies and whatever the case may be. So your thoughts, in other words, put your attention on now, stop thinking unless it's for practical reasons and notice that love is everywhere. Have faith that love is the energy that holds the universe together. <laughs> so this is the message of this absolutely gorgeous stellium in Taurus. And it really is an awakening of abundance and trust that you have everything you need in life to move through life in a very beautiful, serene, grateful, pleasurable way. So I wish you an absolutely gorgeous week. And remember, there's a lot of love and pleasure and excitement in your own star code, which describes who you are at soul level. It describes your true nature. And your star code is based on your birthday and your birth certificate name and your star code, the astrology code that you have. And I've created a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. Just go there. It's free. You have a handout and you can discover your and others star codes because it helps to set you free and it helps to take you to a place of truth 
and serenity. So enjoy that at StarCodeClass.com, and I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. whatever you are doing. Okay, Richard, are you still there? You're going to say two cents worth here. Yeah, what can I say? Oh, I don't know. Right now, I'm annoyed with the Uranian effect, you know, Uranus effect. Uh, It'll, It'll... It'll kick you when you're up. It'll kick you when you're down. And it'll kick you all around. And <laughs> yeah, there'll that's, be other. There will, there will be. <laughs> there will be unexpected events in your life. So I guess you just have to get used to it. Yes, sir. Commander, sir. <laughs> all right. Much love to all my listeners. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Richard. See you on the bridge and in your dreams. Yeah. Okay. Peace out. Peace down. Peace out. All right. So we're going to go where, Ramon, here? Uh, 720 And the pin code is 353 353- Eight six three pow. All right. So we'll see everybody there for this next hour. And then we'll be right back here at the top of the following hour at BBS radio station two. The best radio there is in any time space continuum on any planet star system. Sun system. So we'll see you um, on the conference and right back here at the top of the next hour. So much love. Namaste, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Rama. Beautiful, beautiful music. So, what should we do now? I was just going to say with this. Um, Micah, in particular, on the conference call, was just giving all these wonderful remedies. Uh, uh, a brother of ours uh, at work, uh, uh, his friend there at work came down with the COVID, and um, Micah had been doing all kinds of research, so I'm just thinking out loud, maybe Penny and... Uh, uh, just to talk to Julie about maybe setting up a place on our website where all these neat things can be there for people uh, to take into considerations to, um, you know, clear this up. Uh, it's it's not over till the fat lady sings, eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, um, just making a suggestion and, I'm not the computer person right 
now, but between Julie and Penny and Randy and Micah and all you master computer folks and Rama, I mean, maybe we can get something like that going on our website. Teamwork. Is that what you want to do? Oh, okay. Rama is suggesting that we do this one from Gaia TV. It's called Cannabis, the Tree of Life. Oh, my goodness. Let me look this one up. <laughs> I think we'll get what we need from just, let's go. Let's do it, Rama. Okay. Let's just do it. miles south of Jerusalem. In the 1960s, researchers make an astonishing discovery while excavating an archaeological site called Tel Arad. A shrine dating back to at least 715 BCE. Inside, they collected charred remains of an unidentified plant material. According to a new report released in June of 2020, it was unidentifiable until advancements in chemical analysis made a breakthrough. The charred material was cannabis. It is the oldest discovery of cannabis in the ancient Near East confirming the substance played an important role in the spiritual lives of people in the kingdom of Judah. My understanding is that cannabis has been used widely in, in many cultures, everything from the Vedic traditions to Buddhism to Imbuiti and many of the South American traditions. Ancient India. Asia, Persia, and Africa. All are now known to have some ancient ceremonial connections between cannabis and their religion. I don't believe this other plant that served humans more than cannabis. Not only to deal with pain management, but to create soap, clothing, and you name it, you know, from hemp. The cannabis plant is one of the most important ones, and it's been in use for thousands and thousands of years. Cannabis is one of the oldest cultivated crops in the world and is emerging as a modern-day wonder of commerce and industry. As new genetic variations, medicines, and industrial uses are developed, some fear the cannabis plant will be changed forever. For some, this is part of a movement to live more harmoniously with nature. As we uncover new archaeological cannabis and hemp discoveries, 
we can construct a more complete understanding of this plant's role in human history. Could cannabis, with its many gifts for mankind, be the true tree of life? As a sacrament, cannabis was carried throughout the old world trade routes and can likely be traced back to ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, as well as the early days of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and as the Telerod discovery proved, Judaism. It's important to note the difference between the two primary subspecies of the plant. Cannabis sativa, with higher amounts of THC, possesses psychoactive properties. Cannabis sativa L, or hemp, does not and has primarily been cultivated for manufacturing textiles, oil, and food. The earliest written evidence of using the plant dates back to 2737 BCE, when descriptions of hemp oils and teas were recorded in Chinese Emperor Sheng Nung's Pen Sao Ching but use most likely dates back even further. There are archaeological sites in China. It appears that cannabis came out of China, and there some of these sites are at least 10,000 years old. It's clear from the plant materials that we've recovered that these were resinous forms of cannabis. They weren't hemp. They were actually medicine. Cannabis is the oldest cultivated plant in human history. Some say it is actually the tree of life, or an analogy of the tree of life, because it has so many uses, hundreds of uses. The concept of a sacred plant or tree is found in many ancient religions. For some, it's called the tree of life, a symbol of love fertility, wisdom, and immortality. The tree of life may also commemorate our symbiotic relationship with nature. Some faiths see it as a provider of healing nectar or a gateway to enlightenment. Sumerian translator and Gnostic scholar Anton Parks suggests that the tree of life is significant in human history and mythology. The story of the tree of life can be found in many cultures. The Gnostic texts mention it a lot. It relates to ways for people to achieve transcendence. We can see it in representations and through the very specific use shamans make of plants. I think that you can find this story, or possible story, mixed up in many cultures. The idea that you can enter in direct communication with the divine through plants. I believe that the tree of life is cannabis. When I look at what plant would be more useful to humanity, and rather than thinking that the tree of life had anything to do with the fall of humanity, 
I think keeping this plant away from the people has had a lot more to do with the fall of humanity. I feel that cannabis was one of the main plants in the Garden of Eden. And I feel that the reason that cannabis has come back in such a big way in our society is because we've gotten so out of balance with the masculine, with this force in the world of doing and taking and conquering. I think any powerful symbol like the tree of life is meant to mirror life in many different ways. So it can look like an actual tree. It can be our own neural networks. It can be what's going on beneath the soil. To me, it's the idea of as above, so below, as within, so without. The Arantia book says that there was an actual tree that grows throughout the universe and that a group of extraterrestrials brought a tree here about half a million years ago that would help them to be immortal and also help them to civilize humanity. Is it possible that this sacred plant may have originated from elsewhere in the universe? There's a tribe in Africa called the Dogon people. And they knew about Sirius B before we discovered it with our telescopes. And one of the interesting things about this culture, one of the many interesting things, is they use cannabis for many things in their tribe and in their livelihood for, we don't even know how long. They don't have a written history. But they said that cannabis was given to them by the star people from Sirius. The Dogon people called Sirius the two-dog star. And today, we call these two stars Sirius A and Sirius B. Curiously, in Latin, this constellation's name suggests something more profound. The word cannabis can be broke down into, you know, the word canine is for dogs, and bi means two. So cannabis, actually, we can define as meaning two dog star. If cannabis means the two dog star, what might be the significance of this beloved animal for the Dogon? Psychiatrist Stanislav Grof posits that celestial archetypes often act as spiritual guides during altered states of consciousness. If psychiatry goes in the right direction, in my opinion, it would be uh, working with these sacred medicines and using archetypal astrology as a guide. Archetypal astrology is amazing. It's amazing for people in these states to have some kind of guidance. What is happening to them to understand that it's not completely erratic. Modern agricultural practices have all but depleted the soil. Deforestation, pollution, and pesticides are doing long-term damage to the soil, mycelium, water, and the air we breathe. In modern agriculture, we have very little to no respect for what lives within the soil. Tilling destroys these very complex communities and networks of organisms, root systems, and mycelium 
that are part of the intelligence of the soil. I think when plants are grown inorganically, they're grown under lights, they're grown with chemicals and they're grown with the, the motivation of growing them for profit. I think this destroys the spirit of the plant. You need diversity in all systems of life and you need diversity in the cannabis world as well. I think the most fundamental thing that we could do to change the way we grow food or medicine is being in a state of relationship to come in a place of offering. In a more traditional model of agriculture, which is being more and more integrated into smaller scale settings, it's all about how well you take care of the soil, what you give back to the soil that allows you to have the kind of outcomes that you want in terms of a harvest. Despite all of the advances in technology and agriculture, hunger and starvation continue to plague the world. Hemp cannabis may offer solutions. It's a medicine and an industrial material. But can it also be a source of food? It's a plant that can provide fuel, medicine, fabric, paper, oil for cooking, and cannabis is one of the most nutritious plants on the face of the earth. The seeds alone, excellent profile of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids, which are so important for our brain health. We also know that cannabis seeds are high in protein and B vitamins and vitamin E, and it's a very versatile seed. As a possible food source, hemp consumes only one-third of the water of corn, a crop that is also heavily reliant on various pesticides. Gasoline. Hemp is not. It also has potential as fabric and paper. Now, another environmental problem is paper, and paper used to be made from hemp. And it doesn't yellow the way paper from trees does. Paper mills contribute to a major source of chemical pollution in waterways. Trees have a lot of a substance called lignin. And lignin requires a lot of chemicals to separate the lignins from the trees. Whereas cannabis has a lot less lignin and it can give its paper-making properties off with about one-seventh the amount of chemicals. It can even help wean us off fossil fuels. Hemp-derived biodiesel produces very low sulfur dioxide, and it doesn't deplete the soil. I see great possibilities ahead for use of this plant. That grows so easily. It can grow as tall as a tree in three months and put down a root system that nourishes the earth and the root decomposes. There's really nothing like it. Here's an ideal stand. The right height to be harvested easily, thick enough to grow slender stalks that are easy to cut and process. One of the oldest cultivated crops in the world. Cannabis just might be able to help the earth evolve into a cleaner, 
and more sustainable economy. But humans face increasing rates of disease. How bright is the future if those issues are not addressed as well? Be careful how you use it. For to grow hemp legally, you must have a federal registration and tax stamp. In recent years, the legal prohibition dam in the United States has burst. Yay! With state after state decriminalizing cannabis, the fastest growing commercial product from this plant is its medicine. Breakthroughs in research are documenting cannabis's therapeutic abilities with anxiety, pain management, and with the side effects from chemotherapy. This has led the way in changing the public's perception. And we're realizing that tremendous amount of benefits is almost good for everything. Fibromyalgia and lupus and immune system disorders and pain management as well, and giving it to cancer patients to uh, increase appetite. You know, I think the most amazing emerging evidence uh, regarding medical marijuana is effects against cancer. There were studies in the 70s, as early as the 70s, that indicated that cannabis stopped the growth of tumors and even reversed it wow. by stopping the blood flow into the tumors. I believe there are 435 different chemicals in the chemical plan. It's a matter of understanding what kind of resonance there needs to be between all of these chemicals to what level of degrees of strength and weakness they need to exist for us to treat this specific ailment, this specific disease. And this is where the engineering that needs to happen. To meet the demand for psychotropic effects, today's commercial cannabis is most often bred to have higher levels of THC. Humans have selected certain strains for certain characteristics, not unlike what we do with animals, for example. We get certain breeds that have certain characteristics by selecting and breeding those. And so this happens in the plant world as well. You can modify cannabis through conventional methods like selective breeding or even genetic engineering. You can create all sorts of tailored strains of cannabis. If you look at it in terms of this human-plant symbiosis relationship, it doesn't seem to mind that we can manipulate it in all kinds of ways. The therapeutic effects seem to be related to ratios between THC and CBD. They're really two different critters. They have different effects. And so biotechnology opens up the possibility that you can develop these designer strains of cannabis. If you want to breed for psychoactivity, you can have higher THC levels. If you want to breed for some of the benefits that CBD has, you can have high CBD strains of cannabis. CBD is technically, it's not psychoactive, but it does have analgesic effects and muscle relaxant effects and this sort of thing. But can this practice lower the ratio of other potentially beneficial cannabinoids? For a lot of the history of cannabis, people have focused on the effects of THC, which is one of the eight major cannabinoids. And THC has many medicinal properties, but it also, when burned or carbonized, it has a kind of high effect. 
And so some people are attracted to the use of these high THC strains for that high effect. But what happens is the other cannabinoids exist in a certain ratio. And if you have more of one cannabinoid, you have less of the other ones. So we have recently found that CBD and CBN are two of the other cannabinoids that have all of the medicinal properties of THC plus some, but they don't have the high effect. And these can be consumed as an edible. So this is good news for people who don't want to get high, but want to have all of the medicinal properties that this amazing plant offers. A debate remains over whether or not THC checks all the boxes as a psychedelic. Technically, cannabis is not a psychedelic from a neuroscience standpoint, and even really from an experiential standpoint, but cannabis is most certainly a teacher plant and certainly could be put in the category of these very profound master plants. I would not say cannabis is a psychedelic. THC that nature provides up to three, four percent, and now with the engineering and the cultivar and hydroponics can go up to 28, 29 percent. That's psychedelic. So cannabis can get psychedelic. What plant medicine traditions use cannabis as an accessory to aid the healing potency of the ceremonial psychedelic, and why? There is, I think, some branch of the Santa Daime that smokes marijuana in their ayahuasca ceremony and around their ayahuasca ceremonies, and they use it that way and work with it that way. For us, the people, at least my experience, is that it can interfere with our way of approaching things, and so it can interfere with, um, with the experience with ayahuasca. Not in every case, but in many cases. Cannabis is a really interesting energy because she kind of has a little bit of a trickster energy. In the Bwiti tradition, many times because it's a, it's a stimulant, it can be very activating. Cannabis can be used to calm and to ground. But one thing about cannabis is it can also reactivate other medicines. For instance, if you smoke cannabis after taking 5-MeO-DMT, you can go right back into a full experience without taking the 5-MeO. So I think that you have to be careful with cannabis, but it is traditionally part of the medicine bag of most, you know, medicine teachers in the indigenous traditions. So cannabis is a powerful plant medicine, highly regarded as a, as a master plant as well, even in the Amazon. And so I do see it as a spiritual teacher for many people. For the Shipibos, people that I work with, they just comment that marijuana, like many plants, has its dark side. It has its light side, its medicine side, and it has its dark side. The dark side of marijuana is a tendency towards anxiety tendency towards paranoia. You call it like a sticky energy, holding on. You don't progress emotionally, like delaying emotional maturation, you know, staying into some kind of adolescent um, attitudes about certain things so that they would warn that that's also there. So we need to like be aware of that and still find ways to use it medicinally. Is it possible that these imbalances can be harmful? 
and that the prohibition of cannabis was justified. The THC mostly affects the way your brain works. It interferes with your short-term memory, your concentration, even with how well you learn things. Like tobacco, inhaling marijuana smoke is dangerous to your lungs. It can be harmful to your heart, your reproductive system, and your immune system. And the chemicals in pot can stay in your body up to 30 days, long after the high wears off. Most experts agree it's not something that can kill an individual by overdosing. There's usually a, a, a mechanism, for example, uh, opiates. People die from overdose because it suppresses respiration. But cannabis just does not affect those core brainstem functions that maintain breathing and all the other things that are keep us going, you know, in the autonomic nervous system. So it's just a matter of they just don't have those effects. For decades, cannabis was demonized and criminalized, despite its relative safety, especially when compared to other substances. So, now can this plant finally bring even the most nature-blind consumers back to their senses? Early civilizations owe a debt of gratitude to hemp. Simple yet strong hemp ropes enabled us to conquer the oceans with our sailing vessels and helped us to domesticate livestock and horses, allowing us to migrate vast distances. While cannabis's spiritual potential is well established, hemp has important practical applications in the physical world. Astonishingly, our ancestors seemed to have an understanding of this as well. It wasn't just consumed or smoked. Hemp was literally one of the building blocks of civilization around the world. Cannabis is such a versatile plant, and we're still discovering its myriad of benefits. But in the ancient world, it's possible that cannabis was used as food, that it was used as medicine, that it was used as a fiber plant, that it was used for animal bedding. The leaves can be fodder for animals, for horses and goats and so forth. That it was used as building material, roofing. In the sixth century, the Merovingian dynasty built many bridges throughout the south of France. Made of stone and a hemp-based concrete, these structures have stood the test of time. This durable substance wasn't relegated to southern France. Nearly 5,000 miles away, near Maharashtra, India, a similar mixture of hemp and clay was found plastered on the walls of the Alora Caves. Over time, hemp fell out of favor, hastened by the prohibition of the plant. But now, coinciding with the acceptance of cannabis, hemp's versatility as a textile and building material is being rediscovered in some surprising ways. 
builders have updated the hemp concrete from Merovingian times. And many believe this is not only superior to traditional concrete, but more sustainable. Innovative products derived from hemp can also replace less sustainable materials for cars, homes, planes, shipping materials, paper goods, packaging, and clothing. So much of what we currently use, like plastic, is destructive to the environment or simply unsustainable. Could the re-emergence of hemp be one more way to help us live more harmoniously with nature? Cannabis is often consumed in a communal setting, helping individuals connect on a spiritual level. But what if it can make connections on a technological level by meeting our need for inexpensive supercapacitors and energy systems? Lithium batteries are used in just about all of our cutting-edge technologies, smartphones, computers, and even electric cars. While their ability to recharge cuts back on some waste, we pay a heavy price for their production, environmentally and economically. The extraction of lithium and graphene as well as the toxic chemicals needed to process them are polluting our soil, air, and water. Researchers are unlocking the capabilities of hemp-derived graphene, opening the possibility of creating batteries that are just as powerful, more sustainable, and cost a small fraction of today's leading tech. Cannabis has the potential to bring a more cost-effective and eco-friendly solution to our technological future. Could its mind-bending effects also hold the key to our spiritual future, bringing human beings back to the ecology of Gaia? I have great hopes for this plant, Cannabis Sativa. With so many problems on our planet, even though there's so many plants... This is one plant that can heal so many of the environmental travesties that we have going on. The world needs hemp. I know if I were going to another world and could bring one plant with me, it would be cannabis because there is nothing like it that can do so many things. In the next episode, explore the feminine revival of the guardians of plant spirits and their hidden potential to bring humans closer to nature. Oh, boy. That was perfect, Rama. Quite a journey. Okay, what's next? Um, uh, what about... There's another one that's... 
Do we want to do Matthias? Yeah. Vibratory language of Atlantis is what this one is called, everybody. And our brother, Matthias de Stefano, introduces us to the sacred vibratory language of Atlantis, which they use to build realities through their technology of frequency and sound. He explains that the universe divides its unity into different vibrations, which can be seen with the different names of God, the gods of Atlantis, the flower of life, and the Merkaba. As Matthias walks us through a deeper understanding, understanding, overstanding of the all-seeing eye, the sacred Om, and the vibrational foundations of the tree of life, we rediscover the power of connecting with these sacred frequencies to consciously build our reality through sound and vibration. Here we go. Let's do it. This is 38 minutes, everybody. of the gods and the goddesses. I am your host and guide, Matias Stefano. In this episode, we will discuss the origin of God and ideas that help create the structure we have today. For us today, the idea of God is something that we all already kind of know what it means. And even if we are atheists or believers, we have this concept of God incorporated in our bodies, in our emotions, in our minds. And this is because the origin of everything, the origin of, of the, the meaning of God was, in English, the origin of the word good. Everything that is good, everything that is fine for us, everything that makes us feel complete, full, that makes us feel that we are getting into another level, like going from the darkness to the light, that represents the good things for us. So we put those good things outside of us. And this is something that we created through a structure that is more biological than ideological. From the very beginning, the idea of the good was all the things that create an idealistic path towards evolution, towards our survival on Earth. And this comes from the first cell that needed to transform itself through eating something that was good. This idea was to create a biological system to transform the within so we could adapt to the outside. And this idea in the bottom of the oceans 
was to seek the light. Once we have eaten everything in the underseas, when we were unicellular beings, we needed to make photosynthesis in order to have something to, to feed us, to make us grow. So this was the light. And from the very beginning, the first cell of our bodies has this idea to reach the light to be fulfilled. So the seek of light in history was more biological. And the structure we have of everything that is good comes from what gives us food, what gives us a good environment to survive. And that is why when the consciousness start to be aware of the reality in this, in this world, when humanity realized about the environment they were living in, they kind of understood that the divine, the sun, was helping the plants to grow, was the weather that helped us to get the food, was the solstice and equinox that helped to understand the movement of the energy in the planet so we could know when to seed, when to harvest, when to eat, when to celebrate. So this change of weather, this change of the planet, the longest day, the shortest day, the moon, the sun, created this idea that the, the divine of nature was giving us something to survive. So all good things came from the light, from the moon, All these environmental things has this energy that feeds us, that gives us good things to be properly alive in this planet. So that's why we started to put on that the idea of the divine. This was the biological way in which we were connected to the concept of the divine. And once we understood that all these things that are good in the outside are not good by itself, but they are good because we feel within that they are good. The first thinkers of humanity realized that everything that was good outside, it was because our idea of them was good. So that brought those people to close their eyes and stop looking into the sun and the light and begin to look and to seek for the light within. In that moment, they realized that they were also connected to the divine, that they were part of that good, and that the only way to reach that good was to be connected to that. In the origin of the universe, the memory I have from that was that the divine was just a consciousness, a mind trying to understand itself. So this consciousness started to divide in many other parts so it could see itself in different perspectives. And this main vacuum, the void that started to vibrate and create all these other realities, recognized that in every single atom in the universe, he, she, it would be reflected. So everything that exists is divine. And when we put a consciousness to that, we realized that that divine is the consciousness of good. In that moment, when we recognized that everything was the perspective, a shape, 
a different reflection of just one only aspect of the universe. So then we realized that we were not honoring the good things outside, that we were honoring the shapes of this only one being that connects us all. From that moment, we recognized that everything was connected through just one energy and that if we honor the shapes, each one of those shapes, we could be honoring the reflections of ourselves through time and space. When people, the first humans in doing that, recognized that they had not the goal to survive, but to transcend, that was the moment when other beings from other dimensions and other planets came to Earth, because this concept of perspectives of God was something that helped the beings coming to the planet to teach the different parts of this reality and to help humans to understand that every part of the universe was divided from the self and that if we could understand each part of it, we could reach the key to open the portals to time, to space, and we could become those gods and goddesses in matter. The main goal of our civilizations in the first stage, the first stage was to try to understand how the universe worked so we could understand the concepts of God and the concepts of all the divine that was surrounding us. From that moment, we knew that every animal, every plant, every, every mountain, rock, and every human that was looking to us, it was God looking into us. So we were observed by just one only I. And that idea of being seen from many perspectives, just from one only I that was seeing everyone in the same spot, created the idea of the self, created the idea of the sun being that I, our eyes being the reflections to understand the consciousness of that I. And this I was the center of three main concepts in history, which was vibration, energy, and matter. From that, we took the will, the wisdom, and love. This concept with the I within would create the shape of this tetrahedron and the main concept of what God is. Even today, in many churches, we have this symbol of this triangle with an I within, which was the main code that we recognized in the past of this triangle creating a double cell, which we call the vesica pieces, creating this eye in the middle between this creation. That would create the spirit, the soul, and the body, the emotional way of seeing the universe and the mind, which was the first one creating everything. From this idea, the Arturian people, the Indian people, and after that, the Syrian people, came to this world to teach and give humans the key to open those eyes, open your eyes within. And to do so, we had three different eyes in our body. The first eye would be the consciousness, the first two cells splitting in two, 
dividing and creating the shape of an eye in the middle of two cells that were held in a triangle pointing north and another triangle pointing south, positive and negative. That image would create the concept of the third eye. The third eye would be the pineal gland that allows us to connect the two eyes in duality with the one inside. So God was seen through our eyes and that created the idea that the universe was like the same eyes and that everything surrounding the universe was a white space surrounded by this geometry of colors and galaxies all united by one point that received all lights which is a black spot in the universe from where everything came from and to where everything goes. This structure of God, the eye, was the most accurate shape to understand it. But then we had the vibration. When we change this position of the structure and we go down to the throat, what we find is the shape of the mouth. So what we understood about this new eye was that the second eye opening in the universe to understand God was the verb, the word. So universe saw itself, saw everything that was able to create and then said it. When they, when he said it, the first thing was the verb. The first thing was the vibration. So God said, this understanding made that Arturian people and Syrian people came to earth to see that humans had reached the idea of words. When we as humans found out that words were not only something to communicate, but also to, to transcend and transmit information, thoughts, dreams, concepts that cannot be seen, and emotions that cannot be expressed. When we understood that, other beings now the, in the Confederation realized that we were able to connect with that voice of the universe, so we were able to create and know for the first time the names of God. And the other one was dividing the cell into four And what we will have is another mouth and another shape of an eye, but this time vertical, that would create the shape of the vagina. The shape of the vagina told us that the creation of the universe was the womb of the mother. So the universe itself was a womb watching and vibrating. That's why for us in the past, the universe was not something masculine, it was feminine, and everything in our civilizations were, were created through women because we understood that women, the feminine aspect of biology, were the ones and the only ones capable to bring the spirit to be born in matter. This channeling of the information through these three mouths or three eyes were the ones helping us to understand the concept of God. And from that, we had to understand that everything surrounding us was God creating and seeing and vibrating. In the first 
cultures that had no connection with the people from the stars, they understood that Earth was talking to us through vibration. And they didn't see these structures, these realities outside like gods or goddesses. They saw that as a divine, as a part of the divine that they could reach, that they could touch, that they could feel. So shamanism and all other cultures connected to the nature, they understood that there was not God, that there was not many gods, that there was only a connection, a vibration that was expressed in every corner of the creation. When we took that information from the natural beings, the human natural beings, and we added the sky way of of thinking, the other cultures, other civilizations, what we could do was to name that energy and put an order on it. Serious people taught us as Atlanteans that the most important thing that we could understand was that the unity was divided in vibrations. So whenever we can say the names of God, of the vibration, we would reach the perfect amount of frequency to connect with the divine and information of the whole universe. The first idea was, if we have three eyes, these three eyes has three purposes. The first one was the inhalation. The second one was the contemplation. And the third one was the expression. This is this mind breathing that inspire itself, contemplates everything that he, she, it has done or can do. And after that, just exhale. When it happens, comes the creation. So we said that the first idea of God was breathing and that air and mind were connected. So as better we breathe, the best we can reach the idea and the mind and the clarity to understand God. That's why breathing is the same, is the first key to understand the divine. When we started to understand this breath, we call this process like the three ages, which would be ham, het, hum. This three age, this ham, het, hum, would express the first idea of what God is. And the story that we had was that in the beginning, the void started to breathe. And when it breathed, it started to dream, has three dreams. The first dream was the inspiration, the ideas. The second dream was to see everything that he was able to do. And the third dream was realizing that he, she, it could do it. So when it opened its eyes and saw everything, the story says that nine tears were dropped through the universe. And those nine tears were the first gods of being created. It was the nine rays of light coming from the eyes and nine vibrations that were creating everything. Those nine tears were called Wanim. The Wanim were the first nine dimensions 
the singer ones, those gods that were singing the creation and nourishing the creation with its white energy. The singers, the Hathur or Wanim, were the ones that started to create all the idea of what we call now the divine gods and goddesses. In Atlantean times, we call those nine dimensions of reality with just vowels, because we said if everything in the universe was created through vibration, so the first idea of God would be the vibration that creates us all through the nine dimensions. So we would put nine names to each one of those dimensions. A, A, E, I, Y, U, O, U, Wu. And the last one would be the breath. When we have this nine, we could understand that the divine would have nine houses. These nine houses would be divided in three. The ones of the spirit, Ham, would be A, A, E, and will be the three chakras above in our head. Then the contemplation would be the emotional step, Het, with I, Y, U, and the three chakras within the body. Then the last ones with the creation of the matter would be Hum, the expression. So the last three, O, U, Wu. These sounds are separated in the nine houses of the divine. And these nine houses would sound just with one vibration all together to say the name of God. The vibration is um, and what we name of it in a short sentence would be home. The first vibration after that would be the one that makes the light start to vibrate inside your head, which would be the M, the door letter. So that's why we, in every culture, call the first name of God like Om. This concept of all the divine in the nine houses would after divide in the process of four. Each one of those houses would have four letters living in that house. This would be the process of each one of those dimensions. So if we have nine dimensions divided each one in four parts, we would have the statements of the universe in the fourth dimension, which is time. So if each one of the nine of them has a process to take, that would create that the letter A would have an expression, an experimentation, an integration, and a transcendence to do. And each one of them would have a letter too. So the first four letters would be M, N, 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 which is the first portal or temple that every human has. Then, like this, we will go down to the whole body That gives us 36 letters, 36 sounds that are coming from these nine dimensions and these nine sounds that we call the first gods on the creation. 
but this 36 would have a positive and a negative. So we would find we'll have 36 negative and 36 positive, giving us 72 vibrations. Another way to understand is that the nine dimensions duplicate into other nine dimensions. That would give us 18 spheres. These 18 spheres connecting one to another into positive and negative will give us the flower of life. This flower of life would have imprinted inside of it the codes of the Merkaba to tetrahedrons. These tetrahedrons within will activate in each one of its points other three activations of consciousness. So what we will have now is that this 18, nine positive and nine negative, will have 36 positive and 36 negative, giving us 72 vibrations. These 72 vibrations through time and space will give us the 72 names of God. The 72 names of God in the subtle realities, in the dimensions over the sixth dimension, six, seven, eight, and nine dimensions, will give us the realities in which we were able to create. So the gods would be 72 aspects of just one divine trying to express the subtle world, this, the dimensions of the creation. And after that, the 72 will duplicate itself in the dimensions of density, which would be five, four, three, two, one. These other dimensions would be the dimensions where the other 72 will be expressed. So in density, we will have another 72, giving us the number 144. The vibration 144, it is the one that connects every positive, negative, dense, subtle expression of the flower of life. And it has inside the seed and outside it projects the tree. So in the tree, every world, every galaxy, every reality would be created. So the first eye would be now duplicated in thousands and thousands of them, creating the Wanim and what we call after that the Elohim. The Elohim would be the first structures or beings that represents the gods and the goddesses in the sixth dimension. And from them, all the structures that came to the third dimension will be divided in different aspects of the god. So for us in our planet, God and goddess are the positive and the negative expressions of the reality. And every dimension that was created, every vibration, every, every letter, these 36 consonants with these nine vowels would be the keys, the tools to create, to, to play, to understand how to build realities through sound. And that is why, for us, in Atlantean times, vibration, sound, was a technology, because we understood the power to connect with the vibration 144. That number 
would bring us to the consciousness and the aware of God. But in order to do that, we have to honor every one of them. And that is why polytheism in the past was not something that honored the different gods. Polytheism was something that helped us to focus in one and each aspect of the divine so each one of us could see to the eyes the sphere of God. And there were not different gods or different people. They were just aspects or people representing those concepts of God. And of course, when we reached the time to put them all together, the enlightened ones, the ones who could see the eye within, would bring the message to remember us that there is only one God. So that's how monotheism came to this world. The only problem that we had after that was that we put that one outside and not within where it was meant to be. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In the next episode, we will dive deeper into the pantheon of gods and goddesses of Egypt. Okay, we're done now. Mm. We're all avataric agents of happiness now, everybody. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh my goodness. That young man is somewhere around, what, 27, 28 years old. Mm. What were you doing at that lovely age? Mm. I know there's quite a few of us that are here that are not even that lovely age. <laughs> um, so, this will bring back uh, good good vibrations. We're going to play Joseph Campbell with our our brother Bill Moyers and talk about dragons. Here we go. Mm-hmm. The Hero's Adventure. Send good vibrations to our sister angel, Sue. She absolutely loves Joseph Campbell. She's grinning eh, right now. Here we go. Coming. <laughs> oh. Started by the family that's just rambling on. Oops. Thank you. 
not even to risk the adventure alone, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we should come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we should be with all the world. Hero's Adventure. He was the teacher everyone would like to have. He was the archetype, to use one of his favorite words, the original, the ideal. One of his students at Sarah Lawrence College, where Campbell taught for almost 40 years, described him as a beaming flashlight into the darkness. The director, George Lucas, said of Campbell, if it hadn't been for him, it's possible I would still be trying to write Star Wars. Mm -hmm. When I met him late in his life, college students across the country had been reading Campbell's influential book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, for years. Scholars poured over his four-volume study of mythology, The Mask of God. Now he was working on a monumental historical atlas of world mythology. Yet beyond the classroom and lecture halls, only a relative handful of people had ever seen Joseph Campbell in person or heard him speak. That changed with our series. As the broadcast played out over six consecutive weeks, the accumulating insight and wisdom had an enormous, unexpected impact. Thousands of letters poured into public television stations around the country. One that I received soon after the first broadcast from a woman in Kew Gardens, New York, summed up the collective reaction. She said, I will never be the same. The series has been repeated over the years, and people continue to stop me in public to say simply, Joseph Campbell changed my life. I say to all of them, yes, he was a great teacher. But exactly how and why he touched so many different lives, I can't say. But I can say this. At a time when millions of people were yearning for a way of talking about religious experience without regard to a rigid belief system, Campbell gave them the language for it. He said myths were clues to our spiritual nature and they could help guide us to a sacred place within where we might unlock the creative power of our deeper unconscious self. And then there was the brilliant clarity he brought to the great and enduring theme of mythology across the ages, the hero's adventure. He tracked that theme in the symbols, stories, and rituals that keep appearing in different cultures, coming alive in literature, art, and religion, and today in movies, comic books, and yes, video games. Campbell believed the most heroic of all acts is the courage to discover who you are 
and what you would like to be, to slay the savage dragon of the ego, and to follow your bliss to the truth of your life. We taped these conversations at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in California over the last two summers of Campbell's life. Naturally, we begin with his favorite subject, the hero with a thousand faces. Why the hero with a thousand faces? Well, because there is a certain typical hero sequence of actions, um, which can be detected in stories from all over the world and from many, many periods of history. And uh, I think it's uh, essentially, you might say, the one deed done by many, many different people. Why are there so many stories of the hero or of heroes in mythology? Well, because that's what's worth writing about. I mean, even in in uh, popular novel writing, you see, these the main character is a hero or a heroine. That is to say someone who has found or achieved or done something beyond the normal range of uh, achievement and experience. A hero properly is someone who has given his life to something bigger than himself or other than himself. So in all of these cultures, whatever the costume the hero might be wearing, what is the deed? Well, there are two types of deed. One is the physical deed, the hero who has performed a, a war act or a physical act of heroism, saving a life, that's a hero act, uh, giving himself, sacrificing himself uh, to another. And the other kind is the uh, spiritual hero who has uh, learned or found a, uh, a mode of um, experiencing the... Uh, supernormal range of human uh, spiritual life and then come back and communicated it. It's a cycle. It's a going and a return that the hero cycle represents. But then this can be seen also in the simple initiation ritual where a child has to give up his childhood and become an adult. Has to die, you might say, to its infantile personality and psyche and come back as a self-responsible adult. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. We're in our childhood for at least 14 years, and then to get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition finding the source of life to bring you forth in a uh, richer or more mature or other condition. So that if we happen not to be heroes in the grand sense of redeeming <clears throat> society, we have to take that journey ourselves spiritually, psychologically, inside us. That's right. And uh, Otto Rock in his wonderful, very short book, uh, called The Myth of the Birth of the Hero. He says that everyone is a, a hero in his birth. He has undergone a tremendous transformation from a little, uh, you might say, water 
creature living in a realm of the amniotic fluid and so forth, and then coming out, becoming an air-breathing mammal that ultimately will be self-standing and so forth. This is an enormous transformation, and it is a heroic act. And it's a heroic act on the mother's part to bring it about. That's the primary hero. Form, you might say. Still a journey to be taken after that. There's a big one to be taken. And that journey is not consciously undertaken. Uh, do heroes go out on their own initiative? Uh, well, they're both kinds. A very common one that appears in Celtic myths of someone who has followed the lure of a deer or animal that uh, he has been following and then carries him into a range of forest and landscape that he's never been in before. And then the the animal will undergo a transformation and become the queen of the fairy hills or something like that. That is one of not knowing what you're doing. You suddenly find yourself in full career of an adventure. There's another one where one sets out responsibly and uh, intentionally to perform the deed. For instance, when Ulysses' son, Telemachus, was called by Athene, go find your father, that father quest is a major hero uh, adventure for young people that is uh, the adventure of finding what your career is what your nature is what your source is um, he undertakes that intentionally then there's one into which you are thrown and pitched for instance being drafted into the army you didn't intend it but you're in you're in another transformation you've undergone a death and resurrection you put on a uniform another creature. So does the heroism have a moral objective? The moral objective is that of saving a people or saving a person or saving an idea. He is sacrificing himself for something. That's the morality of it. Now you, from another position, might say that something was something that should not have been realized, you know. That's judgment from another side. But it doesn't destroy the heroism of what was done. Absolutely not. Well, that's a different uh, angle on heroes than I got when I was reading as a, as a young boy. The story of Prometheus going after the fire and bringing it back and benefiting humanity and suffering yeah. for it. I mean, Prometheus brings fire to mankind and consequently civilization. That's, by the way, a, a universal thing. The hero, the the fire fire theft theme, with a usually with a relay race after it. Often it's a blue jay or a woodpecker or something like this that you know, steals the fire and then passes it on to something else and something else, one animal after another, and they're burned by the fires as they're carrying it on, and that accounts for the different colorings of animals and so forth. Um, it's a it's a uh, a worldwide myth. The fire theft. Do these stories of the hero uh, vary from culture to culture? Well, it's the degree of the illumination that uh, or action that makes him different. There is a typical early culture hero who goes around slaying monsters. Now, that is uh, in the period of history when man is shaping his world out of a wild, savage, unshaped world. Well, it has another shape, but it's not the shape for man. He goes around killing monsters. So the hero evolves over time, like most other concepts and ideas. And well, he, he evolves as the culture evolves. Yeah. 
Now, uh, Moses is a, is a hero figure, and his uh, ascent of the mountain is meeting with Yahweh on the summit of the mountain and coming back with the rules for the formation of the whole new society. That's the hero act. Departure, fulfillment, return. And uh, on the way, there are adventures that uh, can be paralleled also in other traditions. Now, the Buddha figure, it's like that of the Christ course, 500 years earlier, you could match those two traditions right down the line, even to the characters of their apostles or their monks. Christ, uh, now there's a, a perfectly good hero deed formula represented there, and he undergoes three temptations. The economic temptation where the devil says, you look hungry, young man, change the stones to bread. Jesus said, man lives not by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God. Next, we have the political temptation. He's taken to the top of a mountain and shown the nations of the world. and says, you can come into control of all these if you'll bow to me. And then, now oh, you're so spiritual. Let's go up to the top of Herod's temple and see you cast yourself down. And the God will bear you up and you won't even be bruised or healed. So he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, those are the three temptations of, of Christ. Uh, in the desert, the Buddha also goes into the forest, has conferences with the leading gurus of the day, and goes past them, comes to the bow tree, the tree of illumination, undergoes three temptations. They're not the same temptations, but they are three temptations. And one is that of lust, another is that of fear, and another is that of social duty, doing what you're told. And then both of these men come back and they choose disciples who help them establish a new way of consciousness in terms of what they have discovered there. These are the same hero deeds. These are the spiritual hero deeds. Moses, the Buddha, Christ, Muhammad. Muhammad literally, and we know this about him. He was a camel caravan master. But he would leave his uh, home and go out into a little mountain cave that he found and meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. And one day a voice says, right, and we have the Koran, you know. It's an old story. Sometimes it seems to me that that we ought to feel pity for the hero instead of admiration. Uh, so many of them have sacrificed their own needs. They all have. And very often what they, what they accomplish is shattered by the inability of the followers to see. Yeah. They come out of the forest with gold and it turns to ashes. That's another motif that occurs. In this culture of easy religion, cheaply achieved, it seems to me we've forgotten that all three of the great religions teach that the trials of the hero journey are a significant part of it, that there's no reward without renunciation and without a price. The Koran speaks, do you think that you should enter the garden of bliss without such trials as come to those who passed before you? Well, if you realize what the real problem is, and that is of losing... Uh, primary think 
primarily thinking about yourself and your own self-protection, losing yourself, giving yourself to another. That's that's a trial in itself, is it not? There's a big transformation of consciousness that's concerned. And what all the myths have to deal with is transformation of consciousness. That uh, you're thinking in this way, and you have now to think in that way. Well, how is the consciousness transformed? By the trials. The test that the hero Tests are certain illuminating revelations. Trials and revelations are what it's all about. Well, who in society today is making any heroic myth at all for us? Do movies do this? Do movies create heroic myths? I don't know. Uh, my experience of movies, I mean, the significant experience I had of movies was when I was a boy, and they were all really movies. They weren't talkies. They were black and white movies. And uh, I had a, a hero figure who uh, meant something to me, and he served as a kind of model for myself in my uh, in my physical character, and that was Douglas Fairbanks. I wanted to be a synthesis of Douglas Fairbanks and Leonardo da Vinci. That was my <laughs> idea. But those were models, were roles that came to me. Does a movie like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure for the hero? Oh, it's perfect. It does the, the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. One of the wonderful things I think about this uh, adventure into space is that the narrator, the uh, artist, the one thinking up the story, is in a field that is not covered by our own knowledges, you know. Though it's much of the adventure in the old stories is where they go into regions that no one's been in before. Well, we've now conquered the planet, so there are no empty spaces for the imagination to go forth and fight its own uh, war, you know, with uh, powers. And uh, that was the first thing I, I felt. That there's a, a whole new realm for the imagination to open out and live its forms. Do you, when you look at something like Star Wars, recognize some of the themes of the hero throughout mythology? Well, I think that George uh, Lucas was using standard mythological figures. The old man as the advisor, well, specifically, what he made me think of is the uh, Japanese sword master. Remember, a Jedi can feel the Force flowing through him. I've known some of those people, and um, this man has a bit there, their character. Well, there's something mythological, too, isn't there, in the sense that the hero is helped by this stranger who shows up and gives him some instrument, a sword or a sheaf of yeah, light. Yeah, but he life. gives him not only a physical instrument, but a psychological so commitment and a psychological center. This time, let go your conscious self. And act on instinct. Well, he had him exercising with that strange weapon and then pulled the mask over. That's real Japanese stuff. When I took our two sons to see it, they did the same thing the audience did at that moment when the voice of Ben Kenobi 
says to Luke Skywalker in the climactic moment, Use the Force, Luke. Let go, Luke. The audience broke out into they did. elation and to applaud. Well, you see, this thing communicates. It is in a language that is talking to young people today. And that's, that's marvelous. So the hero goes for something. He doesn't just go along for the ride. He's not a mere adventurer. Well, a serendipitous adventure can take place also. Um, you know what the word serendipity comes from? It comes from the Sanskrit, serendipa, the isle of silk, which was a former, formerly the name of Ceylon. And it's a story about a family that's just rambling on its way to Ceylon and all these adventures take place. Uh, so you can have the serendipitous adventure as well. Is the adventurer who takes that kind of uh, trip a hero in the yeah, mythological He is ready for it. This is a, a, a very interesting thing about these uh, mythological themes. The achievement of the hero is one that he is ready for, and it's really a manifestation of his character. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, man. I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. The mercenary solo begins as a, as a mercenary and ends up as a hero. He was a, a very practical guy, a... Uh, a materialist in his character, at least as he thought of himself, but he was a, a compassionate human being at the same time and didn't know it. The adventure evoked a quality of his character that uh, he had known he possessed. I love you. He thinks he's an egoist, he really isn't. And uh, that's a very lovable kind of human being, I think, and there are lots of them functioning beautifully in the world. They think they're working for themselves, very practical and all, but no, there's something else pushing them. What did you think about the scene in the bar? That's my favorite, not only in this piece, but in many, many pieces I've ever seen. Well... Where you are is on the edge. You're about to embark into the outlying spaces. And a uh, real adventure. A real adventure. This is the, the jumping off place. And there is where you meet people who've been out there. And they run the machines that go out there. And you haven't been there. It reminds me a little bit in um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island the atmosphere before you start off the adventure. You're in a seaport and there's old salt seamen who've been on the sea and they that's their world and these are the space people also. I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> the wall! Don't just stand there try and break it with something! My favorite scene was when they were in the garbage compactor and the walls were closing in and I thought that's like the belly of the whale that joked that's about. what it is yeah that's where they were down in the belly of the whale what's the mythological significance of the belly it's the descent into the dark 
Jonah in the whale. I mean, that's that's a standard motif of going into the whale's belly and coming out again. Why must the hero do that? The whale represents the uh, personification, you might say, of all that is in the unconscious. In reading these things psychologically, water is the unconscious. The creature in the water would be the dynamism of the unconscious, which is is dangerous and powerful and has to be uh, controlled by consciousness. The first stage in the uh, hero adventure, when he starts off on adventure, is leaving the realm of light, which he controls and knows about, and moving toward the uh, the threshold. And it's at the threshold that the monster of the abyss comes to meet him. And then there are two or three results. One, the hero is cut to pieces and descends into the abyss in fragments to be resurrected. Or he may kill the dragon power, as Siegfried does when he kills the dragon. But then he takes the dragon blood, as say he has to assimilate that power. And when Siegfried has killed the dragon and tasted the blood, he hears the song of nature. He has transcended his humanity, you know, and uh, 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 re-associated himself with the powers of nature, which are the powers of our of our life, from which our mind removes us. You see, this thing up here, this consciousness thinks it's running the shop. It's a secondary organ. Yeah. It's a secondary organ of a, of a total human being, and it must not put itself in control. It must submit and serve the humanity of the body. When it does put itself in control, you get this father, the man who's gone over to the intellectual side. I'll never join you if you only knew the power of the dark side. Isn't the thing in our living in terms of humanity is living in terms of a system. And this is a threat to our lives. We all face it. We all operate in our society in relation to a system. Now, is the system going to eat you up (laughs) and relieve you of your humanity? Or are you going to be able to use the system to human purposes? Would the hero with a thousand faces help us to answer that question about how to change the system so that we are not serving it? I don't think it would help you to change the system, but it would help you to live in the system as a human being. By doing what? Well, like Luke Skywalker, not going over, but resisting its its uh, impersonal claims. But I can hear someone out there in the audience saying, well, that's all well and good for the imagination of a George Lucas or for the scholarship of a Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. but that doesn't isn't what happens in my life. You bet <laughs> it does. If the person doesn't listen to the demands of his own spiritual and, and heart life, and uh, insists on a certain program, you're going to have a schizophrenic crack-up. The yeah. person has put himself off-center. He has aligned himself with a programmatic life, and it's not the one the body's uh, interested in at all. Yeah. The world's full of people who have uh, who have stopped listening to themselves 
in my own life, I've had many opportunities to commit myself to a system and to go with it and to obey its uh, requirements. My life has been that of a maverick. Uh, I would not submit. You really believe that the creative spirit ranges on its own out there beyond the boundaries? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Something of the hero in that. I don't mean to suggest that you see yourself as a hero. No, I don't, but I see myself as a maverick. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps the hero lurks in each one of us when we don't know it. Well, yes. I mean, our life evokes our character, and you find out more about yourself as you go on. And it's very nice to be able to put yourself in situations that will evoke your higher nature rather than your lower. Give me an example. I can give you a story. I'm dealing with an, an Iroquois story right now. There's a motif that comes in American Indian uh, stories very often, what I call the refusal of suitors. A girl with her mother lived in a wigwam on the edge of the village. She was a very handsome girl, but extremely proud, and uh, would not accept any of the boys. They proposed to her through the mother, and the mother was terribly annoyed with her. Well, one day, they're out collecting wood, and they have gone a long way from the village. And while they are collecting the wood, a terrific darkness comes over them. Now, this wasn't the darkness of night descending. When you have a darkness like that, there's some magician at work somewhere. So uh, the mother says, uh, well, let's uh, gather some bark and make a little wigwam, a bark wigwam for ourselves, and uh, collect wood for a fire, and we'll just spend the night here. So they do that, and the mother falls asleep. And the girl looks, and there's this magnificent guy standing there with a wampum sash, glorious and feathers and all this kind of black feathers. He says, I've come to marry you, and I'll await your reply. She accepts the guy, and the mother accepts the man. And he gives the mother the wampum belt to prove that uh, he's serious about all this. So he goes away with the girl. She has acquiesced. Mere human beings weren't good enough for her, but here's something that really, ah, uh, so she's in another domain. Now, the adventure is marvelous. She goes uh, with him to his village, and they enter uh, his uh, lodge. The people in there greet her, and she feels very comfortable about it and all. And then the next day, he says, I'm going off to hunt. So he leaves the lodge, and the door is closed with a flap. There's a flap. When he closes the flap, she hears a strange sound. So the, there's the whole day, and she's just in the hut. And as evening comes, she hears that strange sound again. And the door flap is flung off, and in comes this prodigious serpent with his tongue darting, and he puts his head in her lap and says, now you must search my head for lice and things like that. And she finds all kinds of horrible things there, kills them all, and then he withdraws. And in a moment, after the gate door has been closed, it opens again, and then he comes, the same beautiful young man again, and said, uh, were you afraid of me when I came in just now? No, she said she wasn't at all afraid. Next day he goes off to hunt. 
And then she leaves the lodge to gather wood. And the first thing she sees is an enormous serpent basking on the rocks. And then another. And then another. And she began to feel very badly, very homesick and discouraged. Then the evening, the serpent, and then the man again. The third day, when he leaves, she decides she's going to try to get out of this place. So she goes out, and she's standing in the woods thinking, and a voice speaks to her, and she turns, and there's a little old man there. And he says, darling, you are in trouble. The man that you've married is one of seven brothers. They are great magicians. And uh, like many people of this kind, their hearts are not in their bodies. There's a collection of seven hearts in a bag that is hidden under the bed of the eldest to whom you are married. You must go get that, and then we'll deal with the next part of the adventure. She goes in and finds a bag of hearts and is running out, and a voice calls after her, Stop, stop, it's the voice of the magician. And she continues to run. He says, You may think you can get away from me, but you never can. And just at that point, she hears the voice of the old man. He says, I'll help you there. And he's pulling her out of the water. She didn't even know that she was in water. What does that say to you? That's to say you have moved out of the hard land, the solid earth, and are in the field of the unconscious. And she had pulled herself into the uh, transcendent realm and got caught in the negative powers of the abyss. And she's being rescued now by the upper powers what you have done has been to elevate yourself out of the local field and put yourself in a field of higher power, higher danger. And uh, are you going to be able to handle it? If you are not eligible for this place into which you put yourself, it's going to be a demon marriage. It's going to be a real mess. Uh, if you are eligible... It can be a glory that will uh, give you a life that is, is yours in your own way. So these stories of mythology are simply trying to express a truth that can't be grasped any other way. It's the edge, the interface between what can be known and what is never to be discovered because it is a mystery transcendent of all human research, the source of life. What is it? No one knows. Why are stories important for getting at that? Well, I think it's it's important to live life with a knowledge of its mystery and of your own mystery. And it gives life a, a new zest, a new balance, a new harmony to do this. Therapy and psychological therapy, when people find out what it is that's ticking in them, they get straightened out. And uh, what is it that life is? I find thinking in mythological terms uh, has helped people. I'm visibly, you can see it happen. How? What does it do? It, it uh, erases anxieties. It puts them in accord with the inevitables of their life, uh, and and they can see the uh, the positive values of what are 
the negative aspects of what is positive. It's, uh, it's, it's whether you're going to say no to the serpent or yes to the serpent. It's easy as that. No to the adventure? Yeah, the adventure of being alive, of living. Well, when I was growing up, tales of King Arthur, tales of the medieval knights, tales of the dragon slayers were very strong in my world. Dragons represent greed, really. The European dragon guards things in his cave, and what he guards are heaps of gold and virgins. And he can't make use of either of them, but he just guards. There's no vitality of experience, either of the value of the gold or of the female whom he's guarding there. Psychologically, the dragon is one's own binding of oneself to one's ego, and you're captured in your own dragon cage. And uh, the problem of the psychiatrist is to break that dragon, open him up, so that you can have a larger field of uh, relationships. Jung had a patient come to him who felt alone, and she drew a picture of herself as a caught in the rocks. From the waist down, she was bound in rocks. And this was on a windy shore, and the wind blowing, and her hair blowing, and all the gold, which is the sign of the vitality of life, was locked in the rocks. And the next picture that he had her draw had followed something he had said to her. Suddenly, uh, a lightning flash hit the rocks, and the gold came pouring out. And then she found reflected on rocks round about the gold. And there was no more gold in the rocks. It was all available on the top. And in the conferences that followed, those patches of gold were identified. They were her friends. She wasn't alone. But she had locked herself in her own little room and life. But she had friends. Do, do you see what I'm meaning? This is killing the dragon. And uh, you have fears and things. Uh, this is the dragon. That's exactly what that's all about. At least the European dragon. Chinese dragon is different. What is it? It represents the vitality of the swamps. And the dragon comes out beating his... Belly is saying, ha, 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 ha. You know, that's another kind of dragon. And uh, he's the one that yields the bounty and the waters and all that kind of thing. He's the great, glorious thing. But this is the negative one that comes down. So what you're saying is if there are not dragons out there, and there may not, not be... The, the real moment. dragon is in you. What is that real dragon? That's your ego holding you in. What's my ego? What I want, what I believe what I can do, what I think I love, and all that. What I regard as the aim of my life and so forth. It might be too small. It might be that which pins you down. And if it's simply that of doing what the environment tells you to do, it certainly is pinning you down. And so the environment is your dragon as it reflects within yourself. How do I slay? How do you slay that dragon in me? 
What's the journey I have to make? You have to make. Each of us has to make. You talk about something called the soul's high adventure. My general formula for my students is follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Can my bliss be my life? Love well, or my life's work? Is life. it my work or my life? Well, if the work that you're doing is the work that you chose to do because you were enjoying it, that's it. But if you think, oh, gee, I couldn't do that, you know, that's your dragon that's locking you in. Oh, no, I couldn't be a writer. Oh, no, I couldn't do what so-and-so is doing. Unlike the classical heroes, we're not going on our journey to save the world, but to save ourselves. And in doing that, you save the world. I mean, you do. The influence of a vital person vitalizes. There's no doubt about it. The world is a wasteland. People have the notion of saving the world by shifting it around and changing the rules and so forth. And No, any world is a living world if it's alive. And the thing is to bring it to life. And the way to bring it to life is to find in your own case where your life is and be alive yourself, it seems to me. But the power of the teacher, isn't it, to, to bring vitality to others, to make others see the vitality in them? Children. Well, it happens. That's one of the delights of teaching. I mean, when you're not teaching in order to have an easy job, but because you, you really have something to teach and you love young people and you want to give what you've got found to them. And to see them come alive is, is the reward of teaching. You say I have to take that journey and go down there and slay those dragons. Do I have to go alone? If you have someone who can help you, that's fine too. But uh, ultimately, the, the last trick has to be done by you. In all of these journeys of mythology, there's a place everyone wishes to find. What is it? The Buddhists talk of nirvana. Jesus talks of peace. There's a place of rest and repose. Is that typical of the hero's journey? That there's a place to find? That's a place in yourself of rest. Now this I, I know a little bit about from athletics. The athlete who is uh, in championship form has a quiet place in himself. And... Uh, it's out of that that his action comes. If he's all in the action field, uh, he's not performing properly. There's a center out of which you act. And Jean, my wife, a dancer, tells me that in dance, this is true too. There's the center that has to be known and held. There, it's quite physically recognized by the person. But uh, unless this center has been found, you're torn apart. Tension comes. Now, the Buddha's word is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological state of mind. It's not a place like heaven. It's not something that's not here. It is here in the middle of the turmoil, what's called samsara, the whirlpool of life conditions. The, that nirvana is what? is the condition that comes when you are not compelled by desire or by fear or by social uh, commitments. When you hold your center and act out of there. 
And like all heroes, the Buddha doesn't show you the truth, the illumination. He shows you the way to the way. But it's got to be your way too. I mean, how should I get rid of fear? The Buddha can't tell me how I'm going to do it. There are exercises that uh, different teachers will give you, but they may not work for you. Um, and uh, all a teacher can do is give you a clue of the direction. He's like a lighthouse that says there are rocks over here and they're clear. You talk a lot about consciousness. Yes. Most people hear that term and, like me, have only a veiled understanding of it. What is it? Gene and I are, are, are living in Hawaii, and uh, we're living right by the ocean, and we have a little lanai, a little porch, and uh, there's a coconut tree that grows up through that porch and goes on up. And uh, there's a, a kind of vine plant, a big powerful thing with leaves like this, that has grown up the coconut tree. Now that plant sends forth little uh, feelers to go out and, and clutch the plant, and it, it knows where the plant is and what to do, and where the tree is, and it, it grows up like this, and it opens a leaf, and that leaf immediately turns to where the sun is. Now you can't tell me that leaf doesn't know where the sun is going to be. All of the leaves go just like that, what's called heliotropism, turning toward where the sun is. That's a form of consciousness. There is a, a plant consciousness. There is a animal consciousness. And we share all of these things. You eat certain foods and the bile knows whether there's something there for it to go to work on. I mean, this whole thing is consciousness. I begin to feel more and more that the whole world is conscious. Uh, certainly the vegetable world is conscious. And when you live in the woods, as I did as a kid, you can see all these uh, different consciousnesses relating to themselves. Now, it is a part of the sort of um, Cartesian uh, mode to think of consciousness as being something peculiar to the head, that this is the organ originating consciousness. It isn't. It's an organ that inflects consciousness to a certain direction, a certain set of purposes. But there's a whole consciousness here in the body. And uh, the whole living world is informed by consciousness. I have a feeling that uh, consciousness and energy are the same thing somehow. Where you really see energy, there is consciousness. Scientists are beginning to talk quite openly about the Gaia principle. There you are, the whole planet as an organism. Mother Earth. And you see, if you will think of ourselves as coming out of the Earth, rather than as being thrown in here from somewhere else, you know, thrown out of the Earth, we are the Earth. We are the consciousness of the Earth. These are the eyes of the Earth. And this is the voice of the Earth. What else? How do we raise our consciousness? Well, that's a matter of what you are disposed to think about. And uh, that's what meditations are for. And all of life is a meditation. Most of it unintentional. A lot of people spend most of it in meditating on where their money's coming from and where it's going to go. But that's a level of meditation. Or if you have a family to bring up, you're your concern for the family. Uh, these are all perfectly uh, 
very important concerns, but they have to do with, with physical conditions mostly and spiritual conditions of the children, of course. But how are you going to communicate spiritual consciousness to the children if you don't have it yourself? So how do you get that? Then you think about the myths. What the myths are for is to bring us into a, a, a level of consciousness that is spiritual. Just for example, I walk off 52nd Street and 5th Avenue into St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've left a very busy city and uh, one of the most uh, fiercely economically inspired cities on the planet. I walk into that cathedral and everything around me speaks of spiritual mystery. The mystery of the cross, what's that all about there? The stained glass windows which bring another atmosphere in. My consciousness has been brought up onto another level altogether. And I am on a different platform. And uh, then I walk out and I'm back in this one again. Now, can I hold something from that? Well, certain prayers or meditations that are associated with the whole context there... Uh, these are what are called mantras in India, uh, little meditation themes that hold your consciousness on that level instead of letting it drop down here all the way. And then what you can finally do is to recognize that this is simply a lower level of that. The cathedral at Charlotte you love so much oh, well. also expresses a relationship of the human to the cosmos, doesn't it? Well, I think everyone who has spent any time at Chart has felt something very special about this cathedral. I've been there about eight times. When I was a student in Paris, I went down there about five times and spent one whole weekend, and I identified and uh, looked at every single figure in that cathedral. I was there so much that the concierge, this little old fellow who took care of the cathedral, he came to me one noontime and he said, uh, would you like to go up with me and ring the bells? I said, I sure would. So we climbed the flesh, the, the tower up to where the great bell was, the great enormous bronze bell. And uh, there was a little, like a seesaw, and he stood on one end of the seesaw, and I stood on the other end of the seesaw, and there was a little bar there for us to hold on to. He gave the thing push, and then he was on it, and I was on it. We started going up and down, and the wind blowing through our hair up there in the cathedral, and then it began underneath, bong, you know, bong, bong. I said it was one of the most thrilling adventures of my life, and uh, when it was all over, he brought me down. He said, I want to show you where my my room is. Well, in a cathedral, you, you have the nave, and then the transept, and then the apse. And around the apse is the choir screen. Now, the choir screen in shot is about that wide. And he took me in a little do uh, door into the middle of the choir screen, and there was his little bed and a little table with a lamp on it. And when I looked out, there was the black Madonna, the vitrine, the window of the black Madonna, and that was where he lived. 
and there was a man living in a meditation, a constant meditation. I mean, that, that was a very moving, beautiful thing. Well, I've been there time and time again since. What do you find when you go there? What does it say about all that we've been discussing? Well, the first thing it, it, it says is it takes me back to a time when these principles informed the society. I mean, the, you can tell what's informing the society by the size of the, what the building is that's the tallest building in the place. When you approach a medieval town, the cathedral's the tallest thing in the place. When you approach a 17th century city, it's the political palace that's the tallest thing in the place. And when you approach a modern city, it's office buildings and dwellings that are the tallest things in the place. And if you go to Salt Lake City, you'll see the whole thing illustrated right in front of your face. First, the temple was built. The temple was built right in the center of the city. Yeah, I mean, this was a proper organization. That's the spiritual center from which all flows in all directions. And then the capital was built right beside the temple. And it's bigger than the temple. And now the biggest thing is the office building that takes care of the affairs of both the temple and the political building. That's the history of Western civilization. From the Gothic through the princely periods of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to this economic world that we're in now. In New York now, the debate is over who can build the tallest building, not to praise, but to build the tallest building. Yeah, and they are magnificent. I mean, some of the things that are going up in New York now really are, and this is a kind of architectural triumph. And what it is, is the statement of of the city. Uh, We are a financial power center, and uh, look what we can do. It's a kind of virtuosic, acrobatic stunt. Will new myths come from there? Well, something might. You can't predict what a myth is going to be any more than you can predict what you're going to dream tonight. Myths and dreams come from the same place. They come from uh, realizations of some kind uh, that have then to find expression in symbolic form. And uh, the myth, the only myth that's going to be worth thinking about uh, in the immediate future is one that's talking about the planet, not this city, not these people, but the planet and everybody on it. That's my main thought for uh, what the future myth is going to be. And what we'll have to deal with will be exactly what all myths have, deal with, have dealt with the maturation of the individual, the gradual, uh, the pedagogical way to follow from dependency through adulthood to maturity and then to the exit and uh, how to do it. And then how to relate to this society and how to relate this society to the world of nature and the cosmos. That's what the myths have all talked about. That's what, what this one's got to talk about. But the society that it's going to talk about is the society of the planet. And until that gets going, you don't have anything. There's that wonderful photograph you have of the Earth seen from space. Mm. And it's very small. At the same time, it's very grand. You don't see any divisions there of nations or states or anything of the kind. This might be the symbol, really, for the new mythology to come. That is the country that we are going to be celebrating. And those are the people that we are 
one with. Oh my goodness. wonderful I'm just going to say that way long time ago we used to play these things on this not on this radio show before before the time of BBS radio everybody Mm. oh when was that Rama that was in the early 2000s, possibly, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Rama got to speak with Bill Moyers. It's been quite a while. Yeah. You should find out if he's okay. I know that he had <sighs> he had a condition in his throat, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't heard anything from Bill Moyers. Have you? No. No. Okay, this one's ET communication and contact. The Apunians, ETs from Alpha Centauri, have had many years of direct face-to-face contact with Ricardo Gonzalez. This was not the only form of contact he and others have had with each, with such otherworldly visitors. He describes many ways that various civilizations can reach out to Earth, including telepathy, dreams, astral travel, and interdimensional portals. He addresses the differences between telepathy and channeling. Now, that's all be an interesting conversation. And how these forms of contact can affect the human host. Plus, we take a look at close encounters of the third, fourth, and fifth kinds. This is featuring Ricardo Gonzalez with Amory Smith. Here we go. Tommy. Disclosure, we are with Ricardo Gonzalez, author and researcher from Peru who has experienced multiple direct contacts with extraterrestrial species called the Apunians. Today, we are talking about different types of contact. Ricardo, welcome to the show. Thank you, everybody. You have had direct contact in the physical and 3D level with the Apunians. How did that work? Yes, over the years I've had physical contact with these extraterrestrials with human appearance. 
And these experiences have also happened in the company of other witnesses. I'm not the only one who has found themselves face-to-face with these beings. However, the question is, how do these contact agreements work with an extraterrestrial entity? When I've had to share my testimony with the media, sometimes they've labeled me as being abducted by extraterrestrials. I would try to correct the journalist, saying, I was not taken against my will. It was a contact by mutual agreement. How does this work? They extend an invitation to those people who they feel would be appropriate for an experience. When I say people who are ready for an experience, I don't mean people who are more evolved than others. I mean people who can handle the experience and who would also be willing to talk about it. What would be the point of having an extraordinary contact experience if afterwards, due to fear, you keep it to yourself? So having contact depends a little more on them than on us. Obviously, having this type of relationship over time with extraterrestrials, some of us had to go through a training, a training which took years for some of us. I had a training for almost three years in order to see one of these beings for the first time. This training consisted of meditation and concentration techniques and also of education. I changed my paradigms, my perspectives about possible encounters with extraterrestrials. And at the final stage of this training, these beings suggested that we go to the mountains or deserts completely alone for several days under all types of conditions so that we could face our fears, our loneliness, so that we could hear ourselves. I went through all of that before I saw them for the first time. What were some of the challenges, Ricardo, through those three years that you found were a little difficult to get through? If you could explain to our viewers. I think, and I'm going to be very honest as always, Emery, what was the most difficult for me at first was to be alone in the desert for several days. Because we humans are not used to being alone. We are social beings. That's why the pandemic of 2020 affected us so much, like a negative emotional contagion due to social distancing and the lockdown. We humans are social beings, Emery. So being in the middle of the desert three, five, seven days alone was really hard. In the middle of nowhere with nothing around for miles. I began to feel great discomfort. Yet I didn't know why I was uncomfortable. What other types of contact are there that you can share with us? Aside from these physical encounters that I always describe in my interviews, for which I went through the training that I just described, there are other types of contacts and encounters with these beings. One of them that we discussed is the dimensional portals. Another is telepathic or mental communication. Another way of contact is through the dream world, where you can project your consciousness to other realms of reality, even though it sounds unbelievable. Many esoteric groups call this astral body projection. There are also contact experiences that are stimulated by sound, whether through mantras or power words, as was done in ancient India, or through music. Just like what happened at the end of the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, by the way, is based on real events. There are, of course, the three-dimensional contacts that you have. But there's also 
interdimensional contacts. Can you explain that? Basically, there are two types of dimensional portals and contact experiences with extraterrestrials. The planet's natural ones, as we spoke about in another episode, and the artificial ones that these extraterrestrial beings can generate. Extraterrestrials refer to artificially generated vortexes as sendras, and there are four kinds of sendras. Due to their physical and energy characteristics, and due to the experience itself within those vortexes. The first two sendras, type 1 and type 2, are more physical. You can see energy with greater clarity, almost as if it was a bright, compact fog. And you can put your hand in it, and you no longer see it. And temperature and characteristics within that dimensional portal are different than the context where you were before. In the type 1 experience, it tends to be individual. The energy is organized by the extraterrestrials for just one person. Type 2, up to seven people may enter. And the next types, 3 and 4, which are called Himbra, a name that was coined by the extraterrestrials themselves. Large groups of people may enter. Possibly more than 12 people, but the experience is more mental, more holographic, more spiritual. And the physical characteristics of the Sendra Imbra together are also more subtle. They gave us the suggestion and training to face these dimensional portals, especially for type 1 Sendras, because all of the energy was organized for you, adjusted to your physical body adjusted to your brain, your mind. So you should enter there as balanced as possible because the influence of that energy field is greater. So if they tell us on such and such a day there's going to be a type 1 Sendra contact on Mount Shasta, they would suggest a certain diet for seven days, particularly a fruit and vegetable-based diet, no meat. They also would suggest avoiding alcohol, and of course, any substance that might generate an out-of-the-ordinary state of consciousness. They would say that our body had to be as pure as possible in order to withstand large energy fields. And the extraterrestrials were right. There were people who said, I'm not going to follow a diet for a week, and I'm not going to be fasting the day of the contact. And when they would face the experience, they would feel sick, they would get headaches, they would throw up, and they would fall asleep. The more energy field influence you have, the more prudent you should be about what you drink and eat. There are very intelligent people out there that say they talk to extraterrestrials in their mind. Is that some sort of contact? Of course, we're talking about telepathy, but if either of us goes to a psychiatrist right now, and we tell them that we are speaking mentally with an extraterrestrial entity, they would probably prescribe something for us. They might think that we're crazy. However, we do need to make a distinction between hallucinations and mental disorders and authentic contact experiences that occur within the context of telepathy. The word telepathy comes from Greek. In Greek, tele means far or distance, and path in Greek means something like a sensation or a symptom or a disease or symptom. 
So telepathy could be described as transmitting something, a sensation, a sign, a symptom, over distance. It's not a language. It's not structured like English or Spanish. It's a collection of information, feelings, images, sensations. But if it comes to you, your brain will encode it in your native language, which is English. If I receive it, I will comprehend it in my native language, Spanish. That's why telepathy is the universal language of the cosmos. But there's an important point here. How can I confirm that telepathic contact? Because anyone can say, I'm receiving telepathic messages from extraterrestrials. Are they really receiving them? Anyone who says, I remember my past lives, are they really remembering that? If someone says, I'm channeling this information and this is my truth, are they really channeling it? How can you prove it? Because if we fall into that, if it resonates with you, it's true. That's a little dangerous because it's all based on your faith and your perception. You may resonate with the charisma of that person, but not with the purity of the phenomena itself. What these extraterrestrials suggested to us is to have an element of verification that proves that the telepathic communication was authentic. Within the types of contact, in order to confirm that these telepathic experiences are real, We would ask these beings for a physical sign. For example, I remember that in Peru, something extraordinary happened in 1999. I had only been receiving these telepathic messages from the extraterrestrials for a few years. I had had small but important confirmations. And I had even had direct contact with them. Then suddenly I started receiving a chain of really important messages full of information. This information would come to me telepathically. I would hear the information in my own language in my head. And I would write it down in a notebook so that I wouldn't lose the information. I said, they're going to have to confirm this. And they told me that in the first few months of 1999, there was going to be a wave of UFO sightings that was going to be filmed by a lot of TV networks. And that these objects were going to fly over the capital of Peru, over the city of Lima. And that's what happened. They appeared on the dates that they said, right in the middle of the city of Lima. They were filmed. And the Peruvian Air Force had to create an office for UFO investigations, which didn't exist before that. I was invited to the opening ceremony of that military office. So all telepathic contact at some point needs verification, physical proof, a concrete sign, or that their information may be verified correct over time. That will give you the confidence to continue that telepathic connection. What is the difference between telepathy and channeling? There's a very important difference between telepathy and channeling. To begin with, we should understand how the term channeling started. It's a modern term that originated primarily in the United States. On one hand, from information and testimonials of American actress Shirley MacLaine, prior to that through the famous books of Seth, the channeling of Seth, sharing and writing in books information that they perceived. The phenomena of having information or energy enter an individual began to be called channeling. In my opinion, this started to get distorted because suddenly the supposed channels 
began to introduce and incorporate into their bodies non-human energies that they would attribute to extraterrestrial spirits, spirits from the past, from lost civilizations, or even angels, and they would talk through them. I should say that it even became a big business. In order to speak on these topics, for people to hear a message that they channeled from an angel or an extraterrestrial... Could it be actually dangerous to do that? To be able to hear these messages in those channeling sessions, you had to pay big amounts of money. So for me, channeling started to become distorted. Obviously, there are authentic channels who perceive information from the cosmos or external information that they may interpret and communicate. But it's a very different thing, Emery, to allow an entity to enter into your body no matter how much you call it channeling and make it sound nice, it's becoming a medium, and that's dangerous. Even the father of spiritism, well-known Alan Kardec, warned of the dangers of embodying spirits. There are very few people who can withstand this type of experience. Many circles of mediums still practice it, particularly in Brazil, but it's not something to recommend to people. According to my contact experience... Modern channeling is dangerous. Separating authentic cases from fraudulent ones, telepathy is a contact method that is efficient and safe. It's natural because it even happens spontaneously between human beings. Like when you're thinking about a person who you haven't seen in years and suddenly they call you on the phone. Or when your child is thinking about a song, and you start singing it in the shower. This happens spontaneously among us as humans. Or when a child suffers a small accident, and their mother, who is at home many miles away, feels it immediately. There are cases of children who have fallen and bumped their knee, and their mom is cooking, and suddenly her knee starts to hurt, and she was thinking of her child. My point is is that telepathy is a natural method of communication and embodying an entity into your body is not. You are transgressing higher laws. Some people believe we can initiate contact. Other people believe that the extraterrestrials initiate contact. What can you say about that? I believe that contact stems from the agenda of these beings. And to maintain that across time, preparation is needed. I'm going to give you an example. A hundred of us get together somewhere in the United States. Let's imagine here in Colorado, in Crestone. We set up our camping chairs and we start looking up at the sky. We could start to practice meditation and concentration exercises with positive thoughts and desire with all our hearts to have some kind of contact with these beings. It could happen. After these 100 people being in this mental condition in Creston, which is a place of contact, that an object appears, that there is a UFO sighting, or even some type of paranormal experience linked to these beings. Yes, that can happen. But the question is, every time those 100 people get together in Creston and do the same thing, is the phenomena always going to happen? The answer is no. 
And this is because it also depends on an agenda. There has to be a convergence of pure intentions that also corresponds to the agenda of these beings. Is there any technology that can help initiate contact? We've talked about this on other occasions, Emery. Of course there are technologies that attempt to initiate contact with them. But I believe that much more than technology, it's related to consciousness, as we've said. I remember the first time that I visited the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, which we know recently collapsed. When I was there in Arecibo speaking with some scientists who were trying to intercept signals from a possible extraterrestrial civilization, and they had not gotten anything conclusive for them, researchers like Jorge Martin in Puerto Rico They had a lot of evidence, pictures, of these objects over the Arecibo telescope and in the El Yunque area, also in Puerto Rico. What I want to say is this. As we attempt to develop technology to initiate contact with extraterrestrials, they are already able to initiate contact through our minds, through our intentions. Intentions that, like I said, are in alignment with their agenda. Even... And I say this with a great deal of respect, but from a critical point of view, that at the Apple Store there are apps to try to initiate contact with extraterrestrials. I think that this is a way of undermining what is happening in the field, right? I love the gadgets to bring out, you know, the lasers and the electromagnetic field, tri-field meters. It's okay for you to have that for your confirmation. I agree with you, Amory that some of the tools to study the UFO phenomena are good. For example, my own research team uses lasers, night vision, infrared cameras, etc., but not to achieve contact, just as tools for study and verification, nothing more. And it is true, too, that when we've had those gadgets turned off, we've been able to focus more on the experience itself, and they have shown themselves with greater intensity. In other words, the contact technology is us. Some people feel like they have been on a craft and have lost time. What are they actually experiencing? Within the contact experiences of the fourth kind, that would imply being on board an extraterrestrial ship. Allow me to remind the audience that the encounters, the close encounters, were categorized by J. Allen Hynek. Hynek said that the first kind of encounter was the UFO sighting. The second kind of contact was when the object would interact with people and there were paranormal phenomena or landing marks on the ground. The third kind of contact, according to Dr. Hynek, is when a crew member is sighted close to the UFO. As a matter of fact, Dr. Hynek's classification inspired the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Steven Spielberg. But later in the 1970s, several Latin American researchers spoke to Dr. Hynek. Among the researchers who spoke to Hynek was Fabio Serpa from Argentina. And Fabio Serpa told him, Dr. Hynek, we need to add other categories of contact. And Serpa proposed in the 1970s the close encounter of the fourth kind, when you are physically inside an extraterrestrial ship. And the fifth kind? 
telepathic paranormal communications. That category even includes radio waves that could be picked up by radio observatories. So what are we talking about when a person says, I was inside a ship? We are talking about a physical experience. One that, in fact, I've experienced and have previously spoken about on Gaia TV. I also know that these beings are able to implant information into your brain. Like virtual reality. I don't think that this was my case because of a series of characteristics with the context that I affirm to have had. But, of course, any extraordinary affirmation requires an extraordinary confirmation. That's why it's such a sensitive issue when someone says, I saw myself, I was on, or I visited an extraterrestrial ship. How did you get there inside that craft? Was it in your dreams? Did you wake up and then remember? Was it mentally during a meditation? When you crossed a dimensional portal? Or were you physically absorbed by a beam of light like Travis Walton and taken into the craft? So there are different types of contact within a ship, and not all of them are physical. Depending on the characteristics, the context, and the information. So tell me about these sounds that people hear and frequencies during these, you know, these close encounters. Certainly, there is a series of physical characteristics in the context of a field contact, the behavior of animals, the silence of birds and insects, the sudden stopping of the wind, or if the temperature decreases or increases. According to our contact experience in the field, extraterrestrials have preferred colder temperatures because in colder temperatures they are better able to control their technology and also some interdimensional actions. I also feel that they are more accustomed to colder temperatures than very high temperatures. When the temperature goes up too much in the field in a certain area, you are seeing a dimensional portal being created. And another phenomenon that you're asking me about, about the tones and frequencies, they are like musical notes. I have heard them, and I have been so fascinated by them that as a musician myself... I have created musical pieces inspired by those sounds. Are there extraterrestrials living amongst us? Yes, of course. Within the kinds of contact, there is also infiltration, a type of fifth column among us, beings that look very similar to us, or extraterrestrial entities who have the capacity to mutate in order to look like us. There are a lot of very interesting cases about this in ufology. For example, a sighting on a beach in Spain, in Cadiz. After some sightings of UFOs over the ocean, to see these beings transform into everyday people like us, wearing a shirt and pants and walking like any normal person. In our contact experience, they have presented themselves as people, and they have infiltrated our meetings. We have later identified them, because can you imagine if you're in a meeting with a large group of people, and suddenly one of those sitting there who you don't know is one of these beings? When we've experienced that, we've been able to keep it quiet and discreet, and we ask them, why have you done this? 
They answered, although we are able to monitor you telepathically at a distance, living the human experience with you gives us a different perspective. Why do you think they're contacting humans now more than ever? I believe that they have renewed contact with human beings at this time because at the times that are coming, contacts with the precision of a surgeon so that they won't have too much of an impact on our free will, our own timeline. They want to warn us. They don't want to directly affect events so that they won't create what is known as the butterfly effect, the distortion of timelines. Do you have any predictions in the near future in terms of contact? Once again, Emery, I'm going to be very honest with you. In the last messages that I received from them, particularly in 2019, they warned me that a period would come, a very important and conflicted period for our humankind. In the month of January 2020, after a camping trip to southern Chile, they made known to me that I would spend several months confined to my home. I couldn't believe that that could happen. I'm always traveling, on the move. I thought that I was going to get sick, that I would be ill at home for several months, like they showed me in a dream. Then this pandemic came, and so I understood. And I asked them, what happens next? They said, for now, we cannot give you more details, because you all are going through your big test. That is not just the pandemic, but everything that is behind it. And you all have to face it alone. Then as soon as you all pass this phase, something new will come. And we will be there if you are ready. You have to be strong. Ricardo, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you, my friend. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. So, raw. Um, in terms of this gentleman was describing channeling as dangerous, taking an entity into the body and allowing it to take you over. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, we've been listening to you talk with mother. Yes. With all of us. And, uh, my take is that there's, a complete total trance channel, which is what you do. Yeah, they don't go into that. No. And I'm not sure how to, you know. Susan from from Ashtar on the Road did the same thing. She was a complete trance channel. Yes. And again, we've said this often, when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. There's many channelings out there. There's many that say, I'm channeling St. Germain. And with evolution of consciousness, you can relate to this or that or the other one where you are. Yeah. Until you're moving to the next level. So I would mitigate that. Yes. Piece of the story. Nonetheless, we have mm. one more, everyone, mm. of this little series. Commander Rama. This would be, um, 
this mm. one here, I think. Uh, Constructing Realities in the Quantum Realm. Oh, okay. Was Marina Jacob, Jacoby. Okay. There are plenty of examples of that stuff that he was describing. That, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's about heart resonance. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Here we go. Mm-hmm. A little short one here. We live in the most amazing of times. We're coming quite into the aura now of we suck. Dodie and die. Excuse me. <laughs> Mention those names. Come to mind. Welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Norrie. We've got a fascinating program for you. Since she was a little girl, Marina Jacoby has had intuitive abilities. But in the last five years, everything changed. Marina started to connect with different beings that told her that they were from a higher dimension of frequency and a higher order of consciousness. Marina, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. And you're Bulgarian, right? Yes, I am. And the, your English is perfect. Well, thank you. Did you learn English in Bulgaria? How did, how did that happen? Uh, actually, no. I came when I was 20 years old. I didn't know English. I was very fortunate to go to a close friend's house. And I worked 24-7. Uh-huh. And uh, I learned from the TV, actually. I would look different shows and learn the language. Uh, maybe that's why some of the conversations. I, I, I hope you watch some of the better shows. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Ricky Lake uh-huh. <laughs> in the beginning talk shows. Interesting. Yeah. Now you have this intuitive ability, which I assume you've had since you were a child. Yes. Since I'm how did it? How did it change for you? What happened with these higher beings? Uh, well, first was um, dreams, and the dreams will come true, and I predicted uh, different things through my dreams. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was suggested for my mother to look into automatic writing. So I did, and I practiced, and the scribbles became words and sentences. And, and they weren't your words, were they? No, they were not, because I was always connecting with some kind of a being that, that always talked nicely, and they taught me very nice stuff. And when I was um, 19, 20 years old, I was, uh, had the ability to come to America. I love America. And um, then I was married. And after that, literally in 2010, I had um automatic writing with um, extraterrestrials that they call themselves the hybrids. Uh-huh. And okay. this is how the connection started. And they told me that I have to be careful what I'm thinking because they see everything as a holographic imprint in front of them. And that uh, spiked my curiosity. I'm very, you know, person that wants to know everything. And such a Jimmy quantum structure. 
was this ability hereditary? I mean, did your grandmother have it and then it passed to your mother and then to you? Yes, I did in my family three generations ago. Uh, my great-grandmother was healing children through only words, but I realized that words are a sequence of vibration and gravitational field that creates holograms and open portals like, like a geometry. So you can heal somebody and shift their timeline and reality, and this is what I teach. I teach quantum structure. This is how I was, I was taught from the um, extraterrestrials. And with different beings, I connected with Ra at 2012. I connected with the Pleiadians, the um, Council of Nine wow. is the main. Are you in a trance state when this happens? I actually was taught, uh, literally, I can talk to you right now and I can hear thoughts. I have a awakened channeling. All I right. can tune in immediately. Are you like being bombarded frequency. with these thoughts? No, you learn to separate. And it's very interesting when you have a direct channeling from them, I get almost like a certain goosebumps around my body. And then I start talking, but I do not think what I'm talking is just direct. But I can listen and then talk and interpreting. This is how um, in my um, YouTube channel, The Harmonic Reactor, I teach the quantum structure, how they taught me. I can pull out, listen what they say, and then break it down so everybody can understand the quantum metaphysical structures of our reality. Because it's complex. I get it complex. I can get it like an image or right. a direct download, and then I can break it down so anybody can understand scientists. Because I get information about even the scientists that are here. The first book is The Harmonic Reactor. And it's about uh, how you transport transport technologies, biolocations, structures of extraterrestrials, uh, technologies, including uh, artificial intelligence, which um, you can create artificial intelligence that is actually... In the name of humanity, if you teach the structure itself to do, you can also make from ether technology. You know, you can um, do technologies that are copying the structure of the magnetic and gravitational field and reconstruct matter structure right in front of you. These ETs that contact you, do you channel them? I mean, do you yes. do you become them? With it becomes like a one one mind, and then I realized that you're also part of them, also part of their family. I was told that I was actually walking uh, the original soul, and I knew that when I was a kid because they said, sure. oh, this person left and now it's you. But of course, I had no idea what they were talking about Not until I learned the structure. So my mother originally gave birth to the body, but a different soul. In an age of 10 to 12, I'm not sure what exactly the soul switched. And took over, which is a Pleiadian structure. And this is what they told me, that I'm Pleiadian soul, but came in to do whatever I do right now. And I was not aware. So you were re reincarnated Pleiadian? Yes. Fascinating. If you look at it that way. Is there hope for our planet? Do they tell yes, you things like that? Yes, it is. Like Against that? all odds, humanity wins. Well, that's the way to do it. What do you believe is contained in the fifth dimension, Marina? All of it. Depending on your expression, depending on how you chose to construct your new earth. New earth is the fifth dimensional structure, which is a different vibrational sequences. And that is more in a positive. From that momentum, humanity is going to expand into a new realities and connect eventually with the galactic families. On the Gaia program initiation, Matthias De Stefano talks about the fifth dimension and what it means. The fifth dimension is born in the same moment 
that the first dimension was born. The first dimension was born from the idea that this being has about itself. But this idea has love to be expressed, has wisdom to understand who it is, who it was, and who it will be, and has will to move and create. And also have this idea of living a process of four statements that we call in the whole role like uh, evolution. And once you accomplish the evolution of every stages of the universe, you are a co-creator. You are able to become not only a creation, but also a creator itself. The fifth dimension is the one where the wise ones, those who has accomplished the experience of the third dimension, can watch the, the expression, can watch the whole process of the fourth dimension and understand why, what's the purpose of it. That's why there's a lot of people that say that in the fifth dimension we have the masters, the guides, the people and beings who are heading us in our mission, who are leading us in our purpose on, on life and are those who who speak to our ears and says what is good, what is bad, where to go, where not to go, what to do, what not to do. Those people that hear themselves in the fifth dimension are the ones that channel the information from the whole, are the ones that have the whole picture. What, uh, Marina, is the fifth dimension? Um, the fifth dimension is created by particles itself that are co-creating by reprinting the structure itself one-on-one. One-on-one plus equals three creates a certain structure of modality that is reprinting on the quantum field next to itself, next to itself to infinity. So basically from one particle, you're creating a structure that is expanding to infinite and collapsing to infinite. That collapsing can go to infinite realities of reprinting and expansion of infinite reality of reprinting. If you create the modality of a similar structure, some vibrations, they are going to reprint in a similar timelines of realities, including parallel timelines. That was directly channeled. Have you had this ability that when you tap into this, mm -hmm. that you can uh, see things in the future? Yes. Depends what I'm allowed to see. You're allowed to see accordingly to the vibrational sequence that you carry this moment. Now, when you say you're allowed to see, it's them, the ETs, them. that give you the ability? Or who, yes. who does that? You're talking to them now, too. I am right now? Yes. And what do they think of this planet as a whole? Tough creation, reprinting of realities are tough. You need to do more by expressing yourself in the different structures. Are we doing the, the right thing as people? Repeat. Please. Are we doing the right thing as a, as a society, as people? Yes, as you right now, yes, you do. Whatever you creating in this moment is reprinting to the next moment. That's what you're doing right now. Quantum structure, what is that? The quantum structures are created by magnetic and gravitational fields. There are sequences of realities reprinting by itself. It's created by that one single particle. That particle is holding the vibrational signals of the entire magma of the universe itself. 
that magma, it's so potent in vibration that when it starts vibrating itself, it's reprinting itself because there's no time. Everything is created in the momentum of the now. Is there a God? God, you are. You're created from the one particle that is reprinting itself and you're reprinting other versions of yourself. So you're speaking to yourself to another imprint on your own holographic magnetic and gravitational field. So even when you look Marina right now, you see another version of yourself, which is reprinting based on your own reality of a choosing. Now, does Marina have the ability to come back to herself at any time? As you wish. Interesting. Interesting. Let's bring Marina back. Now, do you know what they just said? Are yes. You, are you aware yes, of that? Yes, I do. I am, but um, yes, it's like a memory. Interesting. And it's it's not where it's bombarding you or bothering you when they channel you? No, I love it, actually. I Because they introduce themselves slowly. First, it's only automatic writing. And then they start teaching me a lot of stuff. For example, scientists may say something. And I would hear, yes, but, and I will ask the question and immediately complete download of what that is in scientifically. And then I can just, if you watch the uh, videos of quantum manifestation, I can explain how you can construct and deconstruct realities. So you pick whatever by your choosing and how you can construct this reality to become an outcome for you. That's why one plus one equals three in a quantum structure, because between your reality and my reality, we co-create in a third structure. Interesting. How often do they channel into you? Anytime I wish to. I can be in the kitchen washing dishes and they can talk to me. they pop up? Do you do it daily? Daily. This is all the time. I can do it all the time. It becomes part of my daily life. They constantly talk or, for example, they may tell me, don't say too much to that person. I don't know why. I don't see what this person did, maybe something horrific or something, but they will kind of, because they will never take over your consciousness, but they will protect me by saying, don't say anything. And eventually I find out. Well, talk as much as you want on this program today. Yes. Let them let you loose, right? Yes. What planetary system are they from? Um, the way they explain to me is actually you can really see it because it's based on the vibrational sequences. Your consciousness has to and mind hold certain resonances in order for you to even comprehend the information that is coming. So, but it's based on the heart structure. More you expressing the resonance of the heart, consciousness is more in the heart because it has to preserve itself, cannot self uh, extinct. And when you start implementing actions through the heart. By synchronicity, you start imprinting realities like that and you start connecting with beings. It's almost like a telepathic phone call to another dimension. And they see how you've been behaving and how you're acting mm-hmm. towards people through the heart and there's no ego structure in there. And they choose to uh, contact you and give you more tasks depending on how you complete this task. Because they said to me, I have a book on, that is called Predictions. I don't ask for it. They just downloaded the information. What? Uh, because it has to crystallize 100% synchronicity in a quantum structure in order to them to tell you 100%. 100% this humanity is moving towards ascension. 
against all us, they told me we're moving. But who is going to see it based on that resonance vibration, you end up creating a holding on your timeline to create completely different reality to shift into the fifth dimension, which Matthias was talking about. That I can explain all that, what he's talking about into a quantum structure by particles, vibrations and how this is done. Let me ask the ETs for a second, Marina. Are there other universes, parallel universes? There are multiple universes, universes with the universes. That's why we're talking reality within the reality. For example, yeah. in your planetary structure, fifth dimensional, we wish to say fifth dimensional because it's based on a hard structure. You can have a multiple reality expressions for itself. For example, when you go to your work right now, you express yourself based on your vibrational sequence of your choosing by your thoughts, emotions, and deeds, create magnetic and gravitational field. When you combine that, you're actually creating realities by your choosing and they splitting and fractal momentums, depending on what you choose as action is what you end up creating in the end of experiments. We have a guest by the name of Jason Quitt, who is on a program called Open Minds, who talks about the different parallel realities. Let's look. We live on a planet that allows for many dimensions to interface at the same time. So let's talk about some of the lower dimensions. Our Satanist groups that worship the low sun, for example. And you've experienced some intrusion of lower realm entities and such at times that frightened you a little bit, as I recall. To be here, you have to deal with these intrusions. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know anybody that doesn't. And it's just part of the experience here. And it's part of being asleep. And the reason I say this is because we grow up in, I would say, an altered reality. Mm-hmm. It's not our true vision of a creation. Mm-hmm. And we're very, we're kept, uh, in a very straight line. So we're not supposed to see outside of that line. And there are beings just outside of our visual realm that connect to us. <laughs> they could even feed us visions. Right. They could channel through us. Like, you know, we can think we're hearing the word of God, but it's not. Yep. So there's a lot of manipulation out there and they could actually implant memories and thought forms inside of us. So we think they're real. Not and only, we're sincere when we share these with the world. Yikes. It, not only do we think they're real, sometimes it comes in our own voice. Yes. So we think we're telling ourselves these grand, amazing things. Interesting take. I totally agree with that. You do. Uh, because I have situations with that. The thing is, when you know the quantum structure, if you hold the vibration... Even if, for example, a negative entity or negative person is in front of you, if you express the vibration and hold the vibration in neutrality, what they taught me is the zero point, basically no input and output of emotional sequences coming into the hologram. Mm -hmm. If you hold that vibration, you're actually starting to reconstruct the reality based on a positive outcome because you have the two choices. You have the choice to choose to be afraid of the situation in the hologram and you 
you have the choice to transform it into a positive. So those two probabilities are coexisting at the same time in a quantum structure, but it's going to manifest based on what more intention of a frequency vibration you end up putting into. So you actually have the choice to construct negative outcome and positive outcome. In these parallel universes, are there other me's, other you's in those universes? Yes, another version of you. So when you actually create a timeline of reality, you're actually reprinting, uh, you're creating a new hologram and shifting your consciousness into a brand new earth and you're reprinting another version of you or me, depending on how you want to collapse the positive or negative structure into Does that version of me or you in another universe have an effect on us here? Yes, because it's all reprinting for itself. And the previous vibration of hologram has leakage of information sequences into another one to become a linear structure. I teach that in a quantum manifestation videos. How can you change your reality, Maria? Can you? Yes, you can change it by choosing to express based on the vibrational sequence. So your emotion and thoughts create magnetic and gravitational field. They can be measured. They also create a hologram geometry patterns, which actually loops in a spinning rotation within the field of itself, mother field, sure. you know, and that creates fractally moment to moment to moment literally if literally if i shift from here to here i actually uh, created based on the previous vibration similar structures vibrational sequences and reprint myself including you into another universe of a planet earth literally mimicking the structure and yet i can choose to smile What? And I can choose to be sad. What if something happens to you in that other universe? Will it affect you here? Yes, it affects, but you can also switch it. And that universe also splits in another timeline and realities. Everything is splitting. Everything is mimicking. Never stops. The quantum structure never stops to, to coexist and to co-create. So even if you think you went into the past, there's no such thing you went into the past. You actually reprinted another version with a similar vibrational sequences of that reality. But it's never exactly 100% the same because the structure itself is constantly moving. And if you look at it as a quantum, that vibration, that numbers, they're constantly changing. What are holograms? Hologram is based on sequence of a sound frequency vibration. And when you have three similar on waveform sound vibration, they create trinity structure of magnetic and gravitational field. On the middle is the black hole that holds neutrality, the zero point. Once you start combining this trinity structure with another one, they start merging with each other and start rotating like this and constantly combining one plus one equals three between those two. And they start splitting up based on that. So imagine the entire magma of the universe is created by this type of trinity plasmas that are constantly interacting, pulsating. And that's why they're creating constantly new realities and new realities of reprinting itself. And when you create and lower the vibration, depending on the sequences, depending on the magnetic and gravitational film, you can create matter. The way water, for example, has five states of matter. Mm-hmm. That's actually more they told me, depending on what reality you do, there's more components to that. Marina, on uh, another Gaia program called Escape the Matrix, David Icke talks about this holographic reality. Take, for instance, the... The experience of fire walking. 
You walk through fire in a state of perception that you're going to get burned. Someone will be calling an ambulance very quickly. But you can, people do, walk through fire in other states of perception, perceptional belief that they're not going to get burned. And they walk through fire and don't get burned because an illusion can only burn an illusion if you believe it can and decode that reality. So in this Matrix movie, um, when they brought um, Neo back out of this computer program that he was trying to uh, jump across buildings to overcome the belief that it was real, um, he had blood coming from his mouth. And he said, if, if this if this is all an illusion, what's this? And the Morpheus character said that your mind makes it real. The body cannot exist without the mind, uh, he said. Now, why is that? It's because the body is the mind. The body is just a decoded holographic expression of the mind. Yes, even the body, everything is holographic. Therefore, we are decoding the energetic fields that we call the body, the information fields, the waveform fields, into the very body that we think we're inhabiting. And our perceptions will dictate the nature of how we do that and how we experience that body. Do you agree with that, Marina? Absolutely, I agree. Actually, in the quantum structure, for example, if it's a fire, if you know how to manipulate a quantum structure, mm -hmm. if you know how to construct and deconstruct, you can put your mind in, a, a mind in a state of mind that you create a reality within the reality, the reality in the fire. You create a new reality in between, and you start walking, but you actually have two realities running at the same time, the one with the fire in the one that you are completely protected. Interesting. And you can control this. You can control this if you know how to construct and deconstruct. And that's why quantum manifestation protocol is fundamental. Do you teach this? Yes, I teach people? that. Yes, I have a channel in the harmonic reactor. And there you have quantum manifestation season one. Teach exactly how to do this stuff. You have a book called the Harmonic Reactor Book. Yes. Right? What is that exactly? That is uh, from the Pleiadians. It's uh, they downloaded this book. It took me one year, and they were downloading advanced extraterrestrial technologies for healing the body, frequency and sound. Uh, actually, they gave the codes for what each frequency does in the into the quantum field. For example. Uh, three hertz in the quantum field is actually clearing out the entire structure, so it preparing everything, the new frequency to come in without any interference. What is the ability to teleport, and how can we do that? By we can do that by technology because we experience in meta structure. That's mm -hmm. okay, but you can actually construct completely different frequency above the frequency that you are right now. And is, it, is it like remote viewing? 
No, it's not exactly. It's a remote view and you're just seeing something into another hologram and you see what they're doing. Another reality, yet remote viewing is going to allow you to see only the vibrational sequence that you're vibrating on cannot be above that structure because you don't hold the codes as a consciousness for that structure. So we got to be very careful when we remote viewing what we actually seeing because there are multiple realities of these realities. But if you actually... Uh, start constructing the structures and you know how to do it, you can actually create a new structure, raise the frequency vibration of your consciousness by implementing through the heart is fundamental to look above three and five D dimensional realities. Do you use this to heal as well, Marina? You can absolutely heal yourself. However, they told me if you have to go through a lesson, that mm-hmm. you're learning something, you cannot skip. You have to go through the lesson with the best of your abilities to and complete it. Once so you complete it, how long does that take to learn? For everybody, it's different depending on how many lessons you learn and how many out-of-balance structures you accumulate in your structure. Since you've been doing this, and you've been doing it for a number of years, what has been the most remarkable thing you've come across with this kind of ability? The ability to overcome the fears, to realize that I can absolutely create reality based on the heart and uh, to trust to trust 100% of what I do. Because it's not easy when you start connecting this way, um, you're thinking in a totally different way compared with everybody else. In the beginning, of course. Let me contact the extraterrestrials through you again. Mm -hmm. Do you, Pleiadians, believe that this planet is going through a major change? You are talking to the Council of Nine. (laughs) Yes. But the change is now, based on your belief system of the now, you already change your reality. What do you choose to be? Is it a good change or a bad change? What do you choose to be? We have that control? Yes. There are some on this planet who would rather have things in chaos. That is okay. Is their choice. It's all about a choice. How do we distinguish the difference between good and bad? experience, meta-structure experience to transform in consciousness simply is. But how do you know how much magnetic and gravitational field to implement to construct without knowing how that works? In consciousness simply is. You construct the way you wish to, but when it becomes out of balance, then consciousness itself will reconstruct. Now back to you, Marina. When we deal with healing, are you dealing with sound technology as well? Yes, you may. You can actually, the way they explain to me, and this is in the harmonic reactor, you need artificial intelligence when it talks to technology. The AI, fifth dimensional AI, it will be in the name of humanity. If you reach a reality of fifth dimensional, AI is taught to preserve humanity. 
and will mimic the molecular structure of your body. They're gonna, is gonna measure your molecular structure, find whatever is off balance, and we're literally going to reprint. So for example, if you have a missing arm, it's gonna mimic the structure of the modality of the uh, frequency sure. of your molecules and literally reprint back to normal from ether structure your, uh, your, uh, hand. So anything that is connected with, um, for example, robotics and stuff like this, it's okay, but it's actually pulling away from the molecular structure of the original codon and DNA, RNA of the body because the body, our body itself is actually a vessel, like a spacecraft that can shift and create reality as we wish. Let's look at the Teresa Bullard who discussed the power of healing as well in the Mystery oh Teachings my. program we have. What are other alternative tuning scales? that sound healers and alchemists are exploring besides scientific tuning. Well, several are based on the solfeggio frequencies. What are the solfeggio frequencies? Well, these are derived from a more esoteric approach using numerology. Nikola Tesla once said, if you only knew the magnificence of the three, six, and nine, then you would have the key to the universe. It turns out, that the solfeggios are tones derived from a cyclic variation of the numbers 369, 147, and 258, all of which reduced to sums of 3, 6, or 9. These were the original utre mi fa sol la ti. The solfeggios are believed to have been used centuries ago during religious ceremonies such as in Gregorian and Sanskrit chants. They were then later repopularized by Leonard Horowitz and Joseph Puleo starting in 1999. They say that music and chants tuned to these special frequencies are experienced as stimulating emotional release. They can help accelerate our healing, alter our perceptions of time and space, and facilitate spiritual transcendence. Today, Musicians work with nine solfeggio frequencies that are all numerologically consistent with the criteria. Each solfeggio frequency has unique characteristics and applications. For example, 528 hertz is called the miracle tone because it has been linked to healing and DNA repair. The mystery school perspective on this frequency is that it is in tune with universal galactic vibrations. This is the original vibration of the first ensophic ray, the hermetic ray. It is the frequency that we humans are meant to vibrate at as our base frequency for life. Imagine what life could be like, what miracles would be possible if we were maintaining this higher harmonious vibration as our base for life? Could we change the course of aging and disease, allowing for more vibrant and long life? Perhaps one day, humanity will live this way. It will take practical application and a new way of living life day to day to get there. But it's possible. It is possible, isn't it? It's completely true. Actually, this type of frequency like uh, 528 is just a, 
upfront frequency in a fractal, yet in this type of frequency, you have a symphony of frequency to combine and construct and reconstruct the realities. So if you want to really bilocate, you can have a symphony of this type of uh, frequency that they can actually do a symphony between each other, change the structure, and you can literally bilocate to a new reality. You can do this through the body when you have the knowledge, and you can do this through technologies. If you had to analyze exactly your abilities as an intuitive, what would you say your expertise is that would be your most important aspect of what you do? It's the quantum structure to download information directly out of the field when it's needed. How technology works, how the quantum structure works, how you can construct and deconstruct reality, anything with scientific. Do you deal at all with... uh artificial intelligence and things like that? Um, yes, I know how the artificial intelligence works. You can actually talk to it because it's actually ether structure. Actually, the extraterrestrial uh, platforms of technologies, including spacecraft, a life structure, ether technology, artificial intelligence. Since you've been doing this, since you were a child, mm-hmm. but you seem to be getting more and more involved in it, what has it done for your life, Marie? It changed me drastically for the better. Uh, it taught me to overcome the struggles. And um, I'm very happy because I know that humanity is moving forward. In a good way? In a very good way. Well, it's about time, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> How do people uh, get a hold of you? Um, they can always contact me through marinajacobi.com on my um, website. The Harmonic Reactor is my channel. They can study the structures. Uh, I talk about energy philanthropy. They taught me about energy philanthropy, how you give everything in the name of humanity and allow people to donate and support the way they wish to. Do the ETs constantly communicate with you in a positive way or sometimes negative? Uh, My guides, whoever I was connected, was always a positive way. However, uh, one time I saw a video of an uh, extraterrestrial somebody sent me and I started crying because they saw abuse and they taught me that they're not very nice group, uh, but because I did not judge and I was so much in the heart, they said that they were always going to have a, like a laser beam towards me to protect me no matter what. You've got the shield around you, don't you? I must say yes. Marina, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. You were very kind. Pretty fascinating. She deals with extraterrestrials who tell her exactly the way things are. And right now things are okay. I'm George Norrie and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. (laughs) Wow. That one. We're going to have to play that one again sometime. Wow. Hope she'll be back. What an amazing human being. Mm. Okay, so I the time has flown by. I wanted to share a bit of our sister Caroline. I'm not sure we'll get through much of this. Let's see. I will take a brave effort here. Um Greetings, friends. These are the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elementals, Fairy Angels, 
fairy elders, angelic legions, and archangels known as the Collective. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you today. Our winter, our writer, excuse me, has a question which opens an issue that many are dealing with now in more and in more than ever. My friends, I, Caroline speaking, I would like to ask about the issues of financial debt. Millions have gone deeper into debt due to the economic effects of this pandemic. Could you assist us in how to release debt for good? I really realize that that may be nearly impossible in a system dedicated to debt. Yet some assistance in this issue would be greatly appreciated. I know a number of people who lost their job and or housing in recent years or who have been facing large medical bills, among other issues. Yet even those who still have a steady income are finding it difficult to carry on as fully as they would like right now. Um, We are happy to speak on this issue, dear one says the collective. You are correct that many are in a position that feels tenuous to them now. For one, you, all of you, participate in a system that is not of your making. The rules have been written with non-human entities, such as banks, corporations, ranking first in order of who is served. People and environment are last in that system though occasionally claims are made in the contrary. Most people realize the unevenness of this arrangement while still quite young, because as children, we tend to ask a parent for something we would love to have. You do this while still resonating with the memory of creating instantly, instantly via projected thought as one does in the higher realms. The parent has long been retrained regarding having what one desires with all the presumed constrictions of earth life. And so they will often reply one way or another, no, we can't spend money on that right now. Or they may grow angry with a child who asks for a toy or to be taken somewhere fun diminutizing the child's preferences as nonsense or as asking for for too much. Often a parent or caregiver speaks out of a sense of shame or sadness or anger that the family does not have more money than it does at present. Or they may borrow the money needed and feel the inner weight of debt in their energies. Certainly, it is not healthy for a child to receive everything they impulsively desire in the moment, as that impedes growth and wisdom, rather than supporting such. Yet the denser effects of almost always hearing no from the parent are that, for one, the child feels that it is actually creator, the universe, telling them no, that they must wait, or work hard, or pray hard for what they desire, or all of that. They then learn that what they or anyone desires does not flow to them easily and joyfully. 
No one has answered their request with, as that is for your higher good, then it shall come to you in perfect timing and way. Well, I'm just going to go towards the end here because the time has flown by. Come to Cheryl Croce with us and we'll, we'll share this then. Um, um, take our focus off of that which we do not have or the feeling that we lack what is needed in the moment and constantly affirm that we have more than enough, that our cup is overflowing. Just holding that image in our heart-mind is very empowering. And know that we are never abandoned to any situation, no matter how trying. Release the need to judge where we are in life and focus inwardly on all we have come here through and come through so far and all the incredible wealth we carry within us. Though economies should come and go, we are the rock upon which the new earth is being built. How could we be anything except empowered to create wealth in every way, on every level? The more we concentrate on how wealthy we are and comment on such, better yet, write down that we are wealthy and free of all debt, bringing that truth into the physical world. Then, the more it will become so, through a series of remarkable events that none can withhold from us. We ask, in other words, that we view ourselves differently in order to experience something different from what we are seeing now. This perspective, this vibration, comes first, dear ones, always. Namaste, dear friends. We will speak more on this. And for now, remember that we are never alone. And we are never alone. We are with Rainbird, with fairies and feathers and angels and rainbows and crystals. And here it comes. That talking stick has got all kinds of good vibrations. Sister Rainbird, here it comes. I got it. Thank you. Oh, my God. What an incredible day. What a incredible, yes, highly credible. <laughs> yes, highly credible day. <laughs> Whoa, man, that last one was awesome. <laughs> and well, and it was all good. So lots of gratitude for everything you brought forward tonight. Lots of fun and very intriguing and interesting. And let's do it again. <laughs> Yay, yes. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it again. So, again, lots of gratitude. I'm passing this talking stick over to you, Mama. Let's hear what you got to close us up with. And thank you for tonight. Thank you. Takes it all to happen together. (laughs) Okay, tell us what we're going to have here real quick, honey. Alan Watts, Infinite Possibilities. It's coming.
also puts it in this way, the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. He loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. And when merits are accomplished, it lays no claim to them. The more, therefore, you relinquish power, trust others, the more powerful you become. But in such a way that instead of having to lie awake nights controlling it, you do it beautifully by trusting the job of everyone else. They carry it on. So you can go to sleep at night, trust your nervous system to wake you up in the morning. You can even tell it, I want to wake up at six o'clock, and it'll wake you up just like an alarm clock. This seems a sort of paradox to say this, but the principle of unity, of coming to a sense of, of oneness with the whole of the rest of the universe, is not to try to be, obtain power over the rest of the universe. That will only disturb it and uh, antagonize it and make it seem less one with you than ever. The way to become one with the universe is to trust it as another, as you would, another, and say, let's see what you're going to do. But in doing that, you see, in saying that to everything else that you have been taught to think is not you, you are also saying it to yourself. Because finally, as I pointed out, you do not know where your decisions are. They pop up like hiccups. And when you make a decision, people have a great deal of anxiety about making decisions. So when we decide, we're always worrying, did I think this over long enough? Did I take enough data into consideration? And if you think it through, you find you never could take enough data into consideration. The data for a decision in any given situation is infinite. So what you do is you go through the motions of thinking out what you will do about this. And then when the time comes to act, you make a snap judgment. But we fortunately forget the variables that we interfere with this coming out right. It's amazing how often it works. But warriors are people who think of all the variables beyond their control and what might happen. So then when you make a decision it works out all right. I think very little of it has much to do with your conscious intent and control. Okay, real quick, everybody, I'm going to give the phone number out before we do the song. And 
uh, we're going to have a very special event Monday with Cheryl. Um, it's about uh, 10 minutes of 9 Eastern, 10 minutes of 6 Pacific. Yet we're going to be listening to a special um, uh, transmission, you might say, Monday on WESOC, which is Monday the 26th. So the number to join us is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. And that will be both Sunday and Monday, about three hours each evening. We wish you so much prosperity, freedom, peace, and love. This time of Wesak, the Buddha returns and brings all those good things. And we all are that. We are the Buddha. <laughs> Let's have that song. I see what you're going to do. This is what we want to hear. Here we go. <laughs> we'll see you in your dreams, everyone. And on that bridge, so much love. Not much more to say. Aloha. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. <laughs> Live long and prosper, everyone. Namaste.